Hello again, friends, and Merry Christmas! Happy Kwanzaa, and a belated Happy Hanukkah, or whatever it is that you celebrate. I guess there legitimately is now people who celebrate Festivus out there, from what I understand. But welcome to a special holiday Star Wars edition of the 605 Super Podcast, our annual Christmas Star Wars. I think a couple more years we're going to outpace world class in terms of how many Star Wars we produce. I'm your host, the great Brian Last, of course, and with me here to start Star Wars, and you guys know how it works. There's no format. There's very limited editing. There's going to be a lot of people talking over each other at various points, but we always have a good time, and the conversation always is really interesting. And to start off here with me today, the very, very popular co-host and noted humorist and recent birthday boy, Scott Cornish. Scott, welcome back to the show. Ah, uh, it's great to be back. Wow. <laughs> what an inter- This is a terrible mistake uh, <laughs> leading off with me, but uh, happy holidays, everybody. Oh, Oh my goodness! What are you doing? What are you doing over there? I'm I'm channeling Mr. Magoo. Ah, ah. Oh, actually, hold on. I have someone here. Let me add this person. They wanted to say hello to you. Hello, Lucia. Are you a lesbian? <laughs> Do you like to go to bed with women? Macau, Lucia. Right. I love the way it breaks down right there. Boom, boom, boom. The, the baseline. I remember when we saw them live at the. Uh, what where did we see them at the uh, Friars Club? The Friars Club. That's right. We went to the Friars Club. And Daddy Longlegs were their supporting band. And I believe the actual guy who calls himself Daddy Longlegs in the band, he played bass that night and he was killing it on that. So I was right next to him filming on my phone when he was doing that. It was really great. But people didn't want to, people aren't listening to hear more about T Valentine and Hello Lucille, Are You a Lesbian? They want to hear wacky. They're on the wrong show if they don't want to hear that. (laughs) They want to hear wacky wrestling talk and uh, (laughs) all the usual chaos here. Uh, I'm trying to see now multiple people are messaging me that they're ready to come on, but it's me and you to start the show, Scott. You know, let me ask you here to start, uh, and just a little update for all the listeners out there. We're definitely doing this. I intend to try to do a new year Star Wars like we do every year. And the question I have now is, do I release an episode in between or do I wait until January? I could tell you now, Pandemonium Theater and the top 10 won't be returning until January, but I have enough material. I have enough material right now for five shows, but I've, I have pretty much everything I want in the next show for the most part done and i just gotta edit it so i'm questioning whether i'm gonna do it in uh next week or i'm gonna do it in a few weeks in january but uh i don't know where i was Uh, going with that what was i gonna say (laughs) well for the new year's show the main question is what year (laughs) well uh we're gonna go through 2019 2019 new Ah, year's show yes thank you that one will be on time i assume But uh, no, you know, everyone understands how it is. All my shows are out on time, but Super Podcast, that ain't getting released until I'm ready. And this is this is the way it's going to be. I just, I take a lot of pride in this show. And that's the reason why it's the best fucking show out there. It's because it's actually really, really good. And I take a lot of time to put it together the correct way. So, uh, and I don't, I don't want to come right out and blow my own horn, but it's also <laughs> has a lot to do with me. Yeah. Please don't <laughs> blow your horn or honk your horn. If I may make a request here on the show. Without that, I haven't got much. Oh, I know what I was going to say. What I was going to say is on the episode that is mostly done, uh, two of the segments you will hear are really great segments. George Shire, the AWA historian on Larry Hennig. And wow. also I have Ross Hart from the Hart family, the historian of the Hart family about Dynamite Kid in Calgary. This is a really, really cool discussion. And there's a few other surprises in there that I've already recorded, but uh those will be coming up. But there have been a lot of recent deaths in wrestling. Larry Madison, Larry Hennig, Dynamite Kid, Raul Mata was announced as, uh, I shouldn't say announced, but they said that he passed away earlier today. It's been all over Facebook. Any thoughts on any of these guys, Scott? 
Was Larry Matisek ever on the 605 podcast or was he on Cornette's show? He was on Cornette's show before I was on it. And I was actually trying to set up John Cosper, who's a, who's a friend of the show and a great guy. And boy, wait until people see his Jim Mitchell book. I got the manuscript here on the Black Panther, the original black superstar in professional wrestling. And boy, did he do research on this thing. It's extraordinary. And John and Herb Simmons were trying to hook me up with Larry to have him come on the show. But unfortunately, that, ah. was, that was right when things really went south. I know things have been hard for Larry Matisic for a few years, but sure. things really went south, which was unfortunate because I actually wanted to talk to him not just about wrestling, but about Harry White. I wanted to know Larry's memories mm. of Harry and uh, never yeah. had a chance. Ah, that's a shame. Yeah, there's been a, a bunch of them there. I, um, who did I, I want to ask you about? Um, uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, there's sure been a bunch. Um, Larry Hennig. Yeah, that guy, he made a lot of reunions and a lot of things like that. And uh, people, of course, that people said after Kurt died, he was really, uh, as you can expect, just devastated by that. Um, and uh, Dynamite Kid, God, he was a favorite of mine. I remember seeing, it's been stories been told many times about Cactus Jack's first uh, appearance at, on a, the WWF television uh, where he faced the British Bulldogs. And I remember at the time I was so interested in all the names, all the wrestlers and things like that, um, that when this guy showed up named Jack Foley against the British Bulldogs and <laughs> proceeded to get completely destroyed, especially by Dynamite Kid, I just remember seeing John Foley, the manager, former wrestler from Calgary, I had never seen a picture of him or anything like that. So when I saw Jack Foley in the ring, I thought, oh, maybe that's that Calgary guy. <laughs> what did I know? But, um, but I, so I have a vivid memory, I guess, of, of Foley's first appearance where he, where he was terribly brutalized by a dynamite kid. But everyone that kind of tells the same story, if they weren't like a Dave Meltzer with a, with a background where they knew dynamite kid, I can only tell you, I saw, Dynamite Kid versus Tiger Mask live on Madison Square Garden channel um, the night that it was on. And it's that same kind of story where you, where I think I had heard of Tiger Mask. I certainly had never heard of Dynamite Kid. And within a minute, I'm going, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> it was unreal to see him in in that environment, in that particular match that early on. I love that match. I said it on the Cornette Show recently. I know it's not as good as some of the matches they had in Japan, but it may be my favorite one just because of the crowd reaction. You know, at first they see these two Amazing. guys who are yeah. short and relatively thin, even though, you know, Dynamite was obviously on the gas already since uh, he met the Junkyard Dog in Calgary. That's what got him on steroids. And fans didn't know what to think. And I, and I think, like you just said, they had heard a little bit about Tiger Mask because he does get a little bit of a reaction. At least they had seen him in the programs. You know, if you got the program and you went to Madison Square Garden each month, you saw him right. listed as the WWF light heavyweight champion or whatever it was, or junior heavyweight, I don't even remember. And the match starts, and right away, like, as soon as Tiger Mask throws that kick, you hear, like, ooze. And then he starts, I, I don't know how, what to call it. You know where he, like, circles Dynamite? He circles any of his opponents. He does it a lot. He's kind of, like, hopping almost martial arts style around. And no one had ever seen anything like that. So everything he's doing, one after another, everyone's reacting to. Now, Dynamite's a big part of that. Tiger Mask is getting the pops because he's the baby face. Dynamite's playing heel. His role is really to take the bumps. But there are so many moments in that match that you are literally hearing New York wrestling fans having their minds blown 
And there's one fan, I always love it, after one of the spots, I think it's when Dynamite goes to the floor, and Tiger Mask does that spot where you run like you're going to dive through the ropes, and no one there had seen a dive through the ropes, I'm sure, but he didn't do it. He like, held onto the ropes and swung himself back in, a little cute semen over. And there's yeah. one fan, an African-American fan, they show in the crowd, and I'm going to assume he's been going to Madison Square Garden wrestling for years, because I think a lot of those people did. Not When I say those people, a lot of the fans that went to Madison Square Garden went month after month after month, and he stands up, and there's people around him standing up, and he's clapping furiously, but he's looking around, and it's a look like, holy <laughs> shit, are you seeing this? This is unbelievable. Exactly. And it's just, to me, that's one of the, the most extraordinary matches of uh, the 1980s, and like I said, it's my favorite of their matches, even though there are other matches they have that I recognize are better. And that I really enjoy. I'm not taking anything away from those matches, but this one is just to me on a whole nother level. Yeah, well, Dynamite Kid, I, it would be another couple of years probably before I uh, got to see him again. <laughs> but I never forgot the name. You know, was always interested to read about him and stuff like that. I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly how long it would have been. Probably, you know, probably when the, the when they made their debut as a team. Did I ever see him in between? I'm not sure. Yeah, just an amazing... Uh... <laughs> Did you get to see much of Davey Boy and Dynamite on tape after the facts? I know you weren't into tape trading and you weren't getting the Observer you know, yet in the early 80s, but... Did you ever get to see any of their stuff as heels in Japan as a heel tag team? Because it's obviously a much different tag team in 82, 83, 84 than it would be much later on because they both physically were able to move much more. Davey Boy wasn't as big yet. And it's a whole nother thing, especially when they both went skinhead. It's just, it, they really, it was just such a cool look for them. It really worked. And uh, that's the one sad thing is that in America, and we probably would have in Mid-South if they had actually taken that deal or gotten that deal and taken that deal. But in America, we never got to see that. We only got to see the version of the Bulldogs that was clearly being marketed to kids, even though those are, let's just say, I, I don't know if I'll be marketing those, at least dynamite to kids at that point in time. Right. No, no. To, to answer your first question, no, I, I don't think I saw them uh, until years, years and years later when I finally got to see some different tapes. But that was one of the things I sought out with some of their early uh, Japanese stuff. But at the time and, and not for a long time, did I, uh, did I ever get to see them together? All right. Hold on one second, Scott. I'm going to add our first guest to the show on top of you, of course. Uh, let me add this person. Let me go to the dial pad. Type in his number, and we are dialing him and adding him now. Hey. And now on the line, the host of Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin. John McAdam. John, welcome to Holiday Star Wars. Thank you for having me, Brian. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Also on the line right now, popular co-host and humorist, Scott Cornish. <laughs> Hello, John. Hey, how are you? You hot dog, you. <laughs> <laughs> John, when was the first time you saw Dynamite? And we were just talking about it. What did you think of Dynamite and Davey as a heel tag team in Japan versus them as a babyface tag team in America? Oh, boy, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I thought both of them worked out great, and I think had they, had they done a heel run in the United States, it would have been big. That's what it would have been in Mid-South. If they had gone for Mid-South, and I think the story is Joel Watts really wanted him. He convinced his father to finally bring him in, and at that point, Vince finally 
uh, got them to re-sign because he had them and they got fed up and left and went to Japan. And then they jumped to All Japan, which complicated things even more because Vince had a deal with New Japan. All Japan worked with the NWA and the AWA. And now the Bulldogs are there. And that's why you get that moment of Vince and Giant Baba on the front page of all the wrestling magazines with this really interesting handshake at the end of 1984 because he had to negotiate with Baba in order to get the Bulldogs. And he realized at that point he really did need the Bulldogs. But if they had gone to Mid-South, it would have been them against the rock and roll or something. So they would have been the heels that we saw in Japan. And I think them, especially when they had the skinhead look, even though they didn't really have it still at that point, I don't think that would have been just tremendous. They would have been just so good in that role. They would have been perfect in mid South. And it would have been a, you know, at the time it was a fresh new act. No one in America had seen it. That's right. And <laughs> rather brief with your comments today. Very, very, very to the point. Well, you, you know what happened? I can explain this. Earlier today, I really like hurt my shoulder and my knee when I threw myself down the stairs upon hearing that Howard Finkel got elected into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> oh, no, well, first of all, I have to say, uh, Lavi Margolin, who put out the great book earlier this year, Trump Mania, and is a great friend of the show, and does really cool stuff. If anyone pays attention to his posts, he does a lot of uh, features about the business of Ring of Honor and stuff. He he wrote this, and I thought it was so funny, because, uh, and we'll do a Hall of Fame special eventually, uh, probably in January, but the Observer Hall of Fame class this year is what? Jerry Jarrett, Gary Hart, Jimmy Hart, uh, Bill Apter, Howard Finkel... Yuji Nagata and La Parca. Is that, is that everyone? Am I getting everyone? You got all seven. Right. And Lavi Margola wrote, this must be the most unathletic class to ever get inducted into a wrestling <laughs> hall of fame. And I'm like, man, he's, he's actually right. If you think about it. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. So you got a problem with Finkel. I, I don't have a personal problem with Finkel. I mean, I grew up with the guy, but I, I mean, it, the, the only way, Someone could tell me I like I would really like to hear from someone who'd voted for Howard Finkel, because my guess is they would have two responses, either a why not or b you're taking this too seriously. It's like, look, someone's got to take a Hall of Fame seriously. I love Hall of Fames. I love the baseball Hall of Fame, football, wrestling. And this, you know, today is just really disappointing. Mm. I'm I'm a fan of I'm a fan of Howard Finkel, big fan of Howard Finkel, but. The same kind of thing, and I don't pay that much attention to who, who, who gets in. I certainly don't don't have a vote. But when I heard that, I thought, really? <laughs> I mean, he's good, and he absolutely belongs in the WWE Hall of Fame, which he's in. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I look at it, I mean, I can't believe you guys are focusing on Finkel. It's after, after is the one that I looked at and said, come on, that's ridiculous. Really? Hmm. Stanley, wow, you if know Stanley what? Weston's on the ballot and he doesn't get in, how do you put Bill Apter in? Why? Because he was on TV? That's probably why. No, it's almost <laughs> like a, a race car driver. After is driving the car, Weston owns owns the car, but the driver is the one who gets in the Hall of Fame. But but again, it's just because he was on TV, because if we're going based on that, why isn't Craig Peters in the Hall of Fame? Wasn't he really the one driving the, the race car? No, it was after, man. Was it after? Yeah. Peters didn't even come in until like 81, 82, I want to say. All right. Well, yeah. And everyone else from that group of magazines eventually faded uh, after has stayed in the wrestling business or whether it's the bill after business or whatever you want to call it uh, forever. <laughs> I just think it's ridiculous. And again, nothing personal against bill after, but here's my hall of fame ballot, by the way, real quick. 
Wild Bull Curry, who didn't get in, Sputnik Monroe, who didn't get in, Enrique Torres, who didn't get in, the Junkyard Dog, who didn't get in, Sergeant Slaughter, who didn't get in, Bill Goldberg, who didn't get in, Akira Taui, didn't get in, <laughs> Yoshiaki Fujiwara, didn't get in, Big is- Daddy, of course, didn't get in, and I gave him my vote this year and he didn't get in, and then for non-wrestlers, Don Owen, who didn't get in, and Jimmy Hart and Jerry Jarrett, who did. That's the thing. Like, I look at all the names who didn't get in this year, and then Bill After did? Ah, I... It's starting to sound like, for fans of old old school comedy, it's starting to sound like a Red Buttons routine. You know? <laughs> Big Daddy, never got a dinner. <laughs> do you have a problem with uh, Jimmy Lennon being in the Observer Hall of Fame, John? Is he uh, in? Do I have a problem with it? I wouldn't have voted for him. He's in. Um, he is in, yes. But I mean, look, I look at the bright side when it comes to Finkel. Like, this kind of opens the door for Rhubarb Jones. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a good reference there. I used to like Rhubarb Jones. There was something so better. Yeah, he had a good energy. He was better than, what was it, Tony Chillum? Was that his name? Tony Gillum. That was his name. Tony Gillum. Oh, he was not my favorite. And uh, they had Gary Capetta, him, and Rhubarb Jones. They had three different ring announcers. When I was but I don't. Pro- go ahead. No, you go ahead. I don't believe the thing where people say, Oh, I can't believe they they put Howard Finkel in and uh, Dick Murdoch isn't in or, or Sergeant Slaughter isn't in. Because I don't think anybody voting really says, you know, well, no, I guess so. I, if they, they're saying I have to give my votes to, to a finite number of people, is that how it works? Because, I mean, when you look at, at Howard, if you think he belongs in, it's only due to his ring announcing and, and tenure as a as a as a long, uh, a long tenured employee of the WWF, uh, they're not, you know, they're not, com- they're not using the same criteria they use to decide for or against Sergeant Slaughter. Right, but still, but, I could be mad about it. That, that's true, yeah, Scott. But at the same time, I mean, it, it's almost like when they vote umpires into the Baseball Hall of Fame. No one's going to see the umpire. You know, yeah. you, you definitely have to have guys like. Valentine, Morocco, Slaughter, et cetera, in certainly before Howard Finkel. I guess, yeah. Maybe Howard Finkel is in the Observer celebrity wing. <laughs> what's, what's, what do you think is the worst decision, John? Howard Finkel into the Observer Hall of Fame or Harold Baines into the MLB Hall of Fame? Uh, though those guys should be drinking champagne together tonight, <laughs> for sure. Howard, Howard uh, I mean, how... Harold Baines, my God, got like 4% of the regular vote, and then 14 idiots decide, nope, we're putting them in. Well, it's one of those things you learn in life. There's a lot of idiots out there, (laughs) and sometimes they get to (laughs) vote for things. But hold on. On this topic, guys, let me add someone to the call. I think this would be the perfect person to add right now. And uh, if I can find his name, there it is. I'm adding him, and uh, hopefully he'll be picking up the phone momentarily. Let's see how many rings it takes. Let's see if we even hear a ring. So far, nothing. And we wait. (laughs) Any more red buttons jokes? (laughs) Yeah, what were you guys talking about before you buzzed me in? There he is. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Holiday Star Wars. Howard Baum. Oh, Star Wars. (laughs) Look at those Star Wars. You're the perfect person to add right now because John, John McAdams on the line and so is Scott Cornish. And the three of us were discussing Howard Finkel getting into the Observer ah. Hall of Fame. So you're a Howard. What are your thoughts on this? 
Um, well, you know, there's a great lineage in history regarding the Howards in the wrestling business. You have your Howard Baum, you have your Howard Brody. Mo Howard. And that concludes our lesson on great <laughs> Howards in the world of wrestling. Well, you know, I saw a little hubbub on the internet today about Dave Meltzer's Observer um, uh, Hall of Fame. And in gathering my own thoughts, this is the conclusion that I came to, which is if you're going to have a Hall of Fame, what are the actual um, criteria? What are the actual standards? Right. What are the actual because you can't say WWE is not a right uh, correct Hall of Fame, or Dave's is not a right Hall of Fame, or Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame is not, even though they seem to be sticking more to the traditional worker, etc. But my criteria in thinking about this long and hard, praying on it, if you will, is, um, you know, it's like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's like just by saying the name of the artist, you know in your heart if that person belongs in the Hall of Fame or not. Like Aretha Franklin, sure. Hoobastank, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so, in wrestling, yeah, I mean, give me any name, and I can tell you. I mean, it's not. I mean, to me, I think that you have to. Um, first of all, a ring announcer is the easiest fucking job in the entire profession of professional wrestling. There is no easier job. Not photographer, certainly not ring boy. The easiest thing in the world, if you can speak, you can be a ring announcer. So I don't get all the hubbub for Howard Finkel. He was there to announce many legendary moments. I met him. He's a fine fellow. Very nice guy. Um, very, very nice guy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But in your heart, when you hear a name, you know if they belong in, profession, in the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. doesn't matter if it's Vince's or Dave's. Fabulous Moolah. Guaranteed in. You know that name. The public knows that name. It's performance over a long period of time. And basically, you know, the kids growing up today, that they think that Hall and Nash are Hall of Famers. So... It's whoever was cool when you were 10 or whoever was there before you got there is in the Hall of Fame. So if they can put Vince's chauffeur in the Hall of Fame, they could certainly put Howard Finkel in there because it's all, it's all like, are you something in the wrestling business? To me, the litmus test like Dave's is, is Dick Murdoch, which is an easy yes. Of course, Dick Murdoch belongs in the Hall of Fame. He's a professional wrestler. To me, if you want to be... In the Hall of Fame, you have to be one of those people that is it, you live, eat, sleep, breathe professional wrestling. Dick Murdoch is certainly that. I don't know what the criteria is for uh, the Observer Awards because they seem so Byzantine. It's like a maze that you have to work out. Oh, he drew from 73 to 84, but that was in a smaller market in, in Chicago, Mexico. It's if over a period of time you've accomplished enough. Like if you have a great two-year run like Goldberg, I would say no. He's not a wrestling person. He had a very quick, brief run. I don't think those bright flames necessarily belong in the Hall of Fame. But Pompero Furpo, certainly. Like any name that you saw on a repeated basis – they belong in the Hall of Fame because they dedicated their lives well, to being professional see, wrestlers. But I, I hate that argument. I, I've had, had that discussion with other people because then you open the door to – if it's really literally anyone who got on in a ring, anyone who got on camera, anyone who was a professional wrestler, that opens the door for every idiot. That opens the door for everyone who was a <laughs> minor star, everyone who was a But over time – but to be a player over time, 
I mean, not just once, not just for five years, but multiple territories. I think the multiple territory argument is one of the prime um, factors in this contest because, okay, if you're over in one place, except for Memphis, of course, because everybody that was over there was over for 45 years. I mean, I'm but, one of them um, Byzantine dudes you were talking about. Like, I'm, I'm like right. Brian. But this is this is very important, okay? By the time this comes out, the Stick to Wrestling that we recorded last night will also be available, and there is a Jerry Aldini reference. <laughs> well, being I never heard of him, so that's an instant. You, you were just doing him, dude. Star Wars. <laughs> that's him. Oh, oh, I never knew his name. I thought it was the Lounge Singer. <laughs> I always called it the Lounge Singer. I didn't know he had an actual name. I, I've got a big Excuse. clump of my actual hair that I pulled out in my hand, Howard. You gotta Excuse stop. You gotta you gotta me. take it easy. You've so far fallen down the stairs, hurt your shoulder and your knee, and now you're pulling your hair out of your head. <laughs> so wrestling does to me, man. Well, hey, let me ask Howard about the other one we were just discussing. And guys, feel free to opine as he uh gives his thoughts. Uh Howard, what are your thoughts on Bill Apter in the Hall of Fame? Of course, he's a legend. Bill After, George Napolitano, give it to him. If you were going to give it to two magazine guys, they would be the guys, After and Napolitano. It is called the After Mags. If, if it was called the Bound Mags for the, for the last 50 years, I'd certainly want my place in the Hall of Fame. You're synonymous with the business. Bill After is synonymous with the business. He devoted his life to it. He's respected by all. Just by the name. Just by the name, you know if somebody has given their life to wrestling or not, and that's what it's all about. If I have they accomplished it. something, and have they accomplished something in front of a large number of people for a, for a long amount of time? That's like my criteria. Like, are they, you know, are they cemented? Not just one good run, not just here or there, not a good worker, not a good carpenter, not a good jobber, not a, one of the boys, but somebody who really was over made an impact over a period of time in a variety of promotions and who has a name that would have some mainstream crossover. And also how can any wrestling fans say this guy doesn't belong? How about like uh, my litmus test would be Bugsy McGraw. There's a guy on the fence. Like I think the hall of fame should fall on either side of Bugsy McGraw. Here's a guy who's been in the business since like the late sixties had numerous runs, wrestled Bruno San Martino, Popped huge houses in 1980 for his turn, but was also known as a Curly-esque comedy figure. And, uh, you know, it depends when you came in on the career of Bugsy McGraw, but he devoted his life to it. Here's how I look at it. The Hall of Fame, any Hall of Fame really, is supposed to be the highest honor one can bestow upon a, a wrestler, a baseball player, whatever. And if you let every, if you honor everyone, you lose the ability to honor anyone. Um, I, I mean, agree. The, the analogy I can use: you go into the Boston Garden, and wow, Larry Bird's number has been retired. And then right next to it, there's a guy named Satch Sanders who was around in the '70s that no one would know who he is if they didn't just you know go crazy and retire his number for no reason. You have to have you have to be able to honor your Larry Birds, your Bill Russells, etc. I totally agree with that. I think you have to be at a certain level or status. Um, you can't just because somebody is like you know Mike George is is he in the Hall of Fame? Devoted his life to it. Been around since the 70s, Central States legend, but is he a Hall of, a Hall of Famer? 
I'd probably say no. Now that I'm now that I'm saying that, but <laughs> it's not um, probably I mean, no on Mike George. But is it okay? But is it only? But is it only reserved for the, the tippity top upper tier guys? Because then it would be over. There would be no more inductions. I don't know about that because the wrestling business is is still alive and well, and we're still creating more legends. Well, if you're going to do that, I would say pre-84 and post-84. I think it's two different businesses. Up till 84, it was professional wrestling. From 84 on, it was sports entertainment or what was trying to become sports entertainment. And I think it's two completely different criteria. I think you need, to have, a, you're I, let you, in... you need to have a different cutoff too, Howard. I agree with you on 84 before and after, but I think you need one before 84 even to cut off, let's say, I don't know, like, you know, there's no specific year I could I could think of that would be the perfect year, but you need something that separates the guys from the 50s and early 60s from the guys who came up right. in the early 70s. Well, you know something interesting? When it comes to talking about decades, right, they talk about 60s is flower power and 70s was the me generation. Um, but if you really look at it, the up till 1974 was kind of like the 60s continued and up till 1983 it was kind of like the 70s continued it's like it didn't just begin um what the 80s was known for did not begin in 1980 1980 was for all intents and purposes 1978 a continuation there Ryan. you still had a little disco you still had a little hard rock um by 84 you know you like, got, you like hip-hop yeah yeah, you see, but hip hop didn't come into fruition until like, you know, early 90s and all that stuff. That's when it flourished, but it was certainly around before then. So I think instead of, I think it's a misnomer to say, oh, the 60s, because 1962 was 1955 for all intents and purposes. So really the decades change halfway through the decade. So yes, the beauty of it was that I started watching and attending in 74, 75. And so that was kind of at the tail end of the guys from the 50s, 60s dying out, but they were still around and their presence was felt. So in the early 80s, you could still see a star from the 70s who was now jerking the curtain or working indies, but he was still around because he was already there. And it's like, yeah, it's the 80s now, but Butcher Vashon is still around. You know what I mean? <laughs> um... So, yeah, I see what you're saying by that. Um, but I still think even if you're going to go decade by decade, let's say 60s, 70s, 80s, and then your new 84 on, still it was professional wrestling versus sports entertainment. Because how could, in what Hall of Fame is Trish Stratus in the same business as Penny Banner? You know what I mean? They're both equally qualified. They both worked hard completely different job uh, scenario for both yeah, of but you, you take hey, who's got their TV? Who's got their TV on in the background? Not me. Oh, it might be Isaac Hayes. Let me, let me, <laughs> let me, Isaac, let me adjust that. Let me adjust that for you and see if okay. that works. Thank you. And right now we have an unprofessional moment here on the show. Howard Baum. I had, um, <laughs> I just wanted to say I had Bill Apter down as an easy in for the Observer Hall of Fame. But then I docked him a few points for that uh, okay. Eddie Gilbert Hawaii joke. <laughs> he told that <laughs> joke every single year. That, that knocked him out, in my estimation. Well, Howard, let me let me bring this up because I, I feel really unfortunate about it. Uh, I shouldn't say unfortunate. I feel really bad about it 
But when I heard Raul Mata died earlier today, my first thought was, I should have never left Los Angeles, Raul Mata. Uh, so what do you, you got to see him in Florida. Tell me about Ra- Raul Mata in Florida. Well, this is like kind of perfect timing because for a real wrestling fan, I think Raul Mata would be in your Hall of Fame if you understood what a real wrestler was. Um, but then again, by the same token, if you were in one of the, I mean, he only worked like Florida, Texas, and LA. And he's one of those guys that I feel uniquely qualified to speak about, even though I haven't really spoken to him at length, but I've been around him a lot. And the thing about a long career around the periphery of wrestling like I've had is that it's funny, like certain people will pop in and first you see them as a fan, then you meet them as a photographer, then you meet them like on the same card. Um, and the thing is, Raul Mata, I knew he was a big name. Uh, like when I started watching in Florida in 1980, he was jerking the curtain and he was booked just like Don Serrano was, which was like first two or three matches and you know, he's going to lose, but there was something about him that you knew he was capable of so much more. And I think maybe he just wasn't big enough. Maybe he wasn't a good enough speaker to really get over in Florida or a territory like that. I think he had to be someplace where his ethnicity was going to get him over, hence Texas, L.A. So as a fan, reading the magazines in 74, 75, I see that he's the L.A. champion and all that stuff, and he's on top. But by the time you get to 1980 Florida, he's jerking the curtain with Don Serrano, and you could just tell Don Serrano was destined to be a jobber, and Roel Mata was so much more than that, but they were using him in that role. And... um Speaking from personal experience, you know, I could, his dedication to the sport is uh, undeniable because I saw him work a Rusty Brooks show at a Kiwanis club in Carroll City, Florida, probably 1987. Cyclone Negro and uh, the Great Malenko were also on that card. Wow. And I swear there had to be more. I was, um, Malenko was just reffing, but Cyclone was actually working. And I don't know, I don't know who promoted it, but Rusty was there, so it was probably a Rusty show. Rusty, Dr. Red Roberts, Norman Smiley. There were easily more workers on the show than fans. I don't know. I'm sure all of you have had this experience where you're like, why would they even put this show on? Why do they, why would they continue? But they did put on a full show. And Raul Mata worked Cyclone Negro in 1987. I don't know how old Cyclone was at that point, well into his 50s. I don't know how old Raul was, but to be, wrestling in a Kiwanis club in front of 20 people, if I'm being charitable, mm-hmm. that is devoting your life to professional wrestling. And I do and, know the, uh, the sponsor on that show was Absorbing Junior. <laughs> Actually, the dressing room did reek of it from time to time. You know, every re- that is the actual smell of the dressing room, Absorbing Junior, exactly. But uh, on a personal, I'm, I'm with John though. I'll get back to you in one second, Howard. I'm with John though about the Hall of Fame thing. Cause you brought it up again with Howard. To me, with baseball or anything, it's it should be a no brainer. You say Mickey Mantle, there's no question in mm-hmm. anyone's mind, Hall of Famer. You say Bill Mazarowski, and you go, well, he had that one big home run in the '60 World Series, and he was a good second baseman. But to me, that's where it's you know he's on the fence. That's the Dick Murdoch argument, or in your case, the Bugsy McGraw argument. And to me, with, right. the, with the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, because I do take it more serious than the other Hall of Fames, although I, I must admit there are some dumb fucking voters. When you see the breakdowns of, 
uh, you know, the historians versus the reporters versus the active wrestlers versus the retired wrestlers, you realize there's a lot of really stupid people out there who shouldn't have ballots because they're obviously not thoughtful. But to me, that's what it should be. I picked Sputnik Monroe, Bill Goldberg, Sergeant Slaughter, Junkyard Dog, for example. Those four guys to me are no brainers. They're no brainers. And, you know, that, that's to me what a Hall of Fame should be. But anyway, back to you and I should never have left LA Raul Mata. Okay, but was Goldberg not a flash in the pan? Because his magic only came once. It came in a limited form. You never saw him work long, great matches against... Uh, certainly, he didn't have any longevity. Um, he was just WWE champion like two years ago. Yeah, but... And I actually think that run helped... I actually think that run really helped his candidacy, to be very honest with you. I think his run in WCW alone merits Hall of Fame induction just because it is brief. It's relatively brief. He doesn't work long matches. He's very akin to Nikita Koloff. Short matches, show off what you could do, hide anything that he can't do, which they did until they stopped doing that, and that really hurt him. But you can't deny how big he was. You know, you can deny people getting over and say, hey, he wasn't that over. But when you're that big, when you cross over culturally at that point, to me, it's automatic. Automatic. And WWF or WWE blew it with him when they brought him in in 2003. That's them. He was over. They fucked it up. They brought him back for the Lesnar thing. That was my favorite thing WWE has done with the male division in the last several years. I thought that was brilliant the way they did it with him. And one of my favorite matches is Lesnar versus Goldberg the first uh, time after WrestleMania 10 or WrestleMania 20 when they had their first match when Goldberg came back. And I think it was maybe 90 seconds at the most. But it was perfect. It was exactly what it should have been. And the place went fucking nuts. I think go and, and also MOT. I think Goldberg should be in the Hall of Fame. Bill Goldberg, the Mark Fidrich of professional wrestling. Oh, come on. See, that's <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> that is not even fair to say that. Who, who, no, it isn't, but who it was would fun. Be the, who would be the Mark Fidrich? Now that I'm thinking about it, who would fit into that category one year that is just completely stellar and then nothing ever again? Oh, if that's what he means by Mark Fidrich, I'm with that 100%. I want to know who the Raleigh Fingers is of professional wrestling. That's the No, but, you know, I, that's what I say about Goldberg. If you want to put him in the Hall of Fame of uh, sports entertainment, I got no problem with that. But put him in the ring with Jack Briscoe, what's going to happen? He's not a professional wrestler. But what, like, what about- you could put Sting and Luger and Goldberg in your, in your sports entertainment Hall of Fame all day long. But wrestling, no. But what happens if we put Jack Briscoe in the ring in 95 or 2005 or 2015? Oh, he could I mean, adapt. You could, could you imagine Jack Briscoe and ECW taking on Kurt Angle or Taz? Yeah, that was my Briscoe first would thought. Be ama- yeah, it would have been like yeah, Kurt Angle. Yeah, come on, like man. Oh, Jack Briscoe? Oh, my God. I mean, I, I didn't well, even I appreciate Jack him Briscoe. I am not knocking Jack Briscoe, but Kurt Angle won a gold medal. That's kind of what got him going. No, but right. in terms of you know, in terms of how he would come in, I, 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 and that's how I took what you just said before. I think that if Jack Briscoe had debuted in '99, let's say, when Kurt Angle showed up, I think it would have been very similar in terms of his ability to quickly pick things up, even though it was a mm-hmm. different time period than he was there earlier. He was just such a natural in the ring from the very beginning, and he was so quick and he was so impressive. I think when I compare him to Kurt Angle, that's really the comparison. It's less about the collegiate wrestling background or anything. It's more about, I mean, even though that obviously plays a part in it, but it's more about if you drop them, if you drop either one of those guys, in, I think into any era of wrestling, they would have figured out how to do it better than anyone. Right. 
But if you drop a sports entertainer into wrestling, could they figure it out? That's why. That's where I'm calling no way in hell. Because if you take a real wrestler and put him into any situation, he could adapt. But if you take a sports entertainer and put him into professional wrestling, good luck to you, bub. But there's always been these special attractions and different characters. I mean, when people hold up Jack Briscoe, who is undeniably brilliant, but the people try to compare, well, who, who do you compare to him? Nobody. Uh, and it wouldn't have worked if everybody worked or was like Jack Briscoe or was at Jack Briscoe's level. Uh, the Sheik did pretty well during the Jack Briscoe era. Right, right. A wrestler. A wrestler. A wrestler. In, in, well, the Sheik? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely no, but he was a wrestler. Well, he was on, on the cover of the wrestling magazines. He uh, he owned a wrestling promotion. That that guy. I mean, come on, that is a wrestler. George Steele. That's a wrestler. What was the what the, the wrestler doesn't mean? Give me the Sheik's big three moves. Um, give me one his move. Hands give up me with razor mo- blades. Yeah, give me one move he did. <laughs> that's the point. Make sure his pencils are number two because there may be a test. <laughs> Man. No, but the point is that's wrestling. Mula, the Sheik, Pampero, Furpo, those are those are wrestling people. Like if it was a Hall of Fame of the Carnival Freak Show, you'd have Otis the Frog Boy, you'd have uh, Mimi Bejarano the Frog Lady, whatever the names are, you know. <laughs> like those are. You must have a lot of frogs down there. I mean, those are the wrestling people. Mimi Bejarano was actually a different name, and I'm not even getting her real name right either, but she was like the – she had a lot of hair on her face. The monkey girl. Yeah. You know, somewhere, somewhere out there, Professor monkey. Ouch, somewhere out there, Professor Ouch is pulling on his beard because he knows the true name of who I'm trying to say right now, and I can't think of it. He probably has her chained up in his store. I know. She's, she's <laughs> passed, unfortunately. It was the monkey girl something Bejano. That was her name. That was the reference I was going for, but nobody knows anyway. You could have let, let me get away with it. You could have let me get away with it, Brian. She, we could have called her the frog girl. It would have been over. But I think we're selling this generation of wrestlers a little bit short. I mean, some of the guys, I mean, they're all in tremendous shape, and almost all of them have, like, incredible legitimate uh, – amateur backgrounds in, in, in any kind, not just in wrestling, but in various sports where you didn't have that 40, 50 years ago, all of the See, time. Therein lies the paradox. The action and the athleticism is a thousand times more than it ever was back in the old days. I myself have been bored by a Jack Briscoe, Terry Funk, Dory Funk, any of the big names in the ring, working an arm, working a leg, working a headlock. And what the people do today is a thousand times better and more consistently athletic than any of my heroes ever did. However, they're not operating under the auspices of kayfabe, so it's kind of a whole different animal. Oh, sure it is. Yeah. But I, I mean, absolutely that's a, that's agree a technological development. That couldn't be there's helped. Nothing you can, you, there's nothing you can say to dispute that the action is easily a thousand times more than what it used to be. Used to be fat guy, but the thing is, it was they had the veil of kayfabe. So if if Steve Kern's going to work Don Morocco's arm for twenty minutes, they're both inhabiting their characters. But if um, Bailey and the New Day are working an arm or something, it's like okay, it's not the same. It's not the same thing. They're not operating under kayfabe, you know. No, I totally understand what you're saying. Brian, you might be a little bit young for this question, but I want to ask Scott and I want to ask Howard. 
when you guys were wrestling fans, you went to the matches, you knew this stuff wasn't real, right? Always. It was never even a question. Okay. Oh my God, this is, this is okay. Brilliant. I'm going somewhere with this. And by the so, way, me, me neither. Let me just throw that in to me neither. As soon as I discovered wrestling, my father insisted on telling me at every chance that it was fake. All right. Yeah, so yeah. we all went to the matches. How did we deal with knowing it was it was not a legitimate athletic contest, yet enjoying it anyway? I'm not asking this rhetorically. I'm actually interested right. in, in how you guys, you know, oh, because brilliant. I know what our rules are. Because you didn't know what was going to happen. You know, it's one thing if you don't, if you show up and you know the match is fake, but you don't know what the result's going to be. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, to me, I think that was a big part of it. I didn't know what was going to happen when Ric Flair and Hogan got in the ring at the Garden. I knew I had to be there. I knew I had to see what it was. I also knew that maybe they got along you know, in real life, but I really needed to see what was going to happen. It's To me, it's the same attitude as going to see a movie or anything, or even, yeah. even going to see a baseball game. I don't know what's going to happen at the baseball game. That's why I, you know I go where I watch it. If I knew what the result was, I probably wouldn't watch it. I'm not someone who could hear the result of a game and then go watch it on the DVR. I need to like see it before I hear anything about it. Hmm. You know, and I know that feeling that you were talking about. I would go to whatever little house show they were having out here, and I would, I would be like, "Oh my God, who's going to win, Johnny Rods or Johnny Rivera?" And I'm, I'm serious <laughs> when I say that. Yeah. And me and my friends had a rule: if wrestling was on, or if we were going to the arena, the rule was you had to turn your brain off and pretend it was real. I never even, I never even considered pretending that it that it was real, uh, but you could, even knowing what you knew, and I was never, never thought that there was anything real about it. I never had that uh, people praise the great ones as saying, you know, oh, that guy, you know, everybody would watch that stuff and they'd say, oh, this guy is, he's real. <laughs> I, <laughs> I never, never had that kind of thought, um, but I got caught up in it like you would get caught up in a movie or a, or a you know, or play or television show, you know, you you could go along for the ride. Um, maybe it's look, like what you were saying, but there was never any decision where I've just got to turn my brain off. And, and, and in that environment, there were certainly people that did believe and far from being foolish, that was so exciting to sit amongst true believers and see them mm -hmm. go nuts and see how uh, the, the best wrestlers uh, could could play them, you know, like a piano. Uh, that was all. That was all part of the uh, of the excitement and the and the spectacle of going to see a live event. Hey Scott, I wanted to ask you part. before, real quick, and then we'll go to you, Howard. Uh, on the uh -huh. topic of freak shows, our pal Jeff Krulik. What was the name of that film he did about? And I forget the guy's name. The Half Man, and, and I'm I'm not oh, yeah. I'm not calling a, a little person half man. Literally, this guy was a half man. He had no legs, and I don't even think he had a crotch. It was just uh, his he's from Baltimore. Uh, I don't know the name of his movie, but the man's name is Johnny Eck. That's right. That's Ooh, right. good one, good one. Yeah, yeah. He was. <laughs> How about Frank Lentini? You know what he was? He was known for. No. He had three legs and two peens. Frank Lentini uh, had lots yeah. of peeny. Yeah, Mr. You know, Ouch is going to love this episode. Professor Ouch. Right, right. There was a guy that used to work the sideshow. There was a guy that worked, used to work the sideshows. He had five peens. <laughs> he had what? He had five peens. <laughs> five peens, you ask, say? Yeah, ask me how his pants fit. Uh, how did his pants fit? 
like a glove. <laughs> Boy, he set that up, and I still didn't know where he was going. <laughs> ah, tremendous. I know. I had no idea. John, I'm so glad you asked this question because this is one of the things I came up with because I, ta- I tend to take a psychological look at wrestling and what my own motivations are and everything. And this is the conclusion that I came to. When I first started wrestling, it was 1974. I was eight years old. It was a feed from L.A. Uh, Olympic. And it was a big angle with Louis Tillette and Pac Song and Hollywood Blondes and Sir Oliver Humperdinck. A big bloody angle. And I think within the first four seconds of watching wrestling, my dad told me this isn't real, whatever. But I was fascinated by the larger-than-life aspect of it and these characters. And this... I can pinpoint my fascination with what exactly it is about wrestling. Never thought it was real. Never looked at it in those terms. Um, but the thing is, it's like, who are these guys? Where do they come from? How, what kind of lives must they live? These big, beefy guys, they look like they're in shape. They have a lifestyle that where they can get a tan. They all dye their hair blonde. They all have bandages on their head. And I just thought to myself, Whatever they're doing is certainly more exciting than what the average person is doing in America. And that, right there in a nutshell, is my fascination with professional wrestling. How these guys get to operate under the radar, do their own thing, be a star in their own world, yet completely unknown in the real world, and live these lives of sex, drugs, rock and roll while still looking good, looking cool, doing a cool thing, being on TV, traveling on the road all the time, and being known nationally to one group of people and being known not at all to another group of people. Yeah, I and mean, so, if, if you think about and, it... And my part B of this is, so, like, when you fell in love with wrestling, you had a thing, right? My part B of this, and then, John, you can continue the first part, blah, blah, blah. Okay, okay. my part B of this is... If you were 10 years old today, would you get into wrestling with the product that's being offered? And um, would your motivations for being into it be the same as what got you into it to begin with? Uh, Probably not. I mean, uh, to me, when I first started wrestling, watching wrestling, and I I was uh, 10 years old in 1975, there was just something really mysterious about it. Um, You know, how can this guy run around all day wearing a headdress? Or how can George the Animal Steel, you know, go about his (laughs) day-to-day life with Captain Luafano trying to, you know, and and what I was going to say was, you know, you buy magazines about wrestling, and still you don't know anything about these guys, and they don't certainly don't talk about it. Like every now and then, Bruno Sammartino would talk about being married and having kids, but he was the only one. So you had no idea, you know, where these guys came from. Do they have families? You have no idea, any idea, how much money they make, etc. It was all such a, an incredible mystery. And if you saw, like, Abdullah the Butcher in Japan, I'd think to myself as a 10-year-old kid, okay, he literally kills people and eats their flesh, because that's how he was portrayed in the magazines, yet he can do a contract negotiation going from J.J. Dillon to Gary Hart. Like, how, how I wondered about the behind-the-scenes machinations of these maniacs, the Sheik, Abdullah, someone needs to bring them in. And as a young kid, I was thinking, 
well, how do you contact? I mean, how does this work? He's clearly a maniac. He's clearly a murderer. How do you bring him into your territory? Like, how does this whole thing work? <laughs> you know? I, I totally know. I totally get what you're saying. And that was the, the whole capture your imagination thing that was out there, you know, before kayfabe was broken. And it kind of sucks. But you know what? By the time kayfabe was broken for me and I started getting the Observer, it was time. Because I, I don't think I would have been a wrestling fan for very much longer had I just, like, stayed in that kayfabe world. Yeah, that yeah. Kept, my, uh, kept my interest uh, going at a time when it was starting to starting to fade. But when, yeah, a when, lot of when, people uh, say that. There was when, a time uh, where it started hurting me, though. There was a time where, actually, I think I stopped being able to enjoy wrestling because I was too into the sheets. You know, I kind of had to take a step back and then reevaluate yeah. it, and then I could enjoy things again. But anyway, Scott, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's okay. But just bringing it up to, to current day and what you were originally asking about, if I were 10 years old now and I had access to MMA and video games and things like that, when I when MMA was getting really big and I'm not a fan of it at all, I looked at that and I said, I don't know how any kid would get into wrestling, <laughs> you know, pro wrestling, when they had access to all this other stuff that they have. Now. Yeah, that's true. That, because to me as a kid... I wanted the blow-off, which also came out of the carnival, by the way. And I wanted the blow-off, and the blow-off never came because it always ended up in a screw job or a DQ or a run-in, yeah. you know? And as a kid, I took them at face value. Like Dusty Rhodes said, anywhere, anytime, parking lot, whatever. But they didn't really do that. So everybody left alive after Wednesday night at the convention hall, and I'm like, well, there's no payoff. But I think that's what ushered in the harder era of wrestling, like the ECW, the extreme era. And there actually was a payoff in physical violence that was never seen in wrestling before. Now you're getting that payoff in athleticism. With MMA, you're getting the payoff in legit competition and violence. Um, but I think, you know, wrestling seems to attract a subculture of outcasts, outsider mentality. And I think with so many things to choose from today, I can't answer the question for myself. Would I be into today's wrestling? I don't think so. I think it would have been something else with, with so many options that are out there for freakishness and the, and not to mention that wrestling is not as freaky as it was in the seventies. You know, wrestling is not freaky anymore. Plus, it was it's easy to follow. You can't follow it. I mean, when I started watching, and again, I'm younger than you guys. I started watching really in 1989. You could follow what was happening. Anything you want to say negative about WWF at that time, it was coherent. You could actually understand why people didn't like each other and why they were feuding and what happened in the feud and how the feud ended and how the person yep. moved on to something else. Right. I started right. having trouble watching WCW in like 1990 and 1991 just because there were periods, you guys I'm sure remember, especially you, John, where from week to week, things changed, things weren't referenced, things happened for no reason, and it was hard to follow. And that kind of drew me away, uh, pushed me away from WCW for a bit. But I think that would hurt me nowadays, is the idea that if you started watching, if you just turned on Raw and said, I'm going to watch it, and then I'm going to watch it next week and the week after, it's not the same. It's three hours. It's too much. You don't get any squash matches. The announcers are fucking idiots, and they just yell at you about nonsense right. 
over and over again. There's no yeah. narrator for the show. There's no host for the program who, no matter what's going on, they are level-headed. They're able to tell you exactly what's going on. And you need that. You need that for a wrestling program. You need to be able to follow what is happening to get hooked. And that's why right, right now the WWE has two major problems. One, they're fucking hemorrhaging fans. There are less fans watching than ever before. There are less fans attending than ever before. The fans who attend will spend more money than they ever did, but there are less of them. And the other thing is they are not as good as they used to be. And this is an industry-wide problem at getting new fans. You know, that's the other thing. You can, you, when you look at the demographics of Raw, it's you guys. You know, it's not like teenagers. It's guys like between the age of like 45 and 60. Like that's the audience mm -hmm. watching Raw. It's not kids. Right. So, mm -hmm. it, so the whole thing, uh, the whole, um, I think the whole concept is kind of outdated and needs to reinvent itself, which they tried to do with sports entertainment. But I think that it just mm, exacerbated the situation. If I can opine, my opinion <laughs> is that wrestling now is an opportunity for young, hot, fit people to go out there and act cool. Nobody shows their asses. You don't have beasts anymore. You don't have people willing to be committed to their character and not be on Instagram. It's all about hot people, males and females, thanking their opponents, looking good, doing the move of the week, ripping off the hot moves from New Japan or wherever they may come from. And... No you one's natural. No that. one's fucking real. I mean, that's everyone goes out right. on the little stage and does their pose and, you know, waits for their music and runs down to the ring. No one feels real. You watch Georgia Championship mm -hmm. Wrestling at its worst moments in 1983. Yeah. And you watch those promos. You believe Buzz Sawyer. You believe mm -hmm. Ole Anderson. You believe, well, Paul Allen was a bit wacky, but you know what I mean? They're believable in and of themselves. You can believe mm -hmm. that these are real people that you may run into in a bar and you may not want to run into them. You don't get that nowadays. Everyone is some like fantasy performer from some pseudo entertainment world that doesn't fucking exist. Mm-hmm. Or they're so cool that they don't want to be the true heel. They want to say the funny remark like Austin Aries on Ring Warriors or The Miz or any hot girl in WWE. You don't know if they're heel or face because they have all the best lines and they look great. Mm. You know? It's been that way for it's a while. Yeah. Well, definitely, definitely, but uh, like by for a that while, certainly I'm wasn't the way to get it. Years. Mike Gra Mike Graham didn't come out there and deliver sly lines to get over on Rod Bass, you know. Like Kendo Nagasaki didn't try to act cool in his feud with Brian Blair, you know. It's two different worlds. You're talking about people trying to be Instagram cool now, and everybody looks great now, and everybody is a way better athlete. I'll give you that, but that's why there's no emotion and heat because those people who look like Killer Carl Cox and Dick Murdoch and Terry Taylor and whatever role they were playing, Terry Taylor, it was real. You look at Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, you want to see three of the worst interviews you've ever seen in your life. Mike Rotundo, Tim Horner, Kelly Kaninsky, those three guys <laughs> together could not put a promo together if there was $10 million of a lead. But you didn't doubt that they were amateur wrestlers who were there for a reason, who were trying their hardest, dadgummit. You know, and that's the whole paradigm shift that has happened in wrestling. And that's why I say, take your Hall of Fame, but make it. You've got a professional wrestling Hall of Fame. 
and you have got a sports entertainer Hall of Fame. Because the reasons to get into wrestling now are different than they were before. Now it's like a whole mainstream thing. Like I can parlay this into acting, whatever, and I just want to look hot. Before it was like, I'll travel the roads for 20 bucks. No, I mean, the guys who are just starting out are, are, are doing that today, unfortunately. But let me ask you guys a question. Um, when was the last time that you were a regular watcher of the WWE product, like Raw SmackDown? Right now. Okay. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, it, not, not, not eyes glued, not sitting there saying, oh, I can't wait for next week's show. Nothing like that. But it, you know, if I'm if I'm near my computer, I watch it on. <laughs> if I'm near my computer, it when it's on, I'll watch it, and I and I actually look forward to having the network. I actually look forward to Wednesday because I like watching NXT. I like watching NXT UK, and if I'm still awake, <laughs> then I even will watch two o five. And I, I I don't know who 605 else. Six o five is better. Yeah, that's right. But um, but uh, they're 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 you know it's all their product. I love how people try to make like it's a different company. Oh, NXT, that's really something special. That doesn't you know what happens <laughs> when they get to the main roster? Uh, nothing. Yeah, it's, it's it's the same. You know, it's not exactly the same show, but that NXT show is as good or better than most of the things I used to watch. You know over the years coming up, nothing su- super white hot in terms of uh, heat or anything like that. That That's sort of a, but there's always something worth watching, at least on that show. And Raw, I'll stick with it. Uh, keep it on in the background. But a, reg- a regular viewer, yeah, I guess I'm a regular viewer right now. All right, that's cool. How about you, Brian? And I'm not going to tell you it's it's better better than than what I remember, but you and I grew up watching a, a dull TV show. Yes, sir. WWF TV show, but something grabbed you. What was it? Something that made you say, I can't wait for this dull show to be on again next week. <laughs> yeah. Well, you want totally. a window into that world. You're grasping at crumbs. You want yeah. to see any kind of hint at like what's really going on. Like in the, I guess it was the 80s, and I would go to a, like an independent show, and you would see the same things happening on an independent show that happened in a real show, you know, like a major show. Um, and then you'd put two and two together, like, oh, I see what's going on here, and this is the same thing that's going on there. You, anything, you know, young people have no perception of what it's like to live in a world where you can't communicate one-on-one with your biggest celebrity crush. Back in the day, you had zero communication with anybody in any of the performing arts, and the nearest you were going to get was literally the Bill After magazines telling you what these guys were like and what was going on. And then came the sheets, of course. Now it's all wide open. Say whatever the fuck you want to whoever. I saw a thing today with Chris Jericho was trying to do something. Somebody goes, hey, your hair's looking great. Did you get the plugs or what? <laughs> like, that's like, I mean, let me contact Henry yeah. Kissinger and say, hey, you're looking a little fat, buddy. Yeah. Like, what? People need to shut the fuck up. Yeah. These fans but, you know, better. by the same token, if I was famous, I would, not, I would do the Jimmy Page routine. I'd be off the internet. 
and I'd play the mysterious Dracula gimmick. Like, try to get me. It would make you... I'm surprised nobody has figured this out. Like, don't make yourself available. Don't do all that stuff. And you'd build a mystery around you. Nobody could get an interview with him. Who is this guy? And when he, could, when he came into your area, he would actually have an aura of mystery about him, which is what the entire business had before. The entire business was cloaked in this aura of mystery, and that aura of mystery's name was K Fabe. Once you took that out, you're talking about a bunch of guys who are all friends, who are congratulating each other on Instagram, trying to look cool. Hey guys, I'm going to add someone real quick while you guys are uh, continuing to debate this. So, uh, actually, well, let me ask. I think John did ask me before. So, before I do this, because I'll be away for a second while I do it, let me answer John's question. I have not been a regular Raw watcher in many years, although there are times around WrestleMania usually where I will tune in a little bit just to see what's happening. I usually watch the Raw after WrestleMania. That's the one Raw every year I usually do watch. SmackDown, I have not been a regular viewer of uh, really ever. I haven't had really that much of an interest in it, even though I hear good things. I just, I hate their presentation. I hate their commentators. I hate the fact, mm-hmm. like Howard said, yeah. I want I want wrestlers to be bigger than life. You know, I've been watching Mid-South Wrestling every week for the Mid-South Wrestling Television Re- Review Podcast I do with Mike Mills. And it's like, you watch this, and you just watch the reaction to the dog or Carl Cox or Murdoch or Paul Orndorff or Ernie Ladd, and just everyone seems bigger than life. Bi- mm-hmm. Like a big star. Oh, fuck. And, and I agree with Howard. I think that's a major thing, not just with, with wrestling. I think just in general, I think there is something to be said for a good social media strategy. I think it's almost as, it's equally as valuable to the right person to have mystique and just not say anything. Wait till you're on TV again the next week. Make them wonder what you're going to say. Make them wonder totally. who you're with, who you're married to, who you're fucking, where you live, how you spend your money. Right. Have, make them wonder everything. Don't send out cutesy little Instagrams and tweets and everything. Right. There needs to be mystique, and I think uh, that's a big deal there. And uh, in terms of NXT, that's probably the one promotion in the last several years, John, I could say at, a, at, at various points, I was watching regularly, um, but... I haven't watched it regularly in a long time. I haven't watched even the last few takeovers. Honestly, after after the revival left, I lost a lot of interest in NXT just because that was what I liked. Classic good tag team wrestling. And then they got sent up to the main, main roster and wasted. So it kind of really uh, uh, took a lot away from me. I, I didn't like the Gargano Ciampa stuff as much as everyone else. I thought it was great stuff. But after a while, I thought it was just, it's, it just. Nothing feels natural. It just seems like they're trying to get as much shit in. And I, I don't like the idea of like doing all this shit and then getting back in the ring. And just, it just seems like everything's too much. Everyone's facial expressions are bad. Everyone has ridiculous <laughs> facial expressions that are just unbelievable. You know, I hate my, one of the things I hate the most is when the tr- guy goes for the pin and it's two and a half and the guy kicks out and then the guy backs up to the ropes and his eyes get wide and he can't believe what just happened. It's the stupidest (laughs) fucking thing and there's so much stupid shit. Um, But listen, when Arcadian Vanguard Championship Wrestling starts up, we will crush all these other suckers. That is my pledge to you. But I'm going to add some more to this talk. Well, anyway, my story is that I stopped watching in 2002. I came back in 2006, 2007, and I recently stopped watching Raw and SmackDown, not even realizing I was doing it because there's and it's it's ironic. There's so much so much other good stuff on WWE Network that if I have time to watch wrestling, I'm not going to watch this past week's Raw. There's better yeah. stuff out there 
on that very network. But I do watch I do watch the pay per view specials on the network. Mm-hmm. They're usually good. I can't believe Brian doesn't watch Takeover. The Takeovers are awesome. Yeah, yeah. As a weekly TV show, I like that because it's really the nonsense is at a minimum. Um, the ridiculous outside the ring stuff. But everyone's uh, promos suck. I loved promos and angles as much as I loved good matches. See, yeah. that's the well, problem. That's, that's something else that those people are learning down there, supposedly. Oh, good luck getting a good promo now. My dad used to always fast forward through the promos, and this is like in the early 80s. I'm like, oh, my God, leave that. <laughs> you know? But now, like, you know, everyone, everybody has the same cadence when they talk, and I wonder where that comes from. Because they, they all say the same stuff. It doesn't matter who you are. And they get in the ring and they're like, um, what's the stuff they always say? It's like, um, it's all bad acting. Like, it's bad script writing. Yeah, it's yeah. Bad it's acting. like, yeah. it's like, it's like, but they all, they have these little, um, these little beats they do. They, they, they all repeat the same phrases and I can't, I'm not emotionally invested in it and I don't watch it. And my answer to the question is I tape it religiously. I DVR it and I don't watch it or anything until I look at the news for one or two days. I see if anyone has died or getting their head busted open or did a ridiculously botched spot. And I fast forward to that spot and I check it out and I delete it. I can't sit through that stuff to save my life. I don't don't tape anything, not, not just wrestling, anything like that, you know, but I don't watch TV all the way through, you know, I don't watch that. I don't stay up and watch Saturday Night Live anymore. But if the next day somebody says, "Oh, such this was really funny," here's here's the sketch. <laughs> so if somebody, yeah, everything's everything's on fast forward these days because. But, some, but if somebody puts up a single match, you know, I don't have to sit and I don't even have to seek out, uh, you know, what insanely great. You know what's wrong with an actual match, match? in Japan? It'll be on YouTube the next morning if I really want to see it. You know what's wrong with an actual match is, though, is that the way they have educated their fans is that you can see the work. Like, everyone's thinking, oh, that was that was good. That was uh, a good uh, yeah. spot or something. I mean, you could just see the work through everything, and there's none of the emotion and the heat and the hatred. And you need that from the promos. A guy has to go out there and say, listen, I'm going to get in there with you. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to leave with all the money, and that hooker wife of yours, I'm going to fuck her. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't <laughs> right. mean those exact words, but it has to be something like, Holy shit, I know this is fake, wow. but that guy can't get away with calling his wife a hooker. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? It has yeah. to be something like that, because then you watch it, and you may be able to lose yourself with emotion for a few seconds during the match, although that may be uh, not happening also. But listen, guys, added to the call right now, someone who has become very, very popular on the Super Podcast and with the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your friend and mine, Lou Kippelman. Lou, welcome to Holiday Star Wars. Yo, 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 what's up, what's up, what's up? <laughs> you Sweet Lou. We have to we're stop meeting to... like this, Lou. Lou oh, we're, not hey. saying, we're not saying boo. We're saying <laughs> Lou. <laughs> Lou. Lou, on the line with you right now is popular co-host Scott Cornish, as well as Howard Baum, and of course, the host of Stick to Wrestling, John McAdam. Yes, indeed. Wow. The <laughs> noted wrestling humorist. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and the 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 other denizens of uh of the super universe I've I've uh, interacted with. Lou, when did you first uh, get I... into wrestling? <laughs> well, 
yeah, it was like summer of 80, uh, summer of 84. Yeah. I was, uh, 12 years old, uh, right after sixth grade and just, you know, flipping through channels and up, I get the, uh, let's see channel 26 in San Francisco was mainly like foreign language, Asian language programming, but Fridays at five o'clock, they had AWA all-star wrestling. So I thought, well, you know, it's a, <laughs> you know, my parents were, you know, my family was down on, they're like, Oh, it's stupid. It's phony. It's mental masturbation. It's this, it's that. And then I turned it on and debuting was, uh, they called him King Kong Brody and, uh, he, you know, mowed down some schmo. And then later on, uh, it was the, uh, the high flyers. I forget if it was a tag team or just Greg working, but Brody came in and did the, I think he did a nut shot on Brunzel and then did the knee drop on Greg's leg. So it just set up. Brody stay with the, uh, Adnano Casey, that first stint in the AWA and yeah, Brody. Yeah. Brody was like my Johnny Valentine. He made me believe he was real. That's cool, man. So, you know, that's the thing you ever think about the idea that you were just a few years too late to see Roy Shire to see that promotion. I know. And, and here's the thing I, you know, um, in the seventies up until they, uh, yeah, Roy Shire stopped doing TV in 79, at least his own TV. And, um, he was on channel 44 KBHK, which was, uh, a pretty popular independent station through the whole seventies. And somehow I never came across it and I hadn't heard of the San Francisco territory. I mean, I didn't find out about it till probably, uh, mid nineties from like, oh, wow. uh, going to date myself, Usenet, rec.sport.pro-wrestling. <laughs> <Pro -dash> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, I'm like, wow, how can I be, you know, sentimental about something I missed the first time? So it's been in the intervening time. I, you know, I looked for info on stuff for the San Francisco territory, uh, found a few, you know, nuggets on YouTube, mainly, uh, Piper and Moondog main promos. And then the one, one with, you'll love this hour with Don Morocco, uh, running down, uh, Don Ho and Roy Shire as he starts with, <laughs> um, everybody know big Don likes to spend his money. And it just, I like that Morocco <laughs> imitation. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and then, and then, <laughs> and then he a, goes. It's a good carry heart. I don't know about Don mm. Morocco. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, um, yeah. And so he goes on and he, uh, he calls the promoter of the territory that honky Roy Shire. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> That's fucking classic. Yeah. And then later on, I mean, I didn't, you know, find out more until if you haven't picked it up, uh, if you could find out on eBay or, or some such, Rock Rims is called When It Was Big Time. Fantastic book. Yeah. And it's out of print. So it's hard to get now. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's, oh, that is exhaustive and comprehensive. Let me me just say something real quick. Uh, Rock Rims put out two really great books, and that San Francisco one is exceptional. And he also did the Rotten Ron Starr biography with Ron Starr. Mm -hmm. And I know he was working on a Los Angeles book, and I believe he's taking at least an extended break from doing any wrestling research or wrestling writing. I sincerely hope at some point he gets back into that. There needs to be a really good book on Southern California wrestling history. And I'm convinced based on the work he did for San Francisco, he's the guy who should be writing it. So I hope he, I really hope he does it. Absolutely. Well, when did you start going to the matches? Oh man. Uh, first match I attended in person. I'm going to say it was 87. It was uh WWF, it was a TV taping, I think, for Wrestling Challenge. Uh, What I recall from it was, um, this is around the time that uh, Randy Savage was uh, turning babyface. And his his TV match, he ended up, I mean, the crowd was, to use a term the kids use nowadays, lit as fuck. (laughs) And... And, you know, of course, he he goes up, does the big elbow off the top rope. Crowd pops. So he goes up to the top rope a second time. And people are like, dude, he's going to do it. All right. Second elbow drop from the top. And people are just losing their shit. And then he goes for the hat trick. So I I think in the final edit for TV, they uh, probably just showed the last elbow drop because there was only one. So I remember that. I also remember in the ring, they they were recording video for uh, Coco Beware's timeless classic pile drive wait a minute you were there that famous day where they did the pile driver video over and over and over again i've read about this you were there exactly it was you Uh, know they uh, so they had coco you know lip-syncing in the ring and then the thing gets on mic and said thank you we're going to do this one more time (laughs) and and you know and it just looped like that about i forget three four or five times oh my god wait with on the final take people like a bunch of kids somehow got over the barricades and stormed the ring and then then that was that and then i want to say the uh uh the uh the dark match main event was hogan against killer khan oh wow that probably was pretty good yeah so that would have been my first and then i saw um AWA, I think around 88, it's when uh, Ray Stevens and Wahoo were booking. And that was uh, that was a tour with where they did the uh, Bunkhouse Battle Royals. Okay. So I happened to see um, Stevens was in a six-man match uh, with Greg Gagne and third guy i forget but uh they were facing like i want to say like original midnight express and dick slater or something uh stevens got the pinfall and as far as i can as far as i know that i think that was stevens's last match at the cow palace oh, wow. uh, you got to attend it that's pretty cool yeah and then they had a uh hennig was the awa champion he defended against uh dj peterson our <laughs> Uh, the uh, corner turnbuckle came off and had a uh, improvised 
use that as a weapon. And then the uh, bunkhouse battle royal at the end, uh, 87-year-old Wahoo McDaniel uh, uh, emerged as the victor. I can't even imagine, to go back to what you were previously talking about, sitting through four hours of a wrestling (laughs) challenge taping of nothing but squash match after squash match with the threat of a Hogan match as the main event in four hours, and then having to sit through at least 15 to 20 minutes of Coco P. Ware singing <laughs> Pile Driver over and over again. Uh, that sounds but I, brutal. But I mean, that was nothing because uh, one of the Mean Gene interviews uh, was Ken Patera. <laughs> that, that era of Ken Patera was, is pretty rough. And that yeah, was brutal. And that was when he had the broken wrist and he was cutting a promo on the Bobby Heenan family. Uh, I forget if he didn't one take or two, but yeah. Oh, it's about as scintillating as you can expect. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lou, John asked a really interesting question before. So I think you kind of answered it uh, when talking about first discovering wrestling, but did you ever have a point when you watched wrestling when you didn't know it was fake? Huh. Um, I, you know, I, I went in with hearing everything and there were certain, there were certain points where, you know, my disbelief was suspended, you know, willingly or even unwillingly. Uh, you know, there was a definite difference between what the WWF was putting out there in 84, 85. And then that first time I saw worldwide wrestling, uh, when it came on in San Francisco in early 86, that was just, that was a whole new ball game. And that presentation and that style with, you know, somebody getting juice every TV and really, really you know, you know, that, that Jim Crockett style of wrestling, I was a convert almost immediately. That era of Jim Crockett will do it. I mean, that's the last era of Jim Crockett really, but (laughs) you know, you really got to see a lot of interesting things. Did you enjoy those AWA shows? I mean, we look back now and I think they seem a lot better than people thought they were at the time because the AWA was visibly a sinking ship, but did you enjoy those AWA shows? (sighs) Uh, it was okay. the attendance was so sparse that, you know, somewhere around the, you know, the middle of the show, me and my friend, uh, we, we bought tickets for like nosebleed and we ended up, you know, going all the way down to the lower bowl, you know, uh, maybe a few rows back or whatever. And nobody hassled us. And in fact, we, we may have been like the only couple of people in that section. So, you you know, it, it, um, to paraphrase Jim Cornette, it had that, you know, grisly stench of death. Um, <laughs> but so, so you know what you were getting. And I certainly wasn't there to, you know, see Mitch Snow and Tommy Jammer and whoever else, <laughs> but it was, it was Okay for what it was come on lou earthquake ferris <laughs> well <laughs> hayward california's own earthquake <laughs> ferris he was 
That was, I mean, they were they were pushing him on San Francisco TV <laughs> and the showboat tapings and that one live show from Oakland that they did on ESPN. Yeah. They had Earthquake Ferris because he was like, what, a gym teacher in Hayward, California, which is the, the East Bay of San Francisco, about 20 minutes south of Oakland. Wow. So, yeah. So, essentially, yeah. The a- AWA was trying to get that hometown pop with him. So, <laughs> that that was just not doing it. You know, it's funny growing up in around Boston. I mean, I would go to the shows at the Boston Garden. I would go to a lot of the spot shows around here, and they were always—I'm not going to say sold out, but they were always at least pretty close to it. And then in 1982, I went to a a Kowalski show. I think it was in Nashua. They had uh, Nashua, New Hampshire. They had Larry Zabisco against Bruno Sammartino or David Sammartino, and it literally had like 40 people there. And I was just shocked. I thought every time there was a wrestling event, guaranteed there was going to be a ton of people. So that was it was just a way eye-opener. Mm. I'm trying to think of the most sparsely attended wrestling show I've been to. And I'm going to guess it would be, hmm, actually, I'm not sure. I was going to say Dennis did a couple shows in the summertime in the middle of the day that drew a <laughs> little worse than other shows. Ugh. But I'm I'm not sure. It must be weird, though, sitting in one of those rooms. I see videos of it where there's like 30 people there. And these guys are in the ring and they're doing all their flips. (laughs) I just, I don't know. Oh, yeah. And especially a a barn like the Cow Palace. Yeah. Which had, you know, I think a capacity of around 16,000. The AWA show was probably the second lowest attendance for a wrestling show I saw there. I I had the good fortune of seeing the Ring of Honor show during that um, abortion of a convention uh, that, oh. that, was, that was held there. <laughs> that is still, I, I've said it before in the show, I'm going to stop you, Lou. My favorite anecdote, one of my favorite anecdotes, I remember the write-up in Brian Alvarez's Figure Four Weekly, which used to be a great newsletter. I don't know, he just decided he didn't want to do it anymore. But it used to be really, really funny and really, really good. And there was a line in there just about how all this chaos was happening. And then it said Stone Cold Steve Austin finally showed up and he was debriefed by Dr. Mike Lano. <laughs> and that was, of course, and it, it ended debriefed. up being, it ended up being reversed. But that was the day that Mike Lano, for at least a time, was banned for life from the Cow Palace for whatever his role <laughs> In that whole thing. Now, he wasn't the promoter. He wasn't the guy who ran off with the money. He wasn't the guy stiffing the wrestlers. But whatever Leno right. did pissed off the owner of the cow <laughs> oh, so much that she yeah. was like, I don't ever want to see you here ever again. Oh, my, oh my God. God. Yeah, you know, and he wasn't beating up security like the Ahawais back in the <laughs> 70s. Well, did what you, you go to the, oh, did go- you go to the convention, too? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Um, I made it to, like, two days of the convention. Oh. And, and, you know, I was, you know, following the online news and stuff. Uh, I made it for the, the latter two days of the convention and, oh my God, it was, yeah. Oh, he, he, uh, there was a certain pall over the whole <laughs> proceedings. And I mean, yeah, to the point where, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a, a pall over the proceedings, as opposed to the usual uh, atmosphere at a convention, watching these old guys sit around at card tables. 
<laughs> yeah. That's what you want. You big, you want a big Paul. That's what you're going for. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Anything, just anything particularly strange? Like I, I, I think I saw a report in the uh, in the Observer where this somebody somebody saw Jimmy Snooker like crying in a, in a hotel lobby. Oh my god. <laughs> oh shit. Okay, I did. Yeah, I saw Snooker. You know, and it was on the. The row where they had the the wrestlers doing the the signings and the photo ops, uh, yeah, it was no like that day I went there. Everybody was Virgil, essentially. Harley was twiddling his thumbs. And, I never heard of this. You make it sound like the scene in the wrestler where they're in some northeastern uh, yeah. Kiwanis club. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, that's what it was. Wow, and, that's sad. That's when you really know your place in the world when you're all broken down, sitting there in front of nobody. Can I can I yeah. say something, guys? You know, I've always heard this criticism of the wrestler, and I get it. And it's a real down movie, and. Darren Aronofsky's movies tend to be real downers. I mean, I actually don't like a lot of them just because they're so depressing. But I actually thought, and I know many, if not most of the people I, I'm friends with who I've talked to about this disagree with me, but when I first saw The Wrestler, I had been away from wrestling for many years, and I thought it rang true. It reminded me of totally that I saw in New Jersey. I mean, in where the wrestler takes place. And I was hanging out around Dennis Carluzzo shows. That's the, sh I mean, not like, you know, the fucking, uh, hardcore matches or anything, but everything else, it really rang true to me. I remember thinking like, wow, the Darren Aronofsky really got this. And then you hear all these other people say like, Oh, he, you know, he's tried to put a negative light on wrestling. It's nothing like that. Hey man, I've seen some of those shows in New Jersey where you have a bunch of guys sitting around a table and no one was there. There were plenty of them in the late 90s and early 2000s. So I thought that stuff actually really, really was yeah. very realistic. It should, have been an, it should have been a documentary. It was a thousand percent true to life. I've seen all that shit in real life. The scene where they're in the dressing room and he comes in and he gets just the right amount of respect, of respect from the unknown guys. Like, oh my God, he's here, but he's nobody now. And then the guy comes up and he's going to go... And he's like, okay, we're going to go boom, 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 go to the finish. I've seen that before my own eyes a thousand times. That could have been a documentary, the whole thing with the card table um, convention. And, the, you know, Terry Funk is a big um, proponent of what you were saying, which is he doesn't like that movie. He thinks it portrays everything in a bad light. And I think that he sees himself in that role. And... Um, I told him, and Howard Brody told him to his face, "That's not you. You're you're above that." But there are so many guys that this is. But I think Terry Funk saw himself in that, and he's very down on that movie. You know, like Johnny Valiant's in that movie. He plays one of the guys. I, he doesn't have like a, like a firm role or anything. He's I, I don't even think he's an extra. He's just kind of in in between, you know, having a featured role and being an extra. But he's one of the wrestlers, one of the older wrestlers at a table in that scene where there's that convention and no one's there. And I remember that specifically seeing that and being like, yeah, you know, like I've seen him at shit that's sparsely attended. Yeah. Like it makes sense. To mm -hmm. me. And, you know, I am in com complete well, agreement with you guys. I was with a group of people when I went to go see the wrestler, I expected to be to sit there and go, okay, that's bullshit. That's bullshit. Those words didn't come out of my mouth once that, that, that movie was so real. It was scary. Yeah. yeah. Terry Funk had to be consoled after seeing that movie. Me and Howard Brody were like, listen, this is not you. Don't take it personally. You're a legend. 
this is not you, but this is what happens to a lot of people. And he, Terry Funk saw himself in that. It's kind of like, I was just reading this thing where Joe Perry was talking about the first time Aerosmith saw Spinal Tap. And um, Steven Tyler was like, what is this? This is bullshit. Because he thought it was a documentary. <laughs> he thought it was real. It was too real for him. My you brother's know, like, what is this? They're, they're exposing us, you know? Yeah, my brother is a musician, and he says that everything that happened in Spinal Tap happened to him at one point. Everything. <laughs> hey, guys, I'm going to add another person because he keeps asking for the ETA, so I'm going to add him now, and uh, we'll get his opinion on various hot-button issues, I'm sure. Let me add this man. He should be on the standby right now. Mm. Let's see if he picks up. How you doing, wrestling fans? This is Dominic. Hello, Lucille. Are you a lesbian? Do you like to go to bed with women? McCall, Lucille. What's up, Bix? I have tribute to the troops on some band that I've never heard of and has mullets is playing. Is it is it current? I mean, or is it an old tribute? Do they still do tribute to the troops? I don't even know. Yeah. Oh yeah, this is this is the new one from Fort Hood. Oh. Okay. Cool. Hey, um, Bix, you know, you brought up Dominic there, and we may have to call him later on. Bix, after the last Super Podcast, Bix wrote to me, he's like, you picked the perfect day to call Dominic. And he really was in great form. I <laughs> 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 mean, sometimes he's not at that level. Yeah, Bix, is it sometimes where it's just bland? <laughs> or the message will cut off after like 30 seconds or stuff like that. <laughs> Bix. Hall of Fame thoughts, real quick. Well, we'll do a Hall of Fame special, but we talked a little bit about it earlier. Uh, I thought Bill After getting in was kind of ridiculous. And uh, the other guy, well, specifically John McAdam, and he tried to rile us all up to go on his side, had a problem with Howard Finkel getting in. What are your thoughts? I think After doesn't make sense just because if you listen to Bill, Bill's not a Hall of Famer. Bill's job description was not what people think it was. That's exactly was- right. That's exactly right. Thank you. He didn't have control really over. I mean, he was in an editorial position on some of the magazines at different times, but he was not the guy controlling the magazines. He was just the most visible member of the staff because he was the one going around the country and appearing on the TV. That's almost exactly what my argument is. Bix, you need to come on the show more often. Uh, Was he not a star maker, though? Did he not decide the front covers and favor Dusty and Superstar and Mill? Was he not a star maker? I think he was a star maker. I think he was. Are we allowed I to think... say star maker on the Arcadian Vanguard? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry. But I, don't think, I don't think there's another word to say in place of that. I think, no, I mean, I that's, think that's... that's an interesting thing. Bix, so going back to your thing, was Bill Apter a star maker there? Was he the guy actually picking the front covers to the best of your knowledge? He was. He did. Yeah. I don't know if he was picking the – because, I mean, the, the story we hear about – is the first PWI that he leveraged his friendships with Dusty and Mill Maskers to get them on the cover together. But I'm that's not bull. sure if it's necessarily bull. him picking them, because they had heat was the thing. Yeah, but I know, but that same picture was in the Kitzer magazines that, that George Napolitano took. So that's the thing. Really? Yeah. Okay. I don't think I realized that. Yeah. Well, you so, know, so that was not even told an after that, photo? told the story of that no, photo it ap- I'm book. saying that it was an after photo, but I don't think Bill After was the only one there taking the photo. Gotcha, it, gotcha. It's in the Kitzer gotcha. magazines, yeah. yeah. Well, because, you know, backstage, if somebody starts posing, all the photographers swarm around. And, like, I've gotten in on Dwayne Long's and Bill Otten's action many a time because they had to set up, um, 
you know, they had the background and the lighting and everything set up, and it was like, you know, it's fine because we're all friends. Um, but there's no doubt that Bill chose those covers. He chose to feature those guys. Mill was Mill was his favorite wrestler, and that's why he was on the cover so much. But who did he really make a star though, other than Luger? Who really was not already well, at that well, level? Well, I mean, at or near that level, everybody. Everybody okay, but to if, me, because he brought, anyone, that, he brought that world into my world about five, six, seven times a month. I didn't know who any of those guys were before Bill After introduced me to them. Right, exactly. I mean, from a cover POV, though, specifically, like, in terms of, like, the After favorites, you're Mil Moskers, Dusty, Lex Luger, um, Bruno, that type of thing. Yeah, well, hold, well. hold on, though, guys. Who wasn't going to appear on those covers that did because of Bill After? Like, you guys bring up Dusty and, and Mil Moskaris and, and whoever else. Those guys were guys who appeared on covers of magazines, not just the Stanley Weston magazines or the after mags, as we now commonly call them. It's not, I mean, if you want to say Lex Luger, that he picked them early and got them on a magazine cover early, you may have an argument there. But for the most part, all of those guys were going to, those, those are the guys on the cover of everyone's magazines. Granted, but it was not evenly distributed. If you look at the after magazines, it was Dusty, Superstar, Mill. Bruno. Bruno, yeah. Um, and very rarely it would be somebody else. And, well, where were uh, the magazines based out of? I'd love to know That's how that Waller issue of PWI Well, is Dusty wasn't based out of New York, but... He's working regularly-ish there, though. Ish. Ish, but he was on the cover a lot more than... Because they showed photos of Dusty in the after magazines from Florida, from Georgia, from Texas... I, I am in the firm belief that Aptor was a kingmaker and thus as responsible for the success of many careers as much as any of the promoters. Because back in the day, okay, granted, the same guys were on the magazines. There were only so many main eventers. But there were only so many promoters, and they pushed only so many people. And if Aptor wanted to downplay or upplay certain people, he could do it, and he did do it. And I call him a kingmaker. I think he's a kingmaker, just like Gordon Soley, just like any of the promoters. I wouldn't go that far, but he definitely had an influence. I mean, if you, if there was a wrestler who was coming up to the WWF from Mid-Atlantic or Florida, I knew who that wrestler was, unlike a wrestler maybe from Portland or the Chattanooga area. Bix, yeah, and that was the function of... Um... I think if you go with the idea that Jimmy Lennon is in from the first class, I think Howard Finkel has to be in. I think that's the problem with putting Howard Finkel in, because if you if you put Jimmy Lennon in, now Howard Finkel's in, who are the next ten guys in because of, you know they're riding on their ticket? But there's no one else that's in that like no one's uh, no one's asking for Tom Miller to be inducted. Even though I love uh, Tom Miller me, as a doctor, ring announcer. Dr. Tom Miller? Dr. Uh, sure. Truckin' Tom Miller. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm spearheading the Dave Penzer GoFundMe <laughs> to be nominated in 2019, so fuck uh, you guys. Did you say GoFundMe or go fuck yourself? I, I didn't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nobody's asking for that one guy from Class of the Champions 4 to be inducted, even though I still <laughs> love to know who he is. Which guy? Okay, if, if if Howard Finkel's in, why can't Lillian Garcia be in? Wait, hold on. Clash of the Champions 4. Was that the African-American ring announcer? Yes. 
Okay. My favorite is the which one was the one with Jack Reynolds ring announcing? Jack Reynolds because he was applying for Tony Schiavone's job and he had him ring announce and he has the thing from in front of him. And Kilos he's Russia, it. yeah, from Kilos Russia with a combined weight of 162 pounds, the Russian assassins. <laughs> it's one of the great moments. <laughs> oh man! When Reynolds worked for the IWA, yeah, he would always call Lars Anderson by the name that he had in the IWA, but he would call him Larry Heinemini. That's right. Instead of Heinemi, which was the name printed in front of him. <laughs> That's Clash of the Champions. <laughs> Clash of the Champions 5. So yes, yes. That's it. That would be a George Scott decision then, I would think. Yeah, well, think about it. George Scott needs to replace Tony Schiavone. He has to find someone. Jack Reynolds is the perfect candidate. Because he announced in 1975. <laughs> and it, well, he was, yeah. was he the original primetime guy with uh, Jesse Ventura? Yes. I think so, yeah. yeah. What happened with Jack Reynolds is they started that promotion on WPIX, um, the Pro Wrestling USA, Pro Wrestling and he USA. was on that. And then the next week, he was on Primetime Wrestling, which I thought was the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> Vince, that's the thing. I love the narrative they try to spin now. Like, no, Vince wasn't trying to put everyone else out of business, but he had a vision. And he, he didn't want to put people out of business, but he wanted the best people to work for him. And he took wrestling out of the smoky arenas, and he made it. Na- no, <laughs> it was the same arenas. In fact, it was the same building managers because he would bribe them or try to pay them or give them a cut of the TV show to get them to put his show there instead of the AWA or the NWA. And no, he deliberately tried to fuck with all of these promoters and put them out of business, specifically Vern Gagne and Jim Crockett Jr., who he had a personal distaste for. So, I mean, this whole narrative that like Vince wasn't actively trying to hurt and kill everyone else's company is bullshit. He didn't need Al Darusha. No. Yeah. But, but I, that wasn't I think, the point. I yeah. think he really, really exactly. liked Rod Trongard, though. <laughs> Man, <laughs> that was the best job in the world. If Vern hired you, you knew you were like six months away from getting six figures <laughs> from Vince McMahon. No, even better. Uh, why am I forgetting his name all of a sudden? The other AWA announcer that sounded like Trongard. Um, not Ken um, Resnick. Why am I forgetting his name all of a sudden? Ken Resnick? No. no, 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 no. He was the one that WWF hired twice. Why am I forgetting his name all of a sudden? What are you talking about? Mm. He was an AWA announcer? Yeah. Milton Bruskin? No, the one who looked kind of like Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> oh, uh, oh! Oh! Oh, Roger Kent. Yes! Yes! Uh, yes. Oh! Roger Kent! Yeah, WWE hired w- away twice! <laughs> <laughs> and he, yeah, he did the ring announcing for Starcade 85 in Atlanta, and I think he did some TBS segments, the ones that Bill Apter later did. The weird stuff hmm. is when you see Freddie Miller on WWF TV after the Georgia buyout and he's doing the local promos <laughs> and right. like his wig is misplaced and he's sweating because they must have so much lights on him. He just looks so uncomfortable and he's trying so hard to be positive and Freddie Miller like cheery, you know, like, right. hey, fan, like, you know, be there. Uh. <laughs> what I love That's about the Benedict. Freddie Miller thing what? was that he was he was in doing WWF stuff. I think just the local promos at the same time that he was working for Ann Gunkel. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. What were you going to say, Howard? I'm, I'm, I'm dying here. I'm that's curious. The, that's Benedict the Benedict Arnold, Arnold of professional wrestling. When he came out on Black Saturday, Black Friday, whatever it was, Black Saturday, right? Yeah, it wasn't Black Friday. Saturday. When he came out there and introduced <laughs> Vince, I'm like, he's like, hey, this is a new era in the world wrestling. wrestling. I'm like, oh, my God, no way. That, <laughs> uh, like, I wouldn't uh, have done that. That's uh, black, that was a, uncalled for. <laughs> what a like quizzling. They're going, oh, my God, they finally got to Freddie Miller. 
be there. Who remembers no, the, I main event? Was, I Who that remembers was the main event on the first uh, WWF show on TBS on Black Saturday? Big John Studd and Bobo Brazil. Right. Well, what perfect wow. match to get those Georgia fans excited about the new product than 55-year-old <laughs> Bobo Brazil and John Studd, who, very, very nice man by all accounts, horrible in the ring. Yeah. Did they show his manager, James Dudley, during that match? <laughs> 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 You know, but that goes back to what Brian was saying. They never Uh. utilized that incredibly valuable WTBS slot. They they just, you know, bought it from Ole for the sake of getting Ole off TV. Well, well, it was that plus. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. I I mean, it was part of a strategy to gobble up all the television because he would have a monopoly on cable television if he had WOR, WTBS, and USA, which he got. And then, of course, ESPN would jump into the fray in 85, but that was after he had already sold the time spot back, or not back, but he sold it to Crockett, which in effect killed Bill Watts' deal with Ted Turner, which was about to come to fruition. But there was also, he I mean, he tried to hire Ole, and I mean, that's one of the funniest stories of all time. He tried to hire Ole, and Ole told him to go fuck himself, and then <laughs> he, he goes and tries to do it again. He goes, Ole, I'd like you to meet my wife, Linda, and Ole says... Fuck you and fuck her. You know, right to his <laughs> face. So, Didn't he actually call her the c word too? I, I've heard that, but I haven't heard Oli actually say that. I don't. Actually, maybe I have now that I think about it. But uh, hold on, guys. Nah. I'm gonna I'm gonna add someone here because I don't know how much time he has tonight, and I know he's uh, having a rough time. Uh, hold on one second. Uh, hold on. That's usually my introduction. That's usually your introduction. <laughs> I'm having a hard time. I'm oh, by the way, too, we do know all need to thank Dylan Hales for being the one person to realize, hey, Jimmy Hart's not in the Hall of Fame. What do you mean? Because everyone just – everyone assumed Jimmy Hart was in in the first class, and every and just no one realized he didn't go in that year. Yeah. So he was never on the ballot until like three years ago when Dylan noticed an email announcer. Hey, guys, joining the call right now, your friend and mine, the golden boy, Jerry Gray. Jerry, how you feeling today, man? I'm the man that walks 30,000 feet barefooted on a barbed wire fence. I've been bad, been good, been to Hollywood, and I'm bad right now, brother. How you doing? Doing all right. Thanks for appearing on the show. We'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) No, no, no. No, no, no. Good stuff, man. How you doing tonight? Good to have you on the show. On the line with you right now, this is, I think, the most amount of people we've had on at one time on a Star Wars. Uh, In order, the noted humorist Scott Cornish, the host of Stick to Wrestling, John McAdam, Howard Baum, Lou Kippelman, the noted journalist, David Bixenspan, and myself. I don't think I'm leaving anyone else out. That's everyone on the call as of this very second. Wow. Okay. <laughs> you, had, you had the same now. reaction Jesse Ventura had when Andre challenged Hogan. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> My man right. is here. What do you say, Scott? My okay. man is here. Lou Kippelman. My man is here. vandal drummond isn't on there not yet not yet he's on the west coast i usually try to get the west coast guys on a little bit later just because they usually have more energy than the rest of us on the east coast are falling asleep (laughs) yeah really there you go hey uh jerry raul mata passed away today did you ever get to spend any time oh yeah Oh, yeah, a lot. Yeah, I, that's what I posted. He um, actually helped train me. J.J. Dillon had him uh, work out there at the the, the uh, snake pit there with me. And uh, yeah. I forget who else it was. But, yeah, he uh, he helped show me a lot of stuff. He was a really good guy. I used to make trips with him and uh, 
King Kong Tonga Ming, and he would he was a really this is how good of a guy he was. He used to give me they would like uh, a TV on Wednesdays uh, in uh, Tampa there at the Sportatorium. They would uh, have Miami that night, so sometimes they would need a you know somebody a replacement, and then they'd always ask Raul because he was the most experienced, and then he would tell them that he had to work and let me go in this place just because he knew that I needed to experience some money and everything, even though, you know, he could have had the, the shot, but he would always tell him that, Oh no, just send him. I can't do it just to be a good guy. You know? Yeah. He was a really nice guy. Showed me mm-hmm. a lot. Good guy. You know, Jerry, um, Roll was on the same card that we were on and I didn't even, we didn't even meet each other for like, I made my debut oh, in yeah. Lewiston in 89 on a Tyree pride card. And yeah, we just found out, point. Jerry and I, Jerry and I just found out right at the legendary yeah. John Boy Auditorium down there in downtown Cluiston. <laughs> and yeah. Jerry, tell me, was that not the greatest crowd? In 1989, the memo of kayfabe had not gotten to those people yet, and they all thought it was real, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I got to make my debut in front of a real crowd in 1989 where they bought it, and it was the experience of a lifetime. And this is part of what I that wanted to say first? about. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, I had my I girlfriend. I had my girlfriend yeah, Monique's no. tights and jacket. Uh-huh. It was like this green jacket, <laughs> and everybody was calling me Peter Pan. And so yeah. I didn't, you know, because I wasn't going to make a full-time profession out of this. But I got the gig, and uh-huh. um, I looked into getting some outfits made, a la JT Southern, like some spandex outfits. But it, there wasn't yeah. enough time or anything. So my girlfriend uh-huh. was kind of like a. Um, like she was into like Depeche Mode, it's what do you call it, like, like the gothic whole thing at the time. So yeah. I was 23 uh-huh. at the time, 1989, uh-huh. and um, so I'm there in my in my tights with the tassels hanging off the side and my Reeboks because I wasn't going to invest in any professional boots <laughs> until you know it wasn't going to be a career for me. It was just a dream yeah. come true. And yeah. Jerry knows the dressing room there. Everybody was milling around, and I had this ridiculous green jacket on that was my girlfriend's and so yeah. i saw Roel mata there and i didn't know anything about um the um what do you call it the etiquette of the dressing room or anything nobody told me anything i had they known tyree but... previously all of a sudden i'm working on the on the show half the guys uh-huh. i knew half the ones i didn't i didn't know to shake hands nothing nothing so i went up to yeah. Roel mata and i go hey hey Raul, you've been around <laughs> Is this outfit too ridiculous for me to go out there or what? Oh, and he's yeah. like, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. I don't know. I don't know if he cared or if he was ripping me or what, but he was nice to me at the time. And you oh, remember yeah, that dressing yeah. room. What happened was Jerry and I were talking about this. We worked yeah. the same card, but Jerry was late getting there. So we never yeah. met that yeah. night. And I don't think we ever met in real life to begin with, but no, that would have been our I chance. And I, and we too, both, oh man, that's too much. And we both yeah, remember that do, card. Yeah. It was Malia Hosaka, Big Jim Haley. Yeah. Um, there's this Denny other guy Brown that was there that I'm, yes, Denny I managed Brown. him. Okay. And I also managed this guy yeah. that I always want to call Del Apollo, but it wasn't Del Apollo. And I can't remember the guy's real name. He had a snake around his oh. neck. Oh. I he think was I like left, a Florida. Thing. Not Dale Vizi. Oh, I always want to call him either Dale Vizi or Dale Apollo, and it was neither of those. He had a snake around his neck that night, and every ten that. years I remember his name. I'm like, oh, there it is. But he was like a famous Florida oh. jobber. Oh, was know. it um 
Dale Vizzi's tag team partner oh. in The Hunters, Bob Brown? No, no. Not Bulldog Bob Brown, the other Bob Brown. Hey, guys, real no. quick. Hey, guys, real quick, because I believe he has to jump off in a second. John McAdam has to leave. So, again, we want to remind everyone, listen to his show. Stick to wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin, available at McAdamPod.com or wherever it is that you find your favorite podcast. But, John, any final things you want to say here this week? Uh, not really. Just thank you for having me on. Guys, thank you for making this a fun night for me. That is from the heart. This was a, a blast. And all of y'all and everyone listening, have a great holiday season. You too, man. Happy holidays to you and your family. You too, and John. we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks again, guys. Later. You got it. Really? Take it easy. Take man. care, man. Okay. Merry Christmas, yeah. John. I remember that night, uh, Howard, because I was trying to track Tyree down to get my money and didn't. I don't know if you really even I got paid. You know, that was my debut and he gave me some small amount of money and I go, you know what? I suck. (laughs) Save it for next time. And, and watch (laughs) me go. And I was better the next time. You remember Aaron Pryor, one of his guys? No, no, I didn't. I only worked for young, young black guy. And, uh, I potatoed him because I didn't know what I was doing. And he was, Plenty pissed off at me that night, but that was a great. I mean, we that was a great locker room. We had a good. um, That was a momentous evening. Did you work the night? I think the night before that, he had Okeechobee. Was you on that show too? Um, No, because was my debut. That was that was the whole debut. Oh, okay. Yeah, he had two shows in a row. How did you not meet Jerry if he was on the same card? (laughs) Well, he was late, and then then later, and then later in life, we were corresponding, and he was like, "Oh, I was at that show." I'm like, "Oh my god." Because I was weird. like, yeah. I was like Clark Kent that night. I was taking photos backstage, uh, and then when I go, when I, go, I would go out and work, and I was like yeah. Jimmy Hart. I would change outfits for every guy that I managed. That's, that's not Clark Kent. So, that's Mike Lano. When you're taking <laughs> photos, <laughs> you're the manager. That's well, not Clark geez. Kent. That's yeah, true. Yeah. You got me. Was, you got me. Was there a lot? Was there a lot of guys there? Like packed full of the dressing rooms full? Because I don't think I even went. And I think I was hanging out in the hall with Denny Brown, talking to him mainly because. I had a there was Denny. I managed. I managed Denny Q, the Ebony yeah. Assassin. He um, worked against uh, Tyree, right? Denny did. Tyree. Denny did. Yeah, yeah. Can, yeah. Can I stop, you, then, guys? Can I stop was... you guys for one second? I just want to say this right here. <laughs> I've never ever enjoyed a Denny Brown match. He just—it's uh, between his look and just. Ever, I just—I've never ever understood how anyone his, was a I fan of Denny. His look, yeah. But he was a hell of a worker. But his interviews were horrible. He was the worst interviewer I think I ever. Well, if you can, if you consider how much beer he drank before he went out to the ring, because he literally drank a sixteen pack before he went out there to work, like an hour long match against Tyree that I managed. Wow. And the first twenty minutes would have put, the first twenty minutes would have put Larry Zbysko to shame as far as the stalling (laughs) Hall of Fame. Yeah. I used like every Jim Cornette, Jim Hart, Jimmy Hart trick that i've ever seen in my life in the first 10 minutes waiting for yeah. him to stall to begin the match but it was a good match absolutely he's good yeah he was good remember that ring too it was a kind of crappy looking oh yeah on had. the side of it oh i have to post it it's a classic <laughs> thing on the apron oh it's like somebody uh-huh. drew like a little rascal style <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the, the stars exactly. the stars of professional oh, wrestling God. and i'm like well if that wow. doesn't convince them i don't know what will the he-man yeah, yeah, yeah. wrestling association uh, yeah <laughs> oh that's like 95 yeah, yeah. percent of indie promotions Hey, as you he asked. asked me to bring him a ring bell. He asked me to bring him a ring bell because he was using some, I don't know what he was using. So I brought him my bell and he tried to keep that. Oh man. Yeah. That sounds like a, that sounds like a Tyree Bobby promotion. 
Yeah. What were you going right. to say, Scott? Right about. But... No, nothing, nothing. Go, Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> There's one Denny Brown match, though, that I like, which is the title win over uh, Gary Roy on TBS where Flair's doing the color commentary. Oh, man. And he's just, like, working his ass off to get over how, like, you know, these uh, junior heavyweights are much more skilled. Which, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. I mean, it's more because of Flair. It's a good match, though. And junior heavyweight with a beer gun. Yeah. It just didn't yeah. work. It just, it, it just, he was not. I'm out. Well, when Denny. I'm, I'm, he didn't have any charisma. I remember when Angelo Mosca paid him to train his son. Remember Angelo Mosca? Oh, he used to be fun. That all makes sense. That all makes sense. Get the can refund on that one. Yeah, I know. That's what I said. I don't know. I think, Denny, I think Denny needs a refund of that one. Oh, man. Somebody does, because uh, that was not good. But I remember how it was like, man. Now, uh, in defense of Denny Brown, though, wouldn't you put away a case if they told you you had to drop the strap to Lasertron? <laughs> well, man. <laughs> what do you guys think? Should they have done Lasertron or just brought him in as Hector? Okay, it well it depends in in this exercise is Lasertron supposed to be a real robot or not? <laughs> that was so oh, I, well, it was like the RoboCop era, era right? So well, presumably it was, was like it was blurring to... the reality. Well, I mean, let's think of it. If he was supposed to be a real robot and the new breed was supposed yeah. to be from the future, did anyone ever just accuse the new breed of I don't remember faking it and not really being from the future on TV? <laughs> oh my god. They had a I robot manager, Sean, though, too. They had a robot manager, Sean, the same when you can get a J.C. Penny that Christmas season. But... Yeah. <laughs> yep. I don't know if Sean Royal's first match was against me or not, but Matsuda trained him, and Matsuda's training was usually just, you know, exercise, squats and everything. And then his first match, he goes, uh, he didn't know anything. I said, give me the headlock. I told him in the dress room. He's like, uh, he didn't show. I was like, you don't know how to do a headlock? I'm like, God, it's going to be. Mm. So pretty much, I mean, it was just like training in the ring every night. And then Matsuda would get mad at me because he, he didn't do anything right. You know? And then he finally said, man, you showed me everything I learned because Matsuda never taught me anything in training. Mm. It was just like, a, I mean, workout. That's pretty much why, that's why you see Luger. How, I mean, he was huh. greatest worker ever. Greatest <laughs> worker uh, ever, Luger. And did, you, like did you ever work uh, Chris Champion back then? <laughs> I didn't work him, no, because we were both heel. But Sean uh, was a baby at first. Yeah. You guys ever seen that video of when Chris Champion just Savat kicks Rick Steiner right in the face? And Rick Steiner <laughs> oh, just, geez. when he gives him like the most shoot Steiner line you've ever seen in your yeah, life. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, I figured that was going to happen. So, like most well, Steiner lines then? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, every Steiner line was, I think, about the same. Tear your head off. Did you ever work against Rick Steiner? I know you guys were both on that yeah. in Japan together, but did you guys ever work against each other? Yeah, I did actually on my show about what was it, about two thousand eight. On my one of my shows, I had, and he, uh, I thought he was going to do that style. I never had worked against him, but I heard all the. He told me he had a screw in his bicep where he hits him with that. That screw is what he nails him with to really hurt somebody in him. And then uh, when he threw me in, he said, uh, clothesline. And then I was just like, oh, shit. And he started laughing. And they barely touched me. Just like a rib to show me. Like, no, I'm not going to do it. Or do you hear the boss? <laughs> I mean, so the anyway, thing, yeah. though, with the Steiner line, though, is that what made it different from other clotheslines is basically Rick throwing it as a shoot. 
because like the oh, yeah. way he throws his chest into it and everything is it's, in the it's, air it's and... like that's the difference. Yeah, that's the difference. <laughs> that's the only substantive difference from other clotheslines. But he hit him with that screw. He said he had a screw in his bicep from operation. I guess uh, I didn't something know that. like that hurt him too. Oh yeah, that's what. That's what, when he was mad at somebody, he hit him with that or that part, you know. But yeah, huh. he did it easy on me, but he was strong as shit because he did a belly belly on me, and I didn't even have to jump on me. And this is like 2008 or eight or something like that, nine. And so he wasn't really let you know steroid out or anything anymore, but he was still powerful as hell. Hey, Jerry, I can't remember the timeline if it was late 85 or early 86, but were you in Mid South when Dr. Death and Rick Steiner? Saw like a car in flames, and they pulled over and they rescued the people. Do you know the story I'm talking about? No, but I, yeah, but I was in Japan. I wasn't in Mid South then, but I was in Japan when his first tour of Japan, uh, Doctor Death, uh, when Rick Steiner was his first tour there, and they were talking about it on the, the tour bus. How they ripped the the door off of there and saved, I guess, uh, one of the guys at least one of the guys. I think it's yeah. the same year that Terry Gordy got busted for something in Dallas. And when they tried to arrest him, he started headbutting yeah. the police car and he kicked out the windows. <laughs> whatever he did. Oh God! Did you ever yeah, work with Terry Gordy? I mean, let's see, Terry Gordy. No, but I was around him a lot when I first started in uh, in Dothan and uh, Atlanta to TBF. Mm. He was a nice guy, funny guy. What was Dothan like when you first got there? Um, that was really mellow, easy going. And I mean, everybody was like a big family. It was like kind of like Portland where everybody was just good. No stress. Nobody worried about what time and nobody's late. You know, it wasn't like a mid South definitely where you're, you know, stressed, what get fined or whatever. Yeah. It was, uh, really good and big. I mean, huge houses, Jesus. Everywhere I went, uh, I went there for that. Um, they sent me down from, uh, what was it? when Bob Armstrong first turned heel on, um, Ron Fuller. Yeah, the match against that was. Yeah, eighty three, eighty three. Yeah, they. That's when I was under the hood as the destroyer, and actually, Raul Mata's wife is the one who made that first mask. I had that destroyer mask. She made mask. She made the Midnight Rider Dusty Rhodes mask too. The first mask hmm. he had with that gold, the gold eyes and the black. But anyway, the um, I had a mask. It looked like Kiss Gene Simmons, kind of like with gold uh, instead of. Anyway, um, so they sent me there as like a uh, Bonnie Hunter. They were bringing in, they did a promo where um, J.J. Dillon had, they had me stand, kind of like they did with the Andre thing, standing by Vincent Mann on that big box, you know, making him look like he's 10 foot tall. You ever seen that interview? Where oh, Andre yeah. made, looks like, my uh, man looks like a midget compared to Andre because he's yeah. standing where on Vince a is like box. Vince is like up to his chest. He's like yeah. staring at his nipple. Yeah. So they did that <laughs> with me though, with, with uh, the, for the promo for uh, going into Alabama for two weeks, I think I went there. And 80, 80, whatever year it was, 83. And then uh, I was the destroyer, and J.J. Dillon said, he's coming to get your Ron Fuller. And I was standing on the box, though, so I looked like I was, like, you know, Ron Fuller's height, six foot nine, ten, or whatever. <laughs> and then uh, when I went there, though, it was, like, uh, huge houses and heat like hell. I mean, I think it was the biggest heat I've ever seen besides Mid-South with Cornet and all that. I mean, they were trying to kill us on the way back, me and Bob Armstrong. The people were, I mean, we had to run the dress room. The cops were beating everybody, and... We had to lock the dressing room doors. It was really big time heat. But uh, yeah, I wrestled Ron Ron Fuller every night. Let me let me ask you Go about ahead. that, Jerry, because you know we talk a little bit about that on the Studcast, but we haven't really gotten up to that in terms of the chronological yeah. history. But 
You talk uh-huh. here, Ron, and we've had Johnny Rich and Tommy Rich and Bob Armstrong and Robert Fuller and various yeah. people that worked that territory on, and they all talk about uh-huh. the big houses and the heat and the crowds. So you really have an outside perspective. You're not part of any of their cliques. You're not part of any of their crews. You kind of do your own thing uh-huh. back then and even today. Uh-huh. What was it really like? Yeah. How big was Southeastern when you were there? Was it as popular as they make it out to be? Oh, yeah. It was like, I mean, Dothan, I don't know how many people that, that building held. It was like a dirt floor at that time. I don't. I think they finally saved it or whatever, but it was a dirt floor like a peanut festival or whatever, but was that place, I mean, it was, so, I think there was. Yeah, wasn't that an odd arena? 8, um, It was like a big uh, barn, the building in Dothan. Like well, it was called like the Farm yeah. Center, wasn't it? But yeah, I remember yeah, I was yeah. only, I was only there Center, once. Yeah. I was only there once yeah. and I didn't get a sense of any fans around me. It was all, like oh, all yeah. the fans were in the bleachers, right? Oh, yeah. Well, they had ringside too, but that that was I mean they was did, but it seemed house. so cavernous in there because it was like some kind of a livestock. <laughs> it was called the farmhouse yeah. or something, right? Yeah, and it was just such an odd arena. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it was, was such yeah, an odd arena. I was only there the one time, wow. and I'm like, this is so odd. And that yeah. was like their mid South Coliseum, and the ring is like yeah. in the middle of this huge building, and I don't recall yeah. any fans being around me, and when I was shooting ringside. But I, there was yeah. like a bleacher section on one side only, if I remember. Um, and it just seemed very cavernous in there. I don't know. I was there around um, 85. Idol was working yeah. humongous. Oh, yeah. Okay. I ran a show there too myself too in 94, I think it was. And I had about huh. 1,000 people there. I had Adrian Street and um, who else was on that show? Greg Valentine, Ron Simmons. Had about a thousand people, but that's pretty good for no TV independent. Um, but they were having like I don't know how many of hell, and I mean it looked like eight to ten thousand to me. Um, of course, they never told you back then. <laughs> the promoters or bookers or whatever, they'd always say it was like you know whatever. Oh yeah, it's three thousand people. Because on your face, it was. It seems like strange it. to me because it didn't seem um Big. like it didn't seem that it was the equal of the Mid South Coliseum or anything. Um, yeah, it was, I don't remember that many people being there in '85. It, it oh, my, really? yeah, I think my it was memory of that down. does not include a lot of people for some reason. There might have been, but I don't know. Maybe yeah. it was just the size of the building or something, where it's where it's like a huge building. Well, it was. But I thought it was when I was there. It was big time, and like a, that's when Bob Armstrong turned heel, and it was on fire at that time. What year was that? Ah, uh, that makes sense, yeah. 83, 82. You know what year it was, Brian? 83? When it's Brian, 83. When, uh, it's 83 because that's when yeah, Bob turns. Yeah. yeah, 83 is the yeah, Flair yeah. Fuller match. Yeah. That, it, was, it was hot then because I was there in 80, uh, 81 at first when I, I worked with uh, – when I first started with Jerry Stobbs when he was the um, Mr. Olympia. Mr. Olympia, yeah. I was Yeah, I was there. That was one of my third match, I think it was. And then that's the time I uh, – it was only my third match, and Louis Tillette didn't smarten us up hardly any. I didn't know any words. I didn't know the handshake even. Back then, the easy handshake, nothing. So then uh, after the TV match and Jerry Stubbs was so good, he called everything, so made me look like a million dollars. And then Robert Fuller was the booker, and Bob Armstrong was in all of them. were like kind of bookers. He was one of the owners, Bob Armstrong was. So yeah. they all said, come over to the, come over to their hotel room after the TV thing, because they really liked me. And I didn't understand. I didn't even know what a house show meant. 
because I, I was like, <laughs> what the hell are they talking about? So, so Bob Armstrong and Robert Fuller said, man, you're really good. And, uh, you want to work the house tonight? And I was like, what the fuck are they talking about? I don't want to work in their house. And then I thought they might to go to their house and wrestle or something. I was thinking, man, what the hell is going on? I was only 18. So they're passing joints around. We're getting high as hell and watching the, the TV show back. It was playing right then. And I were watching it. And they said, man, you really did good. That's only your second match. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. You want to work the house tonight? And I was like, I kept looking like, and I had another guy with me that we trained and I kept saying, well, if he wants to do it, I didn't understand it was only one spot open. So they probably thought I had a bad attitude. Like the fucking guy don't even want to, you know, we're giving him opportunity to the fuck, you know, work the house show. And then, uh, I kept saying, if he wants to do it, you know, and they were looking like, what the hell the matter with you? And then the other guy that was with me, kept, the other guy that was with me kept saying, uh, did I do good? And they were ignoring him completely. And he didn't smoke weed or nothing. He, was, he wasn't in the click at all. They were just like, get the fuck out of here. So they were passing on the round, kept saying to me, you know, you want to work the house tonight? And I was, I was thinking, what the hell are they talking about house? And then I never did figure it out until finally they just let him work the house. I think they got a little bit mad because I was just like blowing them off like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> house, I don't want to go to your house tonight. <laughs> anyway, that was pretty funny. You story. thought they wanted an apartment then, house uh, match with you? I was kind of funner. What the, what the hell's going on here? The house. I mean, the words. I think didn't we're burying the headline here. Bob Armstrong actually smokes weed. Oh, oh, no, uh, maybe not. Well, Brad really did like. My, oh wow, Brad was a good did. guy. Oh wow. yeah, Brad would always say. Me and Brad and Scott McGee would make trips in Florida, and I always had this real good. Uh, I actually sold weed back then because I was only doing you know part time, <laughs> starting out in wrestling. I sold weed to all the guys. I sold weed to Saul nice. and uh, Jake. Everybody, that's why I first met Jake. Everybody was buying weed from me. And then, uh, funny thing was, uh, I didn't know one of the, the guys that was doing TV from Alabama was a cop, too. I didn't even know that, you know. So everybody's asking me, what do you do for work? You know, I'm working, you know, two times a week here. I said, I sell weed. And the guy's over there, a cop. He just says, oh I've got, like, God. the biggest silver dollars. And he just looked at me. And I was like, oh, shit, later. I found out. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, okay. That wasn't a good thing to say. So anyway, uh, Brad would always ask me after that, you got any more of that orange shit you have? Uh, like, since I'm there, some uh, kind of weed I have. <laughs> I knew Brad was cool. Brad and Scott oh, were yeah, very Brad cool back good. in the day. When I was just a photographer, like in 83-ish, maybe. Oh, yeah. uh, very nice guys. They would always pose for me like I was nobody. Like, Brad was always nice yeah. all the time. When I met oh, him yeah. in Florida really or like N- or the NWA, you know, yep. like he didn't know he me, was- and he just talked to me like an equal Yep, that's the way they all were. All the ones I met, um, Bob was yeah. on that And then, uh, yeah, but in that, that hotel room, it was like, oh, I didn't know I was sitting there with, and then too, I didn't know, like a lot of the wrestlers were owners and bookers. And I thought, oh, this is just Robert Fuller. He's a, you know, a star or whatever. I didn't know he, he owned the territory with Ron. You know, I didn't know anything <laughs> about it. I just thought this is one of the wrestlers, whatever. Big deal. He asking me if I want to work for at the house or whatever. I didn't understand. I thought it was like <laughs> the old man. You know, I didn't. Nobody told you. Louis Led didn't tell me anything. You're lucky he so didn't then, ask you uh, to do a job. You would have really been confused. Yeah, you want to do a job? Be like, I want to be a wrestler. He probably did, and I probably said, No, I just want to wrestle. I don't want to have a regular job. No, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. And then the next time I came back, I, I learned a little more. They told me somebody smartened me up. Oh, Al Perez. Started telling me like, <laughs> you know, the words. <laughs> yeah, he, well, the, to the words when I went to that Ohio territory that Louis Tillett and Buddy Fuller had, the one that uh, they tried to have up there with Austin Idol and all of them, yeah. and then for the, for the Memphis guy. Yeah, uh, 
he was Eddie Mansfield came there and I ended up living with him for a little while there in hotels. And then Al was like, uh, this carny cause Louis Tillet is what it was. The one that trained me tells me one day, Moondog sailor white is, t- is standing there talking to me at the arena. And I'm a baby. I just worked him. I'm a baby face. He's a heel. And he's talking to me and the fans are still there. And, and Louis walks up with his French accent and goes, uh, coffee. I thought he was saying coffee, you know, cafe. He was saying, and I was like, what? What? And I just kept saying, what are you talking about? And then later he goes, Cafe, you're a heel, he's a baby face. And then later Alvarez told me, Cafe, that means this, and Carney is this, and then he smartened me up to all that. And I was like, oh my God, I think a lot of Louie. <laughs> anyway, pretty funny. Did you get along with Louie? Yeah. Was anyone here an Al Perez fan? Say that again. Was anyone... oh, he's my number three guy. It's was... like Piper Flair, Al Perez. Was anyone on this call an Al Perez fan? And number like four is Lou Perez. Oh. <laughs> oh god no not Lou not Lou Al I like it when he suplexed the tackling dummy in mid-south oh that's right his interviews were too good but uh, yeah, he did uh, have one of the silliest names for a move the alleycopter <laughs> yeah right <laughs> oh, that thing. Oh, yeah he was he's a good guy but he yeah his interviews I think was what hurt he wasn't you know interviews very <laughs> what yeah, was for a guy that had good to, uh, had for a guy that had a good physique, he was like a terrible interview, boring worker. Yeah. But did, did you like Louis Tillet? Uh, yeah. Well, I like him because he got me in the business, you know. But he, right. he did a lot of, when a lot I, of stuff. When I first I met like him at the CAC, he kid, came up you know? to me with some corny joke. And, like, I thought he was making conversation for the first 30 <laughs> seconds. He goes, hey, a guy walks into a bar and he says, I don't remember the joke. And I'm not a big joke guy, but it was Louis Tillet. He had a lot of jokes. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, yeah, he was a big joke guy, right? So I met him, like, oh, yeah. 2005 at the CAC. And I didn't mm-hmm. know him at all. And I just went up to him and said hi. And he's like, "Yeah, hey, guy goes into a bar." And I didn't know if he was telling me a story or a joke or what. Oh, Jesus! And I'm not a big joke guy because I usually no sell yeah. a joke because I'm like, "Oh God, I have to act like this is funny." But it was actually <laughs> yeah, a funny yeah. joke. It was actually yeah, a funny joke. Good. So, uh, like, oh, that's a good guy. Yeah, he was okay as far as that, but not. You know, I just turned 18, and he's like ripping me off with the. I'd already paid uh, him the whole fee, all the whole fee, and then he would, every time I'd come to training, I paid it all up front. Like how much? I worked hard. Like when I was a young kid, I saved every penny and paid him with my own money. You know, working when I was fifteen and everything, and I paid him all the money. Nobody else was even paying him. All the other training, and then he, uh, wow, he, he kept he kept still telling me when I'd get there, like you got this, you know, you got the seventy five or whatever. I was like, uh, I think I already paid it all off, didn't I? Jeez. How much did you pay him altogether? Well, it was a big thing because it was supposed to be $1,200. That can, I'm talking about 81 $1,200. It was supposed to be for six month course. And then it ended up being two months, barely. And only like two days, what was it? Two days a week. I had to drive all the way from Jacksonville, from Orlando. And then, uh, he he said, "Oh, since it's only going to be a shorter course, I'll make it um, eight hundred or something." But I ended up paying him more than that because he kept still telling me every week that I owed him. You know, oh, you still got that? You got that other money? Other money? I was like, "What the hell's going on? I already paid it all." Wow. And I and I was too, you know, whatever naive and everything, and so I would give it to him every time, pretty much. And then he uh, another thing he did, he owed me money still that Ohio tour thing we did up there, and he never did pay me that other four hundred they owed me for the last week there. He said Buddy Fuller had it, and then 
Buddy Fuller told me Louis had. <laughs> the next time I seen Buddy Fuller, he was like, oh, no, Louis has that. And I was like, okay, I'm never going to get that money, I guess. Wow. But yeah, he was okay. with Malenko, huh? Yeah, because I went to Malenko, too, when I was only 16. But I was big. I was working out real hard, and he, he was only going to charge me $25 a week in, um, in Tampa. But I was only 16. I didn't have a car or no way to get there or anything. I went there oh, one yeah. time. I worked out worked out with him and he had like a, a judo school with mats on the floor yeah, yeah. and I was just like man I don't have him. he said well even though you're underage well you're big enough and we'll because uh, I was bigger pretty much than all those other students and they were older guys like and then he said well uh, if your parents sign the you know the thing or whatever we'll let you do it and then so I just had to wait though till a year later or whatever until Louis started that fun belt they had a TV show and advertising on there. Oh, Austin Idol. All the people are going to be the trainers, you know. Ended up being only Louis Tillet. I don't think they ever had oh, anybody man. come there, but with him, supposed to be Don Curtis, all kinds, of, you know. Yeah, because that's it when Don Curtis game. broke away from Eddie Graham in <laughs> yeah, like yeah, 1979, 80, right? Yeah, and then that's when Eddie Graham wanted to kill me. I didn't understand how that worked you know i thought just wrestling it's all wrestling it doesn't matter who so i went to after louis you know left town with everybody's money or whatever and then i went down to to tampa to uh eddie graham they wanted to give me a tryout and all that to, with the snake pit you know and then eddie graham said uh who he liked me at first because i was amateur and all that and he goes uh who trained you and i said that i told that story already he was like Turn into the devil when I said that, Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. I said Louis Tillet, and he went. He, he hated me then. He made me pay some dues for saying that name. He goes, wow. I can't believe that guy hurt this business. All the money he made in the business, how good it was to him. And then I went and said, How did he hurt the business? And he didn't like that at all. And he said, He trained people right off the street, right? Anybody that had the money, he just smartened them up right then. And I was like, Oh, yeah. well, no, yeah, kind of, but. Really, he didn't, though, because he was mm. stiff as shit with us. <laughs> Pretty much. That's why I said he didn't even smarten us up. Hey, guys, let me, uh, I got to add a couple people before it gets too late. Let me uh, quickly add this person while I try to get this other person to commit to a time. <laughs> Hold on one second. Um, adding this person right now. Okay, here How's it doing, wrestling fans? How you doing, wrestling fans? It's Thursday, December 20th. You're on the Wrestling Hot Season. It's Dominic. Uh, today's wrestler's birthday is Gary Royal. Used to like him back in the day. Uh, we got a boy, Toscano from Mexico. He used to wrestle as Tarzan boy. Lizzie Borden from the old XPW. We got Armageddon. Takeshi Rikio from Japan. Super Strong Machine Junji Harata. Uh, Ari Elgato Romero and celebrities. We got Chris Everett, uh, Billy Bragg, Anita Pointer, Jonah Hill, <laughs> and an old caller of mine, the Creeper from Minnesota. Happy birthday, bro, if you're still out there. Uh, the day in wrestling ah, history. The Creeper? December 20th, 1954. <laughs> um. Kurt von Poppenheim and Leo Wallach defeated Ivan and Soldad Gorky in Portland, Oregon, to win the NWA Pacific Northwest Tag Team titles. The quote, Al from Midland Beach, got it. It's Moose Nation. 
moose from impact. And a lot of you people said the uh, nation of domination. And a lot of you also said you hire nation, which was the name Apollo Crews used to use in NXT. I so you guys are right on point with the almost getting it. <laughs> All right. The quote for today, we heard Desi Arnaz always say this as Ricky Ricardo. Lucy, you got some splaining to do. But what wrestler said that about another wrestler? You got some splaining to do. Okay. Tournament match. I, I said it to Tommy Mr. Fuji and Professor Tanaka <laughs> advance. Beating the sheep herders. Tonight's a tough one. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Ivan and Nikita Koloff taking on the faces of fear, Ming and the Barbarian. The other two fantasy matches, the Road Warriors, the winners over faces of fear. Naturally. And Dalton Castles, the boys, the winners over the Singh brothers. <laughs> now. Okay. <laughs> Ring of Honor. Yeah. Taped November 3rd in Pittsburgh. The show opens up backstage with Matt Taven <laughs> and Jay Lethal picking names for the Christmas the Christmas special match. Okay. Are we done yet? Uh, yeah, I, I can't anymore. I'm sorry. It's not one of his better uh, You know what's great? You know what's I, I great? Know. Not one that quote I from the honeymooners. Not that. I picture his. <laughs> I picture his preparation because I'm sure everybody has preparation. I picture him sitting in front of a hungry man, frozen dinner on a little TV tray in front of a 12 inch black and white TV in his in his couch in Brooklyn, like like what? I mean, does he put? It, it astounds me. When I hear him, it sounds like 1988 Max would be the latest that that show was put out, and it's actually current. I think it's amazing. It sounds exactly like it did 20 years ago. That's the amazing thing. I it's wish, it's like a time uh, astounding, astounding. I wish you had called the, uh, call the hotline yeah. yesterday so I could have heard all the wrestling trivia that happened on December 19th. <laughs> <laughs> and that fat Bray is 92. Yeah. We remember her. <laughs> wrestling humorist Scott Cornish. Remember him? <laughs> He's a hot dog man. I got to find out, does he still have all those t-shirts? Did, did I ever say that story? Where Dominic at some point, it was before I knew him, so it must have been either in the early 90s or the late 80s, I would think. He got it in his mind that he would sell a bunch of wrestling t-shirts, so he printed up, I could be wrong, but I, I seem to remember it was like a few hundred yellow shirts that said Wrestling King of Sports, like the old Boyd Pierce logo. And then he didn't sell one, and he just had like a room or a garage filled with boxes of these unsold T-shirts. <laughs> I'm wondering if he has them and uh, if he'll sell them wholesale, because I'll buy them. He used to wrap the autographed one. I'll take it. He used to wrap them up in the old Superstar Graham poster when he would send them out. <laughs> I still want that. I still want one of those. I wish I could find that. Right, did you did you hang up on him already? Yes. Uh, you don't want to hang in and see if he does a tribute to Penny Marshall. <laughs> no. oh. You know, I put, it on, I put it on Twitter. I actually always thought up until just a few years ago that Gary Marshall was her father. I didn't realize it was her brother. Her oh, wow. He looked yeah. so much older. I thought he was her father. 
<laughs> he was older. He was, he was definitely older. He, he was established way before she was. Wow, Brian, you did you did like a Johnny and Greg Valentine sort of kayfabe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she worked as Laverne Fargo for a while. (laughs) (laughs) You people figure out on the way home. Read some 1975 wrestling guides. You'll get it. My my favorite joke from Laverne and Shirley, though, is that there was a in the break room at Schatz Brewery, there was a portrait of uh, Mr. Schatz, the guy who owned the brewery. And the caption underneath his portrait was, get back to work. (laughs) you know i remember being torn back in the day between um they moved good times and now it was happy days versus good times and Mm -hmm. i didn't know what to do i was apoplectic (laughs) i was in fifth grade i'm like this is too much to ask i do remember going with good times though because i felt like that was the more funky cool decision you know ah better theme song Definitely, Quartet, definitely. You know, for sure. Ain't we lucky we got him. Yeah. So, well, this who is... will ever forget um, poor Janice's um, uh, crisis with uh, child abuse? You almost forgot, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. I ain't much. I ain't much for nothing these days, I tell you. Uh, I'll tell you what. We do have an actual human being who is on standby right now. Let me add him to the call. As opposed uh, to okay. us. As opposed to Dominic. As opposed to Dominic. Uh, okay. And let me type this in. All right. Maybe I they should... burn Penny with a iron, for God's sakes. And, oh, God. And I'm adding this person right now. I'm pretty sure he'll lift the spirits of this show and get us really flying high in one way or another, in short order. Oh, God. That uh, can only mean Kurt. one thing. Kurt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Happy holidays, wow. Kurt Brown. Welcome to Christmas Star Wars on the Super Podcast. Kurt on the line right now. Popular co-host and humorous Scott Cornish, as well as Howard Baum, the man behind the magnificent one and the hiccuping fabulous Mula. Hey, hey. The voice. Oh, of- What's happening? The voice. I love how when they, whenever you say hey, 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 everybody thinks they're doing Fat Albert. The All right, voice, I know. How about that? The voice <laughs> of Pandemonium Theater, Lou Kippelman, as well as noted journalist David Bixenspan. Everyone on the line with you. And Jerry Gray, the golden boy. I can't forget Jerry. Jerry, how are you? Hey, buddy. <laughs> Great to talk I'm to you, a, man. This, I was asking about you when we first got on. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, yeah. Elena wanted me to tell you, hey, and she's been uh, she's been asking about you the last couple of days, so... Oh, okay. Thank you. Hey, Vandal, doesn't it feel like eight years since the last uh, CAC? <laughs> like I was that? like that shit was. Does it not feel like eighteen years since the last CAC? That shit was like six months ago. It feels like forever ago. <laughs> <laughs> I know, just around the corner. It's just around the corner, but man, I, I, I'm, I'm just jonesing for it. Yeah, we're gonna do it again, man. They got the legalized weed right across the street from Absolutely. the hotel now. I, 
OMG, man. And oh, man, and you know that Brian Last will come to Las Vegas. I will not be in Las Vegas. I highly <laughs> doubt that. I highly doubt that. They may be legalized <laughs> weed here by that time, so I may not be going anywhere. <laughs> right, like, that makes a difference. Like, me, myself, I've been holding off these last 52 years, but when it's legal, I'm going to... I'm totally gonna check that. I'm totally gonna check that shit out. <laughs> what are these things? We gotta, we gotta get, we gotta get Jerry Gray over to Vegas for cauliflower. We'll that would be awesome. Yeah. The room. Like it that just would fly. Yeah. Like it just fly. Oh man. Yeah, you, you can't fly anymore, yeah. right? I mean, physically. Yeah, no, not yeah. a, no, 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 no. I don't think I could do that again after that last time. Yeah, and that last time was the same thing. It was West Coast, right? What was it, San Diego? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, because it's too risky with the pulmonary embolisms and everything. Besides, uh, that sucks, man. I gotta come up to Tampa yeah. and show you a good time, Jerry. We gotta do Del Mabry yeah. Boulevard. You know, I gotta get up there. What were you gonna say, Scott? I'm in Orlando. I'm in Orlando. <laughs> oh, okay, well, well, meet me then, because there's nothing going on in Orlando. No, there's nothing going on in Orlando. Meet me in Tampa, man. I'll I'll meet you halfway. And, uh... <laughs> I'll, you I'll fly in and meet you, and we'll just uh, we'll do some good yeah. Three Stooges, uh, race some Three Stooges hell. <laughs> what was that you said, Scott? I <laughs> said, uh, so besides Jerry, that legalized weed—that's just for amateurs, right? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> that's kid stuff. What was that orange stuff <laughs> yeah. you had, Jerry? That Brad Armstrong wanted. What? What was it? Oh, I don't know. Oh, good shit. Good shit back then. I don't know what the hell it was. Who had the best and shit? Today that that, name. And, and today that, stru- that strain is known as Arachnaman. Yeah, they didn't have names back then. You know? No, no, no. It's Lasertron. It's Lasertron. That's Hector, man. Or what was Brad's other thing? When he was part of the Freebirds? Badstreet. What was Brad's name when he was in the, free- was in the Freebirds? Badstreet. Badstreet. All oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, that's a good that's a good name for a strain of weed. You got to admit, Jerry, who had the best weed in the business and who hated marijuana the most? Dick Murdoch, I hated it the most because I really on the tour bus <laughs> on the tour bus in Japan and the on tour bus in Japan. I brought the Cheech and Chong movies because they had a VCR for us to watch movies. You know, so <laughs> I bought great. I bought a bunch of Cheech and Chong movies, and he he got so pissed, and uh, Orton was sitting next to him, and Orton likes weed, you know. So, um, Bob Orton, uh, Murdoch said, take that damn shit off now. I ain't watching this damn dope. And then, uh, and Orton's like, uh, I like teaching Chong. And then, uh, Murdoch actually got up and popped it out of the VCR. He couldn't stand that bad. He got so mad over just watching a damn movie. And then, uh, yeah, wow. he was over. And one of the few times I ever met Dick Murdoch was when, uh, Dave and I picked him up in Japan for the Champ Forum taping in a taxi. <laughs> and, uh, okay. We were saying, like, have you had breakfast? He goes, yeah. And said, said, well, we can, you know, grab something. Oh no, no, I had a couple of beers. That's my breakfast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah that's a uh, but not the yeah, yeah. weed. The story of uh, J.R. Benson and Ron Head driving uh, Dick Murdoch around uh, Smoky Mountain. <laughs> oh, oh I, I would love to have been there. Oh God. <laughs> they said he literally was like eating. Twinkies and Hostess Snowballs and beer. And that was like... <laughs> beer, yeah. Man. That's exactly yeah. what you would expect. Oh, too much. So, the Jerry, did you actually get to smoke thinking. weed in uh, Japan? Oh, no. 
only one time. <laughs> and um, yeah. I, I think I told that where uh, Duggan had his wife or girlfriend mail it to him. Oh, that's right. In the, ah. in the mail. Yeah. Oh, and it was like they were passing it around. It was me, Mark Rocco, the what was his name over there, Black Tiger? Deborah Black, Duggan, Mark Rocco, yeah. the smuggler. Yeah, him and oh. and uh, Kevin Kelly was there. Kevin Nell, Kevin Kelly, and I can't remember who else. But me and Duggan and, and all of us were in the in this hotel room, and then uh, they were all choking. I could never get a damn hit off the thing, so I don't know what fucking <laughs> sucking that joint so hard, and I never did get any smoke out of it. Oh I don't man, know oh, that sucks. I don't know what we're doing over there. there, though. I mean, they like take it seriously over there. Oh no, you can't man. find any. Oh, Even yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they they need they the Cheech and Chong movies man. now. <laughs> right. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. I, I, they're gonna do it. We gotta do an wait. Asian remake. Me and Vandal as Asian Cheech and Chong. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there. I'm there. Oh my god, that would be the pinnacle of my career. Oh, oh you are fabulous freak brothers. We know you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm I'm Phineas. This is my freewheeling Frank. <laughs> <laughs> and, then if we, I, 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 and then if we could just get Fredo turned on to pot, I, I think he'd be make the perfect freewheeling Frank. <laughs> Always okay. looks crazy. Uh, yeah. Howard and Vandal go to Ribera Steakhouse. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, Lou Kippelman will narrate the whole thing. Lou um, <laughs> Kippelman is the narrator. Uh, I'm looking to be the story of how Howard and Vandal ended up in prison in Japan forever. <laughs> yep. Soundtrack. Soundtrack by yeah, Paul man, McCartney. Yeah, man, thousand, man. I hear all they feed you is an orange a day, man. <laughs> no weed. We can't even use it as a temporary pipe, man. You know who had the best weed, uh, Brian? You asked me the best weed. Can I take a couple guesses Probably. before you get, before you say? Can I guess? Yeah, go ahead. Go let me ahead. take, let me yeah, take go three ahead. guesses, okay? Just tell me where. Okay. Tell me where you were. Um, the best probably Charlotte. Gary Hart. Oh, Bob Backlund, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Gary Hart's my first Gary guess. Hart. Yeah, he'd be close to them, but okay. probably Jack Briscoe. Really? Really? Jack Briscoe had the best Jack weed. Jack Briscoe and the. Nice. Yeah, but the funniest. The, Why the is that most surprising shocking, anyone? That he had the, the most best shocking weed. weed <laughs> the most shocking weed. Uh, the guy, the, I'll get in the car. I thought he, it looked like my grandpa or something. Frank Morrell, remember him? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Frank Morrell. Angel. Yeah, so he, he looks like a grandpa back then, even. So I'm in Nashville meeting him in Pork Chop Cash. I, I'm just, I just got to the territory. And we're getting ready to take off, and he lights up a joint. I'm like, "What the fuck? This guy, this old grandpa smokes weed." I mean, that, 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 <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a children's book. Grandpa smokes that weed. Funny. Wow. Yeah, I mean, pack... he just looks so old. Did he pack it in a corn cob pipe? <laughs> no, it's a southern joint. <laughs> oh, That's a southern spoiler, man. Frank Morrell has been yeah. through like 15 gimmicks in Memphis. Was um. Um, oh, what's his name? Dream Machine there at that time. Yeah, he was there. Ah, oh, cool. Did you hang out with him? Did he have the best I only rode with him once or twice. Um, yeah, what was he like? He was not like he was on interviews. Just normal. Huh. It wasn't that, you know, just normal guy. But um, I'm trying to think of Dick Slater had a lot of weed. I know that. He smoked like a thousand joints on the way to each, you know, wherever one trip to huh. uh, Raleigh or somewhere. Did he, you know, I hung out with him a little. Was he? Did you ever catch Dick Slater 
in a joking around or jovial mood. <laughs> uh, he seemed, he, <laughs> when I was around him, all I got the, the sense. And you know, Brian time, said the most. Congratulations. Brian said the most brilliant thing, which was <laughs> Terry Funk has to psych himself up into being a heel and getting into that mode. But Slater is like in that mode. That's it. That's Slater. Oh, yeah. Like he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to turn heel. And I just no. got a little hint of hanging out with Dickie Slater, um, yeah. in Charlotte. And I was hanging out with him in Humpernick, and they were talking about old times, like going down. I could see where Magnum TA got into his accident because Slater was like laughing about how they used to go down these slick mountain roads like 100 miles an hour in their Camaros and Corvettes and everything, right? And they were all fucked up. That's a given. And I'm like, wow, man, this is shit I don't even know about. But Slater was like so... um, Resigned to it, like this is. He wasn't like, hey, remember this, and then he was just like, yeah, remember we did this and that, and we're going a hundred in that Corvette down that wet road. We're all fucked up. I'm like, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> even when he, even when he laughs, it just looks like it. He's snarling instead of laughing. Kind, like, kind, of, kind of like a laugh of resignation, <laughs> like yeah, that happened. Oh well. Yes, exactly, exactly. Like there was no like, oh my god, you yeah. know, we're crazy. It was like, no, none of that. It no, was like no. that's that's Dick Slater, you know, like he was fucking that, that is no, the story about transporting drugs to Japan that I only know just the tip the tip, no pun intended, is uh uh when Cyclo Negro passed around the cookie and had everybody lick the frosting. Really? Yeah, one one was Mickey Doyle, and I and I do want to get on the phone with him and ask him in great detail about oh. the, the the trip he had on the plane for, <laughs> to to Japan. Hey, hey, Kurt, <laughs> hey, Kurt, we talked mm-hmm. we talked a little bit earlier about him. Uh, tell me your memories of Raul Mata. Oh my God, that was like I am uh, no joke. Uh, this is probably the saddest I've been about the death of somebody I've never met. I mean, he was my very first wrestling hero. Well, uh, oh, when I yeah. started watching, uh, I thought Eric Froelich was a really cool baby face. I dug him. Then they brought in Mata as his partner. And, you know, I'm 10 years old, and, yeah, I could even barely recognize a hammer lock from a wrist lock. It's just, I just thought, oh, this is cool. People are just beating the crap of e- out of each other and raking each other's eyes. And then uh, the two people in that first year I watched wrestling in L.A. that just made me jump back and say, "Wait, this is this person is different." Uh, the two were Jack Briscoe, who came in for a one night shot when he was, you know, campaigning for the title, and uh, the other was Raul Mata. And the thing I thought with both of them, wait, these guys are incredibly fast, incredibly dynamic, and the contact they make is just incredible. And with Raul Mata, I mean, he put so much passion, just his facial expressions mm-hmm. and the way he would sell. Yeah. What I'll never forget is when somebody raked his eyes, not not just, you know, every opponent, but somebody on top. When they raked his eyes, he would, like, just straighten out his body, throw both his hands over his face like he was shot in the face. And then when he he'd hit the ground, he'd kind of writhe around like he was, like mm-hmm. he couldn't see anything, but he was trying to, you know, get away from his opponent. And uh, the Rana, uh, the Hurricane Rana he did was just 
not to be believed. I mean, no disrespect to the Steiners, but uh, yeah, it was like he, was good. He, he would get way up there and then just suddenly jackknife down into the pinning position. Um, he invented I, I, that, right? I believe he did, yes. From, hmm. I've been trying to read a lot about him today, and from everything I can figure, it sounds like he is the one who invented that move. Yeah, well, he, he, shouldn't have, he shouldn't have learned how to sell so well. He wouldn't have been used as a big jobber in Florida. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, because Kurt, I already gave my no, I already gave my heartfelt thing about Raul, and I'm I'm on the same page as you. You know? Yeah, Cause I, you I, tell, I, no, because you could tell like he was a star in L.A., but he was so underused everywhere else, and you could just tell that he was so competent. When Mil Mascaris would come to Florida, he would work um, Raul under a mask as the Texan. The Texan, yes, understood. I remember that. Yeah, because yeah, because he understood that style. You know, he he knew no. how to work with Mill. Like zero offense, sell everything, <laughs> lay down, look at the lights. You know, and that was it. But he understood well, which, the style. Which is he, a shame. He, like it, like it's one thing to for him to job, but he should at least be coming back because he was one guy when he made a comeback. Even if he jobbed every week, you would believe he was going to win. He looked so on fire. And See, just that's the, rage the thing. When he was, yeah, when he was a jobber, he was on. He was kind of a tweener between jobber and person to be taken seriously. As far as only as far as the first two or three matches. Nah, that's not such um, a bad thing, really. My my hunch was like like was he full time on Florida. the road? But that's Florida. But that's but that's only Florida. I don't mean L.A. When it was oh yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm meaning in, in Florida. Was he you know full time at that time? Was he doing a business on the side? Because you know there were guys that's here why in L.A. They made who him a jobber would probably because he I'm was sorry? here too long. That's why they made him a jobber down here because he stayed too long. You know, once you keep staying, then they. Gotcha. Just, you know, well, he yeah, was also well. kind of small. He didn't do a great interview, and he did a Doma Gente Latina, la, 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 you know, for the yeah, Cubanos. Easy going, he did the so. Doma Gente Latina interview, but it was just obvious that he was that, that that's what they were, they were using him for because he was one of the few Latinos, and he was doing the Latin interview. But to anyone who knew their wrestling, it was clear that he was capable of so much more. And he was just – he was a perennial jobber here in Florida. No better than a Don Serrano or a Steve Brody or yeah, a, but he, a, you know, a the, Mike the Fever. The plus is he, he sure did. Sounds like he had the respect of the boys. I mean, sounds like everybody liked totally. that guy. Yeah. And uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm actually I've been going through mountains of my lucha mags, and there's one I came across about a year ago from I think '71 or '72, and I, I have so many of these things. I, I I kick myself for not scanning at the time, but there is a shot that somebody took of him doing a body press. Uh, you know, Mill Moskowitz body press. The difference is this: he got like three times the height of Moskowitz. He was like up there in the air, like huh. stuff you'd see all the time today, but you didn't see then. Yeah, the Lucha. Well, that's the thing. The start. Lucha guys yeah, of that era, Lucha guys in the '70s, were doing stuff that is like breathtaking now. I agree, and I think, uh, and I think they put something that a lot of guys don't put into it today: passion. You know, they make it look like it meant something. You nailed somebody with a tope. The guy looked like, oh my god, my ribs are broken. You know, now you get nailed with a tope. Okay, let's hop back in the ring. <laughs> yeah, like, see, this is what I was trying to talk about earlier, which is. That's why Raul Mata is conceivably a guy that you could put in your Hall of Fame. I agree. Because, I so agree. Right? 
Because he's not yeah. the biggest name. He wasn't over in every territory. But what I'm saying is this guy lives, sleeps, sleeps, ate the business. Come on. You know what I mean? Like, this is a wrestler. This is a guy who's devoted to his craft. He was a thing. I'd trained by Diablo Velasco, who was probably in, in Mexico considered the trainer second to none. But dedication Held, uh, doesn't make you a Hall of Famer. Back to that—that's the thing. I mean, you. But he was good. I mean, but he was competent he was good, in that could, role. I mean, you could tell. You could tell that he was a, a competent professional in whatever role he was used in. He wasn't just out there. He never looked clueless in the ring. He was capable of any kind of action at any given time. Is, Ma- is Mondo? Hold on, Howard. Is Mondo Guerrero a Hall of Famer? I didn't see enough of him, but he seemed to have. Oh, I can tell you, no charisma. Of I any like him. of the uh, Guerreros. Vandal would be better. I like me. him, but he always had a bit of that Guerrero attitude. I'm a Guerrero, and I think, and one, I don't think he is Hall of Fame quality. And, and when you're talking Raul Mata, one, where are we talking? Because in Mexico, yeah, Hall of Fame. Of course, people don't like to remember anything before 1985. Uh, mm-hmm. People people don't like to think that Sangre Chicana was ever – uh, over and was a draw, and he was a huge draw. And Raul oh, chicken Mata, blood, chicken blood. They talk about him to this day. Yes, yes, that's right. Him and Mas <laughs> I'm Uno. Kidding. I'm kidding. I never heard of him, but I had a I had to show off my Spanish. Song great Chicana. If you've ever seen that bloodbath, you, you owe it to you. The they uh, Song great Chicana and Mas Uno. Uh, headline two straight anniversary oh, yeah. shows. That's incredible stuff. Because of the fans more than even the match. The old lady's trying to wipe the blood off them. Yes! Yeah. Yes! Huh. Oh my god! She... And uh, Raul Mata was over enough in uh, the late 60s that uh, he had the light heavyweight title, which was along with the welterweight title, considered you know the biggest money title. Um he had that for four years, which is the longest they ever had that strap on anybody. But he was did around he tag the late with Mondo 60s? Guerrero. I'm sorry. Did he tag with Mondo, a tag team champion? Him and he Mondo tagged with Sabo. Well? He he tagged with oh, Sabo okay. in '75, and then in '73 so he tagged with David Morgan, and '74 hmm. with Victor Rivera. According and to man, when, in, according to what I have in front of me, he held the America's Tag Title nine times with Dory Dixon, Ray Mendoza, Salvador Lothario, Raul Reyes, David Morgan, Victor Rivera, Chavo Guerrero, and Carlos Mata. That sounds right. <laughs> and I guess funny how Carlos. Funny how Carlos was kind of the Jerry Briscoe to his Jack Briscoe. <laughs> it was like they kind of looked the same. Yeah, that's. But it was like if you're cloning somebody and they're just missing that last ingredient, you know. He did not need. Yeah, he he looked like he could be his brother, but when he wrestled, it wasn't the same. Yeah, like like just missing a little something extra in the in the firepower in the in the. Yeah, he didn't suck, but he wasn't great either. Notice Ricky Steamboat yeah. stayed far away from Vic Steamboat throughout his entire. Career. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Never saw him in the same extreme. place. I think that's totally the extreme of that situation, definitely. <laughs> well, okay, now we got to write on it, work on a screenplay about the missing Goulas brother who was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bix, <laughs> the greatest worker of all time. Bix, what were you Jorge, saying? Jorge Goulas. Yeah, and why does nobody give me a chance? Well, they saw your brother and they don't want anything to do with you. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Bix, what were you going to oh, say? Oh, man. 
if you ask Ricky, though, he he says that he probably should have used more influence to get Vic more work in places where he had cachet. I'm glad he's saying that now. Where was he? Where was he in 1988? <laughs> right. In 1988, Jerk. he was at home with That's Bonnie right. and yeah, right. Bonnie kept him home. That's right. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> Vic Steamboat is in um, one of the matches that has probably been aired more than any other match. You know, there's Ric Flair versus Kerry Von Erich at Texas Stadium, and there's Vic Steamboat versus Tony Atlas, which was on IWCCW oh, every week for yeah. at least a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that promotion was so random. If you wanted to see, that was like a pro wrestling this week thrown into a blender. The IW, whatever the hell it was with the Savoldis, I don't know what that promotion was all about. They taped Florida, they taped up north. Some of it was from 1982, some of it was from 1991. You didn't know what was going on with that promotion. <laughs> One week they just had um, episodes of They had UBF Austin Idol, they had. I mean, they had so many. They had Austin Idol, Kevin Sullivan, Mark Lewin, Bob Roop, and they were like. They would use a little bit of the Florida stuff, but then they would mix it up in their own universe, and they'd mix them up with um, Eric Sprecha <laughs> and uh, and the Metal Maniac. My and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I was always talking Idol. That was such a crazy promotion. Hold on, hold on, guys. Everyone's talking at once. Scott Cornish, what are you saying? I apologize. I was always hoping that Curly Moe would get over bigger so they would have the oh, stages. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Boston bad boy Tony Rumble. Ooh, I, I'll right. tell you, I was at ringside in 95 with Eric Bemben in, uh, oh, yeah. in South Jersey for Sabu versus Devin Storm, which was a really, really great match. At that time, I'm sure now it wouldn't hold up the same way. But at the time, it was incredible. You know, still seeing someone do the Sabu stuff in 95 live was still a big deal. And yeah, yeah. This yeah. was when he was on the outs with ECW. And on that show, uh, and actually now that I realize it, I'm thinking of the wrong show. It was the NWA tournament in 94 <laughs> in Cherry Hill. And Tony okay. Rumble was brought in by Dennis to manage. And me and Eric Bemben just started really heckling him about what a bad booker he was. And how I thought CCW was unwatchable and how I never want to see Tony Atlas versus Vic Steamboat again. And he, and he threw his gum at us. That was his response. Oh, my gosh. He literally took it out of his mouth, put it in his hand, and threw it at us. Didn't spit it. Now, that's a wow. scary, scary heel. I don't think only lad was that scary. I saw Rumble in a, in a team. TV match on on IWCCW where he's there, it was like shot at like a resort you know like like a Kutcher Kutcher yeah. yeah he's working ringside and there's tons of kids at ringside and they're just all uh, children and they're all just openly mocking him <laughs> <laughs> been, has anyone here ever been to Kutcher's well I mean it's, it's gone now I was there. I've, I've been there. I can't even imagine a wrestling show there. It's just so weird to, me <laughs> to imagine a wrestling show to there to that audience to that Jewish resort <laughs> audience. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> I met Joan Rivers there. Really? Yeah. Huh. Wow. I was there for my grandparents' fiftieth anniversary, nineteen eighty-eight, and 
Joan Rivers was there, and I knew her from Hollywood Squares. <laughs> oh, I was hoping you were going to go up to her and say, I loved you in WrestleMania, too. <laughs> no, I wasn't even a wrestling fan yet. And <laughs> me and my mom went up to her to get an autograph, and I'll never forget it. She had a little dog at the time, and it popped out of her purse when I went over there. I'd never seen at that point anything like it. But she was really cool. And that's the first comedy show I ever went to when I was eight years old. I was the only kid in the whole venue. Me and my family, the rest of the kids had to stay in the room with my Aunt Marty. Me, I was in there, and I got to hear Joan Rivers uh, do her whole stand-up act when I was eight years old, so that was pretty cool. Huh. That is way cool. And Wilt Chamberlain was uh, on the Cutcher's basketball team, and so was uh, Lou Alcindor before he became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Mm. Huh. So hmm. a little bit of Catskills history yeah. around the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wow. uh, I asked earlier when John McAdam was on with me and Scott, so let me ask the rest of you guys. Did anyone here ever get to know, either in person or through correspondence, Larry Matisic? No, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Wish I did. I, I spoke with him a little bit, um, mainly when I was working on it. was the first article I did for Fighting Spirit about uh, some of the WWF expansion stuff. And, I mean, this was, you know, this is what I, t- I think I tweeted, you know, a couple weeks ago when he passed that, there is probably no more like because I mean you know he was the general manager and announcer for wrestling you know for St. Louis Wrestling Club and wrestling at the Chase. Is there anyone that was like in terms of behind the scenes more prominent in wrestling that was as giving with his time and knowledge to reporters and historians as Larry? No, but only because Larry's been consistently doing it for so long. Like for instance. I think if if Peter Burkholz was asked something, and, and he had a very similar role to Larry in a lot of ways, Peter Burkholz has been very, very giving with his time. I mean, I mean to the point where you know, if I wanted to, I can go to his house right now. I mean, he's he's tremendous. And <laughs> I think you know, Ron Fuller, the same thing. Ron Fuller wasn't doing interviews or podcasts or talking to people for years, but I don't know anyone who has approached Ron, you know, especially from the Arcadian Vanguard family, for you know, help or an appearance or a question or whatever, and he's just. He's willing to sit down and talk to you about it and, and go into the, and he's willing to research it too, to make sure he's correct. I mean, I think there are a lot of guys out there now more than maybe ever before who will do that. But for a long time, Larry was, I mean, look, Larry was the guy who smartened up Meltzer in a lot of ways. You know, Larry, Larry was the one who taught Dave a lot about how the business, I mean, Larry and Brody who were, who were Mm -hmm. good friends. It was, I mean, Kurt, you were around Dave back then. Am I right or am I wrong? You're you're right. It's funny. We didn't meet for three years, but we talked on the phone like four times a week. And uh, the first wrestler I remember having contact with was Terry Funk. Terry Funk just cold called him one day and said, are you Dave? This is Terry. And, and Dave was saying like he was just kind of stammering through the call because he was <laughs> talking to Terry Funk. But he said like within a few weeks, Terry Funk is teaching him all this stuff about the biz. Um and well, Bix, uh, by the way, what... let me let me stop you there, Kurt. There's a good answer to your question about guys giving with their time. Terry Funk's always been giving with his time with me. Oh yeah, and you know, obviously yeah. Dave Meltzer in 1983, and how many guys were interested in smartening up newsletter writers in 1983? Exactly, yeah. exactly. I heard Dory was kind of the opposite. Like, I guess he no. talked to Dave, but he was very kind of guarded. Where Terry was a little more outgoing about it. Well, Dory give, also give, has Marty. Yeah, give Marty a couple hundred bucks, and Dory will tell no, you whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's true what Howard yeah. Brody wrote in his book. Huh? I, you know what? I've not read that chapter. What did he write in his book? Well, it sounded like uh, both Dory and Marty were just the best friends they could be in, you know, 
when they needed you. And when they didn't, they dropped you like a hot potato. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, I don't know how much. I, 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 I I've never met either of them. I don't know how That's much of that Dory versus Marty. Marty was always nice to me. I got to be very honest. Every time I was around her, very nice to me. However, I was also in the locker room and saw the way she treated other people. And I saw the <laughs> issues that Dennis Carluzzo had with her. I know about other issues that other promoters I know have had. I, I can say, and it may not matter to them. But I, I know for a fact she's cost Dory Jr. money from people who just didn't want to deal with it. But like you said, like, who who cares if he's happy? That's really yeah. all that matters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you, remember right, okay. the, you remember the Coraluzzo quote? Which what? one? Barely ever been around him, only just a couple of times. And one time after one of those NWA uh, banquet shows or oh, tribute. Oh, I could stop you right there. I know which one you're talking about, too. It's the 1998 one where he, he wrestled against, uh, I want to say it was, it was him against Tommy Gilbert or maybe him and Dan. Se now I'm confused yeah. completely. But anyway. But I hardly was ever around Dennis Coraluzzo just a couple of times. And at that show, I actually overheard him say, probably to you, you know, if I ever, uh, if you ever hear me talk about, uh, working with uh dorian marty funk again shoot me in the fucking head <laughs> <laughs> see my dream match if i could go back in time my dream match would to you know get go to budokan hall in tokyo when everybody's there and and translate for for marty for yeah the new budokan the new budokan and translate uh for uh marty funk and mrs baba get them to talk shit about each other and just watch oh. them beat the shit out of each other i would have <laughs> <been doing> that <laughs> now brian yeah I, I, hey hey i saw saruda versus uh misawa live i saw that i would sacrifice that memory just to uh, see Marty fucking Papa at it. That would be bitching. What were you going to say, Bix? Were you at the show where the whole Severn Dory thing went down with Marty? Yes, and I think that's why I was getting confused between the 98 one and I'm going to guess that was 97 because 98 Severn worked against Franz Schumann, who came in from Austria. And I want to say Dory either worked against Tommy or a tag match where it was Tommy and Doug versus Dory and someone and i and i just don't remember off the top of my head but the year before i think because i don't think it was 96 i would think it would have been 97 it was dan severn versus dory funk and i don't know how much there certainly was some real shit but i also don't know how much of it was them and when i say them i don't yeah even, i don't even know if dan severn was involved i think it may have been just marty and and because it was marty dory gets lumped in with that trying to work their own angle for the Japanese press. I don't know. Yes. That, I don't know that for sure, mm -hmm. but because after what happened up North, they tried to continue whatever they were doing. It was at the Tampa fairgrounds and I was there and it was supposed to be the Sheik against Tommy Gilbert and the Sheik no showed much to my dismay. Um, but it was Dory against Severn. And that was the night of their infamous um, empty arena brawl or whatever you want to call it. And the impression that I get is that it was kind of like the Funks going into business for themselves and Dan kind of like going along with whatever he had to do to protect his own reputation, like standing up for himself. But it seems like Dorian, mainly his wife, because Howard Brody was promoting this particular show with, I think, the NWA, which was having oh, a yeah, resurgence no, it definitely, the time. It was definitely the NWA, yeah. Right. So I was kind of around for that. And it was kind of a thing where Severn was – kind of like unwittingly 
a part of it. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it was a bad yeah. position, but it was kind of like the funks doing what whatever they were doing. He was in a bad position okay. because what was he going to do? And I, the other thing was there was a lot of heat for a while because I, you know, again, it's it's been a while and I hadn't thought about this in a while. I think the issue was that the funk camp, which is what I'll call Dory and Marty for now, wanted an NWA title run. And at that time in the mid nineties, it was kind of out of the question, but I think that may, again, I don't know for sure, but I think that may have been one of the issues. Someone's breathing into the phone. So stop doing that. Uh, but um, James Earl Jones, he joined in on the line, (laughs) (laughs) but I was, I was using Dan Severn at that time. And he he told me it was, uh, you know, a work Dan Severn. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah, because I asked him. I was wondering what was going on with that. He, he just started laughing. So okay, I'm either I'm either hallucinating or time traveling because it's 1973, and a very young Marty Funk is saying to her father-in-law, "Dad, just say that the truck rolled over and Dory's hurt." <laughs> oh no, that's wrong for the business. <laughs> you know, by the way, another guy that took Dave under his um, wing, Dave Meltzer, was uh, Bosch. Yeah, Paul Bosch. That's right. That's right. It was right and after. Also, if you, I mean, let me drop a bomb on you guys. One of the rare things that I learned in my years of the business this is one of one of the most priceless pieces of information that I feel like I've gleaned. When I was hanging out with Gordon Soley at the ninety-eight NWA fiftieth anniversary huh. uh, slash CAC, no, but literally, I was hanging out with Soley like four hours each night drinking, and th- <laughs> there's no punchline of this story because I actually forgot it. But Gordon was of was of uh, Gordon said something to the effect of, "Oh, Sam Muchnick, uh, who do you think told him about so and so?" In other words, instead of crowning, I mean, it was about the crowning of a champion or something, and Soli was taking credit for Muchnick's position. He's like Sam Muchnick didn't know anything. I'm the one who told him that, and I'm the one behind that. <laughs> oh, and I, I wish I could. No, but I wish I could remember who that was, because it might very well be true. Because uh, I don't know, but um, Muchik was like, "And who do you think told him that?" Because like Muchik came up somehow, yeah, and I don't know what were, the context when were they talking? was. When were they having phone calls? <laughs> Hello, Sam. Wow. This is Gordon. I'm calling to tell you, you better not book. Dick Slater. Like, what? I, that I don't that I don't know that I don't know, and I have to admit it was it was two marathon drinking sessions um, oh. with Gordon. Um, but Brian, let me ask you this: Do you remember uh, there was one? I know you're confused, and so am I. About I think Dory. Okay, it was the weekend where ECW was versus Dennis. Well, that that, that was ECW the problem. Was, that was every year for the Eddie Gilbert thing for a while. Every time Dennis okay. ran the Eddie and Gilbert yeah, thing, they yeah, ran so I don't, against him. Or the same weekend. Okay, so I don't know if this was 97 or 98, but do you remember there was a like a breakfast banquet Q&A after oh, yeah. one of those shows? I filmed it. And I think it was, okay, I definitely know it was Dory versus Gilbert because I didn't go to it because I went to the ECW show. And um, if any of you historians out there want to document it, it was the, uh, the first Taipei death match. I know that was on the card, Ian, Ian versus Axel Rotten. I tend to remember like the garbage wrestling aspect. I don't think you're right. <laughs> well, that would be 95. I don't, yeah, I don't think you're right about that, Howard. That was 95. Okay. So, 
table that. Whatever this go, whatever this thing is, I went up to Tommy Gilbert and he's like, "Did you go to the show last night?" And I'm like, "No, I'm sorry. I knew Eddie and everything, but however, I went to the ECW show." And he immediately turned recalcitrant. He was very angry at the moment. And I remember there was this little, there was this like breakfast buffet. You remember this, Brian? It was like in a small room. And, it was in the um, hotel. It was in the, and I think it was the Holiday Inn in Cherry Hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, there exactly, was a exactly. A little, a tiny banquet room. I think it was part of the big exactly. banquet room where they put up a wall divider. And there was a breakfast yes. uh, Q&A with Jim Cornette, Dory Funk Jr. He said something, and I still remember to this day. Uh, various of Dennis's workers showed up, and uh, I remember Jim Cornette, I have it on video somewhere, pointed out Devin Storm shows up, and Jim's trying to put over all Dennis's guys, and he actually says, <laughs> and Devin... Uh, I'm sorry, Devin. The only thing I've seen of you is that video Brian Last keeps showing everyone of you falling onto your head. And, and Devin looks so disappointed. He looks so upset. He's like, thanks, Brian. It was really oh my God. camera. But That's what friends are for. There was a quote that I always well, remember because it was really good. Go back to your thing in a second hour. But someone asked Dory Funk Jr. if it was too easy to become a professional wrestler. And you would think he would right away go, yes, yes. I, you know, in my day, not everyone could do it. But his answer was, it's not easy to be a well-paid professional wrestler. And I always remember that. That always stuck That's with awesome. Me. Yeah, good answer. <laughs> well, also, answer. you remember, well, you remember Harley, Race had a, Harley Race had to catch a flight, yeah. and it was this breakfast buffet. And I remember I was taking a big um, scoop full of uh, bacon, and <laughs> somebody made an announcement like, if you have any questions for Harley Race, please ask him now. And then he was standing right next to me at the breakfast thing, and he's like, because Harley Race has a plane to catch. And he's like, uh, I go, oh, no, you're not getting in front of me, pal. And he laughed. <laughs> I just instinctively, I figured he's not going to kill me in front of a whole room full of people. But that was great. My, my favorite uh, qu- uh, question somebody asked the rest of was when we introduced Steve Sims to Dr. Jerry Graham. And it was the perfect introduction because we just went to his hotel one night just to see if he was there. And it was 8 in the evening and uh, – you know, he opens the door barely, you know, just like, oh, what the fuck? Are, are, you, are you ready to work out? And we're going, no, Jerry, we just thought we'd stop by, see if you want to get something to eat. And he goes, what, what time is it? We go, 8 o'clock. Whoa, you guys are up early. We're going, no, Doc, it's 8 in the evening. Want to get some pizza or something? <laughs> so so uh, we're with him, Pat Howard, Fisico, and we're talking, and then uh, – uh, I, I wish I had it on tape because Steve Sims and Doc started talking about some of the clubs in Chicago that they were both familiar with, which was a kind of a surprising conversation. But then I, I love that <laughs> Steve Sims says, of all the wrestlers you've known, which ones were f- faithful to their wives? And Doc, it didn't even take a millisecond. <laughs> not one, not one. <laughs> he goes, there's got to be somebody somewhere. No, no. He says, look, they're whoremongers. They're all whores. <laughs> like, like, there's not a good soul in the business. They're all... Uh... I loved it. And then Steve Sims stole Jamie Ward's rental car and went home. <laughs> I believe that's how that story ends. But... I remember that story. Yeah, I mean, I like Steve, but that's not the only story I've heard like that. No, there's a, yeah, few, there's, there's a bunch of shit. There's several. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hence, yeah, hence, and I hence, same here. I love the guy show. too, but yeah. yeah. Well, we'll talk about it uh, another time. Yeah, yeah. So, With Steve. Uh, this one person, I had one other person who said he may be available for the show. And actually, I think he is. Let me add him. He will be the last person. I presume we're adding because we have now crossed the three-hour barrier. 
Uh, oh. He just wrote, I can be on in five. So actually, he's not ready. I'll let you guys resume the conversation, starting with Scott Cornish. Honk, honk. Jerry. <laughs> Why is Scott always first? Yes. <laughs> because I'm not last. <laughs> <laughs> There's that noted humor. <laughs> that note has come due. <laughs> oh, I've got an attack of appendicitis. <laughs> you know what it is? We have a bunch of guys on the line right now who everyone, I, I think everyone, I don't know about Jerry, but I'm going to assume everyone else, because I know several of you have talked to you about it, SCTV fans. Love yes. them. Five neat guys. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been binging the SCTV lately. Hey, by the way, you know I want to start a new. I want to I want to turn people on to something good every time I come on. And my recommendation for this time is Shit's Creek. I thought it looked like a comedy yes! program. I, I thought it looked like you know Common Fair. I don't usually do the sitcoms or anything. Shit's Creek is so good. I just binged awesome. the first season, and I've got to catch up. I highly recommend it. Hmm. I'm in love with Catherine O'Hara all over again. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. The how name funny of the is she in that show? I love her inflections. She's like, I, you know, I can't do it, but whatever it is, it's yeah. hilarious. Definitely. She's still got it. <laughs> her character is like a, a version of uh, Lola Heatherton. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I want to have your wanna, babies or whatever she would say. I want to bury your yes. children. I want to bury your children. Bury your children. <laughs> And I love that in that Chris Elliott is does that creepy sense of humor that he pulls off so well. Right, right. He's like in the first season, he's like they want nothing to do with him. He's like, you're gonna come over, you're gonna spend all night with us. <laughs> it's like he's demanding yeah. them. He's, it's like, oh, what a nightmare. And it, yeah, creepy <laughs> like, and just close enough to be endearing that is scary, you know? <laughs> yeah. He really, he really, um, that's like really his wheelhouse, like the obnoxious creep who doesn't realize it. And uh, I loved him as, uh, as the uh, son of Fred Willard and, uh, oh, was it the woman who played Georgia Engel in Everybody Loves Raymond, who is still living at home in his 40s. <laughs> I didn't even. Oh, it, it's yeah. worth going back and finding it. it it's like yeah. I, Elena loved everyone, loves the Ra Everybody Loves Raymond. I liked it okay. But then Chris Elliott was a, uh, one of the um, cast for a while, and I didn't miss an episode. He had me belly laughing every time. Hey, you know what? On the topic of Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, I think that's the right show. If anyone out there, any listeners have any contact information for Brad Garrett, get in touch with the show. Because I actually need someone to play mm -hmm. Andre the Giant in Pandemonium Theater. Oh, my God. And he did Andre ah! on the Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling yeah. cartoon movie. That's that right. Awesome. Right. No, he was Hogan. He was Hogan. Was I don't he Hogan? Think he was oh, forget it. He was Hogan. You're fired. No, no, no. But Jason. Uh -huh. No, no, no. But Jason Siegel does the best Andre the Giant. Who? That's true. Jason Siegel. Yeah, he mm. does. Who? I don't know who that is. Who's Jason Siegel? You From, know, you know. Forgetting Sarah Marshall, the, yeah. the newest oh, oh, puppets oh, movies. Oh. I'm thinking wrestling. I didn't realize you guys were talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, <laughs> he's actually great. I love freaks and geeks and everything. Yeah, yeah. No, Jason Siegel does the best Andre the Giant. When he was on Saturday Night true, Live, actually, he did it. Yeah. I've never heard this, no? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to look it up. I'm sure it's All out right. there. He does the best Andre the Giant. If anyone out there is friends with Jason Siegel, get him in touch with the show. He could play Andre in Pandemonium Theater. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think last I had heard, I think Brad Garrett uh, 
at least has his name on a, uh, I think, a comedy club in Vegas. Mm-hmm. I want to say, I want to say yeah. the MGM Grand. I want, yeah, maybe he could play Hogan. We got to get a, a Hogan on the thing, so <laughs> we should ask him. I'll, yeah. I'll promote whatever he's doing. He could promote it on the Super Podcast. Well, he sounded nothing like Hulk Hogan, though. But but does, uh. I'm, who am I going to get that's going to sound like Hogan? I mean, there are certain cases where I need someone who will sound like the person, and then there are other cases where it just has to be someone who could do it right. Amy sure. Lee as Linda McMahon will be perfect. <laughs> you know, but she won't sound like Linda McMahon, but still, it'll be perfect. So, oh, by the by the way, speaking of Linda McMahon, is it me or is it weird that no one ever mentions that they obviously don't live together anymore, Vince and Linda? Well, you mm, and I, really? you and I both know a few things about this. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say anything that you're planning on revealing in any future projects about this, so sure. I won't. Other than saying <laughs> that there's a lot of details about their relationship that the public has been completely unaware of for a very long time. <laughs> Is that fair to say, Bix? Oh, good. That's yes. fair. Come on, tell us everything, guys. Come on, come on. Just tell us everything. Uh, yeah, let's they're, hear they're all whores. They're all whores, Kurt. They're all whores. <laughs> <laughs> they suck their mother's pussies. They cornhole their pregnant brothers, and they fuck yeah. their pregnant sisters, and, and they're whores. Yes. <laughs> and then they got out the bearskin rug. <laughs> hey, you know what? On, on terms of Dr. Jerry Graham quotes, the one I find myself doing the most because it's easy to apply to everything is the one Jerry does. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> I was so jazzed when Jerry told when Jerry Gray told the story because I forgot that I had him on tape saying nobody knows. Yeah. yeah. Had... Awesome. Who's going to write that book if you don't do it, Kurt? Uh, God. <laughs> Who would believe it? <laughs> and <that's> not... <laughs> I, 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 would, I would be on the next launch of Oprah, and she'd say, you're the next James Fry, aren't you? A million little pieces, my ass. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think... I, I... Kurt, I think you, I think you have to like get makeup and a fat suit on, like Hal Holbrook style, and do like a one man show, Doctor Jerry Graham tonight. We could get Hal Holbrook to do Doctor Jerry Graham instead of Mark Twain. Oh, dude, that would be so awesome! <laughs> I'll balloon up to three hundred pounds. I just yeah, that's why one night only at the coffee house, I'll have somebody playing bongos behind me and I'm wearing nothing but my towel. <laughs> All right, guys, hold on. Let me add the last person, uh, I assume the last person, to this call because he is now available. And uh, I'm adding him now. He's one of our West Coast contingent here on the Super Podcast Holiday Star Wars Spectacular. Yellow again, everybody. And there he is, the host of Kentucky Fried Wrestling, none other than that dastardly Scott Bowden from Memphis, Tennessee, <laughs> from Germantown, yeah. Memphis, hey, Tennessee. Hey, yeah. hey uh, right. Bowden on the line with us right now. What an what a amazing all-star roster this is. Scott <laughs> Cornish, Jerry Gray, Kurt Brown, Lou Kippelman, David Bixenspan. Am I forgetting anyone? I'm just doing off the top of Lucky my head. Lucky Pete the Howard Baum. The great Howard the Baum. HIV, HIV uh-huh. kid. The HIV yes. kid. Lucky Pierre. Rockin' Jerry Brown. 
Venereal Drummond. Harley racist. The Femme Nikita Koloff. <laughs> oh, That's is right. That, no, I didn't. I, I, did, I didn't know there was a new Harley racist character. Is that, uh, is that is that one of Cornish's inventions or? <laughs> no, no, no. That was, that, was one of, a, that was one of Johnny Legend's incredibly strange uh, inventions. I <laughs> uh, see. Is Mil Mascaris on the line? I was promised. Mip, oh, or at least, Mip, or at least, uh, Mip, see, uh, see. Uh, we Sorry, we they... just t- we just took him out on a stretcher. You just missed him. <laughs> <laughs> you know. By the way. Um, John Arezzi told an amazing Mil Mascarish story on the thing he did with Russo. What did he say? I'm not sure. Okay, so this was this was when he's doing those IWAS tours of Asia and stuff, and he booked Mill on one, and Mill, without asking, upgrades his flight to first class, and then demand, demands John reimburse him. And he's like, no, you didn't ask me to approve that, et cetera. Okay, so, oh, I do know this story. John told me this story, yeah. Okay, but this is the first time I ever... I don't think he'd ever told me, and this is the first time I've ever seen him tell it in public anywhere. Um, so then... A year later, John's out of the wrestling. He gets a phone call one day. Mil Mascaris. So, John, when are you going to reimburse me for that first-class plane ticket? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you calling me? I've been out of wrestling for a year, and I never uh, approved that in the first place. Hey, Mascaris is still waiting for that payoff, that little extra payoff for that stretcher ride he took. That's right, yes. 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 <laughs> well, for you, interest with a little interest thrown in. I, I think my favorite Mil Mosker story was I. I can't remember if I told this one already, but a friend of mine was wrestling on just some spot show down in the San Diego area, and it was one of those shows where everything was going wrong. Half the people didn't show, but Moscaris was there, and it ended up being Moscaris and uh, one just some a local boy. Like forgettable local boy, not even somebody up there, <laughs> and he is wrestling uh, this uh, guy Sergio, and I can't remember who the other guy was. And everything goes wrong, including the crowd. There's maybe what fifty people there, <laughs> and you know, Mill is uh, tiptoeing to the ring. Uh, <laughs> Gracefully, they, as he only he can. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, this is back in the 90s, so, you know, we, we didn't have our cell phones to film things. There's this little six-year-old girl with this gigantic camcorder that she can mm. barely hold, but she's she's trying to film the match. Oh, God, I know Moskers, where this is going. Yeah, Mil Moskers is about to get in the ring. He sees her. You know, he he sees her sweet little eyes and, you know, sees the girl holding a camera almost as big as she is and tiptoes over to her and says, young lady, you do not have authorization to uh, videotape my image. You have to turn the camera off or I'll have you removed. (laughs) Oh, my. He's a a legend. I mean, he would would probably be very upset if he knew that I accidentally tape recorded our conversation uh, during that. $50 $50 autograph session that I'll talk about reimbursement that la- that Brian Lass is, is refusing to reimburse me for. <laughs> I'll pay you double. I'll pay you double. That was one of the funniest recordings ever. Cause we're on the line, our pre recording call. We're going over things. We are within two minutes of recording. We're about to do it. And whatever hit me, I said, let me Google 
if there's any Mil Moskowitz autograph signings at any point. Because I figure if there's going to be any, they're going to be in <laughs> Southern California, and that's where Bowden lives. And, and I've been looking for like I've been looking for like ten years, and I usually miss it by like two days, or it's going to be three months from now, and then I forget about it or something. But uh, I've never been able to to catch him, baby. It's almost like the midnight ride, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually can boast I got my picture taken with him and Cico Delico uh, gratis free. I was just in wow. the dressing room at an indie show, and there they were. And took yeah. the where, and- Wait a minute. My first question, where was Mil Mascaris' uh, uh, entourage? I mean, this guy had more people around him than J-Lo at this thing. And it really? Was just, <laughs> it was See, crazy. I've never seen that. I've seen him at a lot of shows, <laughs> and he never takes his mask off, but I've never seen him with anybody. I, oh, he only has gosh. a few friends. Yeah, <laughs> no, he, he had a few guys. And then, I'm, you know, I'm, I, you know, I was wearing these ill-fitting skinny jeans that my wife bought me and it actually you know set off the recording device and it recorded our conversation which is is against california law and i would never have done it otherwise uh but and i'm assuming for 50 bucks they're gonna have like a professional camera set up and everything right no they want you to use your own cell phone so i'm recording this and the guy goes the phone and i went what i I thought he was on to me and he goes no 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 to take the picture and i went oh okay <laughs> and, and i'm afraid that he, he doesn't see that i'm recording this thing or seriously i think they would have oh i think i think they would have knifed me <laughs> well no we we didn't air it on the show so no one got to hear it i got to hear him running to his car afterwards and he's running out of breath and he's breathing heavy and he's just and then he finally gets in the car and he's so relieved that the tape recorder it worked <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing him running to the car with some suspenseful Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass soundtrack in the background. Oh, I ran all the way to the nearest Del Taco and, uh, <laughs> and, and called Jerry Jarrett and said, hey, I just ran into oh, – I didn't ran in, run into him. I said, I just uh, I just had an appearance – went to an appearance with Mil Mascaris and asked him about Memphis. And he goes, and what did he say? And I said, well, he said it was him. Well, I told you. (laughs) That is not what he said, and there's no verification for Jerry's story. What? What? He gave it. Yeah, dude, he he. I, look, I had it explained to me later. Like, I kept asking, "Now, are you confirming that this was you?" Well, yes, that was me in Memphis. I wrestled in Memphis. No, nope, that's I, not. I, I that's rest, not I how rest, it went. Nope. I wrestle in Texas. I wrest. I wrestle all over the world. I was a hero to to million. See, now now you're kind of doing it more honestly. There, it was. It's uh, a little, empty, and you didn't want to just come out and ask him. You could listen to the tape. You're kind of like trying to lead him a little bit, like a really bad attorney. And no. like, oh, you see this here, Memphis, Tennessee. You see this, this date. You see this show. You see this poster. That's your name, isn't it? That was yeah. you. And and he, oh, he, yeah. That's because uh, uh, oh, oh, denial. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, it, which which had to be in reference to the after party that they went to at Poncho's in Memphis afterward. <laughs> I mean, it was a it was a crazy scene. Or maybe he just had memories of that awful match they had months later in Japan. Does every town have a Poncho's? We had one near Long Beach in Island Park. Oh man, that's just Cantina. Or they still they still they still exist, I believe. Yeah, but yeah, I'm, not, I'm not there anymore, so I pretend like they burned down. Yeah, I used to do shots of that uh, that cheese dip, man. That was that was good stuff. What? <laughs> <laughs> the, the cheese dip, the Poncho's cheese dip. It's not a chain. Okay. It's the... what? Shots. What do you you say? You sound like a I fan. Know it's in, not a cheese. You sound like you sound like a wrestling fan in Memphis. It, what the chain? It's a chain. <laughs> it's not a chain. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but all, all kidding aside, there's no way it was Mil Moscaris in Memphis that night. There's hey, no hey, way. Hey, how dare you insult the <laughs> <laughs> No I mean, way. sure, he's used a phony Mr. Wrestling. Sure, he's used a fake mass superstar. Uh, who else? Uh, this uh, The Assassins. Uh, but in this case... Fake this flame. Case, in this case, it was the international superstar, Mil Mascaris. Well, you know Mil what, though? Here, here's why I, Here's why I'm with Scott, though. If it was a fake Mil Mascaris, Jarrett would have used him more than once. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, mm. yes. Oh, oh, no, that's not true. It, it, I'll give you the no, only. No, yeah, the only hold on. I, I, I'm going to disprove it, that theory right now, Bix. He was barely passing through. Bix, how many times did Jarrett use Yo Mamba, the Jungle Savage? No, but I'm talking about the fake masked wrestlers were all regulars in the territory. Times. Yes, that's true. That's fake masked true. superstar was. Fake assassins were. Fake out of all of those was, guys, fake Mr. Wrestling on, was. Dude, out of all of those guys, out of all of those guys. Mil Moskris was the one that would be most recognizable if you had a fake because he was in all those magazines. So I don't think they could have done it more than once. Mass Superstar, Mr. Wrestling? Come on. Who played the Mass Superstar had been on, on national TV and multiple promotions before the Memphis was to wrestle. Well, what's, what's funny Terry is when I, when I heard about that, when I first heard that story, I, I didn't really think heads or tails of it. And when I was... Uh, doing all that research on uh, Charo Aguayo, who was like the first heavyweight superstar in Mexico, <clears throat> there was so little info on him. And then I was shocked to find that he just renamed himself Don Cortez and was pretty much uh, – sounds like he was like the road agent or the equivalent of the road agent for Nick Goulas up until his death in the early 60s. And so there was a connection with uh, Salvador Luth- Luteroth. Mm-hmm. Like a legitimate one, not just um, yeah. Diamante Negro connection. <laughs> and so when so, so suddenly I kind of thought to myself, huh, maybe that's why there was a connection between Moscaris and Jared. That well, yeah, that's the only but, thing I could think of. Yeah, that's that's the deal entirely. Like uh, Jared was at an NWA convention, and uh, you know he and Luderoth, of course, are going to hit it off perfectly they you know have very similar uh i love it a promoter moscarus i love it <laughs> well you know he's from mexico jared likes mexican food it makes sense <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, seriously think about it okay i love those hot tomatoes <laughs> no, no, yes. I, I think we can make a serious case for this because jared ran a territory for smaller wrestlers in mexico they had smaller wrestlers absolutely jared mm-hmm. did not have the best ref Reputation for pay. Uh, neither did the looter offs. All right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, somebody was making money. To make that, that, that well, and, something, and, and, and again, kind of a circle of cycling back to Raul Mata here. I actually remember seeing Mil Moscaris do a clean job in 72 oh. uh, because he had this uh, much hyped Texas death match with Ernie Ladd. And uh, it's the weirdest thing the way they did TV here. You know, they had the Wednesday night shows and the Saturday night shows, uh, one for English TV, one for Spanish TV. And then every now and uh, then they would just air um, a Friday night Olympic show that was not to be televised. Then they just show the whole thing unscheduled. And if you were lucky, you happened to cross it as you were channel surfing. And I just happened to turn on the entire Texas death match. And it does end with Lad with his taped thumb just jabbing the hell out of Moscaris to where Moscaris loses the Texas death match cleanly. 
And then Raul Mata does this run-in to save Moscaris and, like, wails on Ladd. And Ladd sells a few punches, and Moscaris, I mean, Mata has just this rage in his face. uh, Ladd rakes the eyes, like I told you before, and then he starts jabbing Mata in the throat, and Mata just spits blood all over his, like, (laughs) stomach. And it does, like, the the death throws, and his eyes are rolling up in his head. I'm like 10 fucking years old. So, so you, think Ernie Ladd, <laughs> you think Ernie Ladd is the baddest motherfucker going at this point? Ernie Ladd is the only heel who ever scared me, except for Lamomia. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Because, I mean, I, you know, mine's like this usual, like Stomper was the first guy. He was the first guy I noticed, you know, because he was tossing guys around like sacks of garbage. Uh, and then later on, it was LaDuke, you know. Which, which uh, I guess, was, but I never thought about Ernie Lab. But man, if you saw that, kicking middle oh, mascara, it, yeah, that's. And, a, I'm, and I'm not joking. I, I, and I, I appreciate Ernie Lab more today than ever before. I find myself enjoying him more now than whenever I was a tape trader or oh. a big fan. His stuff is amazing. His promos, <laughs> yeah, he was some a of the best. Oh, and, yeah. and you know what happened after he thumbed Raul Mata like that, and they carried Raul Mata on the stretcher, is, uh, and this was all Ernie Lab's idea. Ruben Juarez, who they wanted to get over, who was like five foot three, runs in like nicely dressed and takes off like one of his dress shoes and just starts just crowning Lad with it over and over. Lad juices for him. Then Lad does the Alka Seltzer spot where he foams at the mouth. Oh boy! <laughs> and just and Ruben Juarez just beats him into oblivion. And years later, when I was getting to know Jeff Walton, he said that was all Ernie Lad's idea. They said we can't get a little guy five foot three over, and all. I guess other wrestlers were bitching about having to sell for him, even. And Lad just says, "says I'm the one putting him over." <laughs> and they said, oh, "You, uh, you can't. You're six foot like something." You, and he says, "I'm putting him over." It, it, and it's, uh, it's, it, that'd be, it'd be like Lad like selling big time for Bill Dundee. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And years later, they uh, just happened to reunite at Cauliflower Alley. I wish I was there that year. And apparently, uh, Juarez, the first thing he said is, this is the guy who uh, gave me my break in L.A. <laughs> Man. Mm-hmm. I saw, he did the same for Chavo. He sold for Chavo in the same fashion. Yeah, you exactly. Know I, I, will say, I will say this, though. And this again, this hurts my, my own argument here, though. I was going to do a little, uh, you know, tricky little Photoshop business with uh, Mil Mascaris uh, on a stretcher, you know, with Lawler there and stuff. And so I, I, I went through hundreds of Mil Mascaris pictures online. I could not find one picture of him at a disadvantage. <laughs> I mean, they are real, seriously, they're few and far between of him having, showing any kind of anguish or being in any kind of pain whatsoever. Uh, he is because usually. He's a- Man of wrestling. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, uh, well, let me tell you something, baby. Fargo and Lawler are packing grip tonight on this night. <laughs> hey, Scott, <laughs> what were you going to say before? And well, and the, and the fun, one of the funniest things about it. Well, this Scott. is this is what kills uh, Brian. Is <laughs> not only that, not only did did Vasquez uh, supposedly, you know, well, he did, he did the stretcher job, but he insisted that he <laughs> the one to do it. He changed the finish. Yeah, see, that's okay, the ridiculous part. That's the ridiculous fucking part. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What if? Okay. What if all that part is bullshit? But. It was really Mill Mascaris and Lawler hit him with one of those lottery punches, and then they just gently moved him to the stretcher after knocking him out. 
Uh, I don't know. I yeah, don't... I, I remember several people, including uh, Conan, who at the time did not like Moscara, said, I'll say a lot of things about Moscara, but he's not somebody you should fuck around with. <laughs> well, that's true. No, he was a legitimate judo well, player what, and stuff. What, yeah. what, Jarrett, what Jarrett was saying was that, you know, the relationships back then were were so much stronger than they are today, and a lot of people can't even can't even grasp that. He goes, he goes, goes if I sent Lala to Mexico to work for Salvador Luterov, and he had him lose a Texas death match to a donkey. Lawler would do it. <laughs> and likewise, yeah. which, which, which is a great visual. <laughs> that is a great visual. Especially if the donkey is a bit underage. Yes. Exactly. Oh. What? Oh. oh. Wow. Good job, oh. Kurt. Yeah. Well, then I think Lawler could have handled Marlon himself. In here. Hey, I think, it, I think Lawler could have handled himself just fine then. <laughs> but who's going to hold the video camera? Oh, okay. Hi-oh. You know what? I I, uh, I got to get going. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you're just starting to get going. Come on. You know, you know the thing about it is, I always like I get going on these things, and I always forget we're. This is not just us bullshitting. <laughs> Brian's gonna actually release this. <laughs> no, there is. Hey, Scott. Bowden, you have nothing to worry about. I have Burt Prentice on my balcony as a lookout right now to make sure <laughs> nothing bad happens. <laughs> oh, I, I, oh. guarantee, I guarantee you, man, Burt, Burt Prentice was sleeping with one eye open when he was in the hospital recently because he's the only <laughs> last survivor. I know. I know. He more to die. If Lawler accidentally accidentally tripped over that <laughs> that plug, keeping him on life support. <laughs> that reminds me, too. Uh, did any of you see who made his illustrious return on Prentice's TV this week? Prentice has uh, TV? What? Yes. You did a podcast with him where he talked about this. I, I really didn't pay attention. All I was thinking about was him giving Howard Baum a suitcase full of G-strings. Yes. Yeah, really. <laughs> That's all I've been thinking about since 1987, for God's sake. Are, are you are you wearing one now, Howard? <laughs> I, as a matter of fact, I am. Do you have cameras set up in here or what? Hold on, I feel like I'll I should cover Julie up all of a sudden. <laughs> anyway. Come on, Big Brother is watching you, so put on a bitch and show for him. I anyway. feel like I need to close the drapes. I don't know how you knew that. <laughs> I opened the drapes. Come on. Vince, <laughs> what are you trying to say? The, the illustrious Colorado kid, Mike Rapata, made his return to oh, USA Lordy. Championship Wrestling. Get out of here. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Former he, wow. NWA World Heavyweight Champion. Has he done anything in wrestling in the – I mean, I haven't heard about him in years. When was the last time he did anything in wrestling? And like besides – I don't know. I mean, besides – You mean he's, besides – He's a real person? <laughs> Oh, so, that's right. So He's he, an NWA, a former NWA champion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he didn't show up at the NWA 70 uh, pay-per-view? <laughs> yeah, Tommy Rich. Tommy Rich yeah. is no longer the worst NWA World Heavyweight Champion in history. <laughs> uh, no, well, well, first of all, the worst NWA World Heavyweight Champion is the fake Sheik. That's what I was going to say. Who yeah. the fuck right. is that guy? Yeah. <laughs> or... Yeah, as opposed to the Tokyo Monster. Well, yeah, I, I I haven't seen enough of Tokyo Monster Kahagas to weigh in on him, but I mean, as far as I know, I don't think he paid to get the title, whereas someone else may have. They got to do one of those IWGP history videos for the NWA title so you can see how ridiculous the fucking NWA is. Right, post, and, post <laughs> 19, post 1990. No, no, you got to start at the beginning. Start with. 
you know, start with Orville Brown, start with Luthes, <laughs> right. work your way up to the Colorado kid and the fake Sheik and Colt Cabana and every other idiot that held that title. We can redeem it. We can redeem it. All we have to do, okay, one of us has to drive Phoenix, Arizona, go uh, hit up hot stuff, Tony, Tony Hernandez, buy his old Frankenstein monster outfit. We don't need no Tokyo Monster. We got the monster as world well, well, champion. Hold on. Save that idea, Kurt, because I have, a, I have some news right here. I am buying the WWA and bringing it back. Just Which one? Like <laughs> the WWA from Los Angeles, one of the major world titles. It was okay. like it was like seven and a half pounds of gold, and I'm going to bring it back. A whole new series. <laughs> seven point <Yes>! five. <laughs> the seven point five Super Podcast. <laughs> and, it, and it'll be as valid a world championship as the NWA World Championship is now. <laughs> Uh, I just I just bought the URL for seven point five super podcasts. So. Oh goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, okay. uh, quick quick thing real quick. Howard Baum before brought up the uh the Q and A from the Dennis Carluzzo Eddie Gilbert show uh from ninety eight, I guess it was, or maybe ninety seven. And I do remember Howard at that breakfast. It was a buffet and then you sat down with your food. And I do remember that yeah. because I was eating my French toast, like I always do. <laughs> and Howard, and, and you were with your friend John, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. And John Mastandrea, shout out, all the way up there in Singapore. I, you saw what I was going to have, and you just said, Brian, it looks good. Are you going to suck the cholesterol out with a straw? It <laughs> 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 always stayed with me. <laughs> Not one of my greatest, apparently, but... But when I, Harley I Race wanted to bump me in line because he had a, he was going to miss his flight, they were like, Harley Race needs to leave. I'm like, and he tried to get in front of me. I'm like, oh, no. And he, like, laughed. I'm like, thank God he laughed. <laughs> Please, I need some hash browns. You have an Somebody get the damn bacon. <laughs> These are the best sausage links on God's green earth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he looked younger there than he did when he was the world champion with the fro with, with fro with the perm he looked uh, younger yeah. when he had the blonde hair straight and combed down than he did with the it, perm it's a yeah, yeah. every time i see a photo of him with a perm it really is a time travel for me because i remember guys his age everywhere in like around 75 76 getting perms all the time, and most of them who should not have been getting perms. Lawler, Lawler had that uh, that one day run with the perm. Uh, the I don't Freebirds. remember yeah. that. Oh my god! One day it was yeah. one. Yeah, the Freebirds. Yeah, Freebirds yeah. debut. Where, uh, where he looked a lot like uh, the guy. Uh, not was it Starsky or Hutch who he was trying to emulate? I, I think it was Starsky, the Paul Michael Glazer. Yes, right. Yes. Yes, Paul Michael Lawler. You know what? You know what the funniest <laughs> exchange was that I saw on the internet between Brian and Professor Ouch talking about Lawler working a uh, a northeastern show, and uh, Professor Ouch turned Lawler onto Betty Page and her bangs and her general black outfit. Ah. So 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 Jerry Lawler comes out for his match, and as Professor Ouch describes it, and Lawler has the hard bangs. Which is hilarious <laughs> because Lawler and Dave Penzer, because Lawler and Dave Penzer are the only two people to rock the bangs in professional wrestling. And I thought, oh, that's so funny—the hard bangs, in like the '90s when it really was the hard bangs. And Lawler comes out in a black outfit and he goes to Professor Ouch, "Hey, look, I'm wearing my Betty Page outfit." Betty, 
Oh my god. Did he change his finisher? Did he change his finisher to the Irving Claw? When Lawler agreed to do the head shaving, you know, he had his own personal hairstylist in there. And seriously, he was going he was going for the Bruce Willis look. He's maybe the biggest star in wrestling history that people ignore the fact that he had just a stupid haircut throughout his entire career. Yeah. To the point where it didn't and, even look yeah. like it was real hair. But man, we thought we thought he was cool, man. And the, the hard fans. bangs. That's and so funny. Fans. I never yeah. saw it described. My whole life I'm thinking, what kind of a hairdo is that? And then I saw Professor Ouch like he had the hard bangs. I'm like, oh, that is so funny. <laughs> the hard thing. He, he needs the goatee. Without the goatee, he's not Lawler. That's no, right? No. That's, yeah, that's totally. Why did he shave that shit? Exactly. And for like for a while in '78, he was wearing like the double straps, and the, it was like and stars and stripes. He looked like like a like a knockoff of Evil Knievel. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, and it's, he already kind of has a bulbous head, but man, I swear that that goatee takes twenty pounds off. It does. Well, you know, I think he's a borderline endomorph. There's certain endomorphs in wrestling where if you look up, no, but if you look, if you, seriously, if you look up, you are borderline endomorph in the business. Borderline, no, because I think he's a borderline. You know, you know, who's an endomorph? Frank Morell. There's an endomorph. Yeah. Bert, Bert Prentice, he's an endomorph. Uh, endomorph. Tor- Torquemada. Um, um, people like that. There's another one. That, uh, Taris Bulmakano. Bulmakano used to be a bit of an endomorph, but now she's uh, just skinny again. Huh. Oh. Well, an endomorph, you know, they, <laughs> I they carry their weight in their stomach. What a jerk. They carry their weight in their stomach. Their limbs are not very long. And they don't really have a neck, like the head goes into the body. And that's the, that's the classic endomorph, you know? Okay. And Lawler admitted when he got, you know what's odd? Like, okay, so Lawler's a big star, but he always admits facts about his, his personal life. And I don't know why he does that, really. But he's why? like, you know, like, like he's what? like, you know, I always had this, like, fat throat, or I don't know how he described it. He's like, that's why I always wore the goatee. And he and he was talking about why he had that surgery to eliminate his double chin when he had like the, well, the thread implanted in his in his um, neck or whatever. Wait, yeah. when was that? This is way um, before the facelift, like in the eighties, or this is yeah, yeah but it, no, yeah, no, this he, is this no, is he, WWE he, time. Okay, he, it had to be was, like late ni- late nineties or. Well, hold on, stop Bowden. I actually have the answer, Bowden. What are you saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I remember this, it, but it wasn't like he was doing a promo. <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah, he did admit to it on, uh, on like I think, like a shoot interview. But I, I thought you were talking about like like a, when he would go on the air and talk talk about his personal life. But no, no, he, no, he, not was, that because that always was a means to an end because he would always do that like, oh shucks, I'm shooting, yeah, but I'm yeah, going to totally right. lie. Yeah, yeah. But I yeah. mean, in a shoot interview, he was either like in his book he talked about the cat, and in his oh, real Lord. life in a shoot interview. He's like, oh, uh, you know, I always had like a fat neck. I always had like a double chin, and that's why I always wore the goatee. But then I had this surgery done, and I'm just very surprised at him. But I think that may be one of the keys to his success because he really – it's kind of like, oh, it's I'm, – I'm being honest, and that's really easy to fake kind of thing where he he like he wants to portray himself as a normal person so he talks about this normal shit 
like girlfriend problems, plastic surgery issues and stuff. So anyway, he came out and he's like, well, I always had this fat neck and that's why I wore my, I had the goatee and everything. And I'm like, why would you admit to that? I don't think I, I don't think he ever admitted that that was the reason for the goatee. Although to me it was pretty. No, obvious. I totally saw that. I totally but, saw that. Well, I remember a lot that. of a lot of people didn't get though that originally the goatee started because uh, to making to distinguish himself because it was it was supposed to be a crown it was supposed to be a crown shaped goatee which yeah, a lot which of people it was. Yeah, which but it was. I, I totally that, got I, that as a kid. I, I tell that to some people who grew up in Memphis and they're like. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was. and I'm like, wow. Hmm. It, but it no, I got from that. The, it detracts from the bulbous head, and uh, I, I have on tape the doc telling Tom Hankins, "You're gonna get over because you got that big head. You're like a rocket, Monroe. Your head is very." Big and that's no that's no derogatory statement there, Charlie. It's it's like somebody did the rum dum boogie on Rocket's head and he got over. Well, people with big heads make you it know, on TV. You know what that's <laughs> called? That's called the lo- that's called the lollipop head. That a lot of big stars have that where they have a tiny little body and a big giant head. What, Debbie what, what, Harry, what, Tom Cruise, famous Richard lollipop Keel. heads. Think about it. What is it, what is Keel your from what is your nickname for Lawler, Howard? Me? Yeah. My nickname? You, you yeah, have a, you, you have a pet nickname for Lawler Howard? You haven't told me this. I don't believe so. <laughs> no, I mean, no. <laughs> you, call, you called him a beautiful liar. That's right. That's right. That's, that's, the, story, that's, I don't know that's the, the story of Memphis wrestling. Lawler's the beautiful liar, and Jerry Jarrett's <laughs> right. a comfortable liar. Somebody still needs to well, and, no, I, uh, I look at. That's been years since I read since I read uh, that autobiography he did. But the one that struck me the most is he talked about how his only vice is sex, and he's glad because it has not done him like any harm. And I, as I'm well, reading, I'm saying, wait a minute, some strippers you were banging colluded with some cops, hoping to rob your house, and if you were there, they were going to kill you. And, and so, by, the way, by the way, I totally believe he had two hundred grand stuffed in. I absolutely really, oh, absolutely, one hundred percent did. Yeah. Yep. In this, in this day and age, I would never keep cash in my house. Oh, wait, did he uh, take WMC to his house and like, here's my jukebox. You can look after he clearly <laughs> stuck the cash somewhere. I tell you, I the he owns the Memphis media like the Godfather. I mean, it's just what whatever he says, they just. They believe it. I thought well, I he mean, was... they barely even covered the Louisville case for the most part, right? Yeah, and then Bix, when your story came out, I went, "Wow, man, this is going to be nasty." Not one Memphis journalist picked up on it, which you know, I mean, it's it, it, it w- w- the evidence you you presented. I it just confirms for me that the narrative stinks. It doesn't prove he's guilty, but I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, the fact, that, the fact that no one really followed, and he, you know, I think he he was off social media for a couple of days, and then right back to normal. Yeah. Um. I mean, he's so weird though, because there was the thing like a year before that where he retweeted someone tweeting the Pro Wrestling Illustrated weekly cover, where it's like Jerry Lawler indicted for statutory rape. Wait, what was yeah. that? Is, is someone buzzing into one of your places? What do I keep hearing? Oh, you know what? Um, my whole family just uh, came in, so it's always uh, new. it's always yeah. new. <laughs> so, what, what would what would a Memphis wrestling uh, podcast be without the first family? So, uh, <laughs> on, on, on that note, I'm going to leave on a high note. You, I just you better leave because here on the Super Podcast, we're only concerned with the last family. So, thank well, you for being what. here. Uh, 
and this is and this has been the greatest night of your life. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Jerry Gray. Well, listen, uh, Scott Bowden, of course, everyone, Kentucky Fried guys. Wrestling at KFRpod.com or wherever it is that you find your favorite podcast. A special Christmas edition coming uh, at you, actually, now that I think about it, right around the time this show drops. Uh, yes, so check merry, that out. A, a, very, a very crispy edition. And don't forget to check out the fine array of slightly illegal <laughs> wrestling t-shirts. <laughs> at MemphisWrestlingTees.com. Get them while you can before I'm hit with cease and desist letters <laughs> all right well yeah the gray market merch table all right. I, wonder, I, wonder, I do want to ask something kind of important did i uh, didn't check did cat weasel make hall of fame in wrestling observer this year finally no there, there's no british inductees this year especially not cat weasel but i know you have to go bowden so enjoy your holiday with the family uh merry christmas and we'll be hearing from you very soon and boy, the whole family really is there. So we're gonna, I'm gonna just hang up on you. Wow, that's a that's a pure six family get together. <laughs> uh, uh, too funny. All right, I'm gonna hang up before I have to get them to sign waivers. Uh, Scott Bowden off the call. All right, man. all right, Jerry. What's going on with you? You've been quiet. How you feeling, man? You all right? Listen, uh, not real. Oh man, is the medication wearing off? Yeah, yeah, we're quick. Man, I got to come up there and show you a good time, Jerry, on uh, Citrus. What do they call the bad neighborhood up there? Orange Grove Trail? Orange Blossom Trail, right? <laughs> yeah, that's really bad. That's where they Jake still have a hey, Jerry, do take yourself off a... speaker. It's hard to hear you. You're breaking up. Oh, okay, yeah, I got it. Hold on. Let me... Okay, yeah. When I was, when I was in... Jerry, I, I'm going to meet you on Orange Blossom Trail, two thirty tonight. I'm getting in my car right yeah. now. Okay. I got some good, I got some good stuff on me, and I uh, hear the dollhouse is open till two thirty, so we're in business. Oh God, that place gonna get real Danger. high, and then eat a lot of food. Yeah, <laughs> as long as we don't have to look at them, as long as we don't have to look at those nasty women. No. I've had enough. I'm through with women. Oh, I'm, come uh, on, man. Well, I'll meet you in Tampa. Yeah. We'll have a good time. <laughs> really? Yeah, I've had enough good times. <laughs> come on, what's, what's Malia Osaka doing? Malia Osaka? Huh? What? There's, oh, an inside, there's an inside joke Herb? for me and Jason Rudy. Oh, my God. Malia Osaka. You guys want to hear a Bring the joke outside. Come on. No, no, no. You want to hear a hilarious story at the last? Yeah. My buddy, my buddy, John Mastandrea oh. is like um, uh, one of my best friends. I'm sure he's listening. And uh, the, the funny point of it is he always brings to attention the fact that I'm in the building with people that I have heat with. I mean, not heat, <laughs> but I mean, okay. I mean, I mean, just an, an, an awkward situation. And he just has this instinct for it because he doesn't know that there's heat between me and the person. So there might be a little bit of heat between me and Dave Meltzer, even though I'm not on Meltzer's radar or anything, but we're at the CAG and I'm walking around and there's Meltzer with my friend, John. And John's like, Hey, Howard, Howard Baum, it's Dave Meltzer, Dave Meltzer, Howard Baum. And I'm like, I'm still making such a good show of ignoring him 
Because we had a little <laughs> minor to do about the fact that I sent him some photos, and he never sent them back for me to me or used them in one of his books, like way back in the '80s. Long forgotten. Yeah. I'm not on Dave Meltzer's radar. I'm not in his universe. That's fine. I have nothing against him. I'm just saying <laughs> that I sent him a little letter, like you could at least have the dignity to, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, I, you I'm know. sure he forgot it already. <laughs> well, I'm sure. Yeah. It's hard. You, like, you have to I'm really. Like, you have to. You have to really do something really, really, really aggressive and fucked up to be on his bad side. I mean, he cold called Gary Hart after Gary Hart wrote all that shit about him and stuff like that. Oh, I, well, I, got, I got nothing against. Well, hold on, what's, I got hold, on, what's, hold, on hold on, stop, Howard. I got to hear that. What Gary Hart said. Yeah, what is yeah. that story, Kurt? <laughs> it's, it's sometimes it's just, it's just like um, you, you know, Dave may totally cemented himself as a legend when every time somebody puts out an autobiography and they devote a whole chapter to how. Well, wait a second. Though. Wait a second. Though. The Dave book is. came out after Gary died. What's that? The book came out after. No, Gary you're right. Died. That did, it did, yeah. but he. Did, I guess uh, he did know about Gary's feelings about him. Well, yes, and because also the the version that floats around online, which is not the finished version of the book, is much more harsh on Dave than the version that came out. Yes, yes, hmm. uh, but Dave still cold called him to get just some information for a story, and he said Hart was cool with him and everything. I think there's a lot of instances like that where people say things about Dave and then Dave calls them and they're like, oh, hi, Dave. What do you want to know? Does this person's oh, yeah. name rhyme with Bruce Brichard? <laughs> That's <laughs> certainly one of those clowns. Yeah. Anything, anything, yeah. anything Bruce Pritchard says, uh, just believe the opposite from what I uh, understand. Well, yeah. not, not just from what I understand. understand. Yeah. yeah, he's such a cunt. Yeah. Okay. Oh, God. So, so <laughs> minor, if I may, minor I like awkwardness. Minor awkwardness with me and Dave. No big deal. No big whoop. I'm sure I'm not on his radar or whatever, but it was in the 80s. I'm like, I sent you a letter like, like, uh, you could have been nice or whatever, whatever. So I don't seek out eye contact with Dave Meltzer. It's fine. Fine. Not a big deal, believe me. But then at the convention, John's like standing next to Meltzer, and I'm making a perfect scene of avoiding everyone. I'm like walking, he's like, Howard, Dave Meltzer, Dave Meltzer, it's Howard Baum, Howard Baum, Dave Meltzer. I'm like, okay. So I, I evacuated the scene. I got out of there, okay. And he had, like, Dave had his, like, stunned. What was, um, what was, uh, uh, Dan Farron's expression. He has that freshly tased look. As he says about Lano. Yes. <laughs> like he says about Lano, he has that freshly tased look. I don't know if I don't know if Howard Brown registered. Okay, but then Malia Hosaka and I are at the CAC. Malia Hosaka and I go way back. We've been on many shows together. I took pictures of her. I was on the same show as her as a manager. So then we see each other at the CAC. And we're both kayfabing each other for whatever reason. And I think because I sent her some photos on Facebook and she never responded, I'm like, okay, you're welcome for nothing, whatever. You but love the like word kind of people, like, don't you, okay, Howard? <laughs> I'm going to kayfabe you and you're going to kayfabe me, and that's the end of it. And then we're at the convention at the CAC, and John and Malia's at the table over. We're doing such a magnificent job of ignoring each other the whole time. I don't see you. You don't see me. All is right in the world. We've known each other for 20 years. We're make, we made a pact to ignore each other. Perfectly fine. And John goes, Malia, Howard Bob, Howard Bob, Malia. And, like, Jason Rudy is right there. I'm like, oh, my God, do you see this? Do you see what's going on? First Dave, then Malia. Who's next? Wow. So that was just, like, John I fucking, I fucking love 
I fucking love John Massandria. Is, is he coming to CAC's I hope year? so, man. I hope so. I hope so. I, I fucking love Our, that guy. Our how, about that fucker's, how about that fucker's biceps? Hold on, everyone. Scott, what are you saying? Uh, Howard, you were at the NWA 50th in Cherry Hill with uh, Gordon Soley? Yeah. I was there, and I thought for years that uh, we just hadn't ever met, but now I realize you were trying to ignore me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Sully was like, ah, we have a Scott Cornish. And, uh... <laughs> I actually remember... Talking to Gordon for only a couple minutes, and oh, Scott and Harry White got on me big time because you broke his heart. I well, no, that's not true. I was very busy and I was running around <laughs> doing lots of things, and I was also doing the videos for the banquet. And, and that's tell your story, and I'll tell what really happened. Wait, is this like the time <laughs> I big timed Jeremy Borash at WrestleCon? The time that what? That I big timed Jeremy Borash at WrestleCon. Oh. Uh, well, Scott, what happened? What? <laughs> Gordon, who had was well into his cups, there's no surprise there. Um, his cups, and he was also hoarse. If you remember, his voice was gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's an expression for he 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 had had a few, you know. Um, <laughs> and he 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 came up to to Brian in the in the bar area, and he was complimenting him on the on the videos that Brian had produced for the uh, for the banquet earlier. By the way, I was 17 in the bar area. 17. 18. Well, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but uh, <laughs> so apparently he was so impressed with Brian's the, the footage that Brian put together, particularly for his tribute, that he said, "Oh, that that that's wonderful. I don't have any of that any of that footage. I'd love to to have a copy of that." And basically put him over as big as you possibly can. And it is Gordon Soley. And all he wanted was a copy of that videotape. And I can, it, uh, unless Brian corrects me. Uh, he never contacted Soli, and Soli, you know, went to his grave hoping. Oh, don't say that. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. That is such bullshit. Oh, brother. Oh, my God. Okay, that's a video project. I want Brian to bring the tape to the grave and say, look, Gordon, it's so close, but you still can't see it. I, I will say oh this. My uh, God. That is somewhat, uh, uh. That is somewhat how it happened. And <laughs> I, I, I was very busy that weekend because I had a Rough lot earth. going on. But also, Brian. Harry, White, the- Harry White and Scott Cornish just hit me. As soon as we got in the elevator, <laughs> they were like, you're, you're awful. You have ruined that man's life. They just were giving it to me so hard. <laughs> At such a young age, you destroyed somebody. Oh, now, it was, you talked about the film you were doing. Was that the, all the filming you were doing? Was that the convention where Carl Lauer came up to you and said, "How oh, do you like to yes. come to what city was it? I, you know, I didn't film that one. I only, I did videos. I would, you know, and it, I mean, it was prehistoric the way I did it. I would dub tapes and I would just put together little videos and I did them for every single person that was going to be uh, either presenting to someone or receiving an award. And I did one <laughs> for everyone, Luthez, uh, Freddie Blassie, Gordon Soley. And again, at that time, you know, like the footage of Gordon and Les Thatcher that's out there now from early 73 in Georgia, that wasn't really in circulation. And it, it is now because of me. I'm the one who got the video mm-hmm. and put it out there. So he hadn't seen that and no one else had. So when I had that and I had a few other clips that he hadn't seen, I had uh, him from the Mid-Atlantic tapes. And at that time, the Mid-Atlantic tapes, not all of them were out there. So that and I had it off Cornette's master. So I had perfect quality. So I had some really cool stuff there. And wow. then. Uh, that was it. You know, I did it for Dennis. Uh, I did it for Dennis more than CAC or anything. Like George Napolitano was really nice, and he put me over in the mm-hmm. magazine afterwards. But 
he didn't ask me to, and CAC didn't ask me to. It was Dennis. And Carl Lauer just runs up to me. Like I'm sitting in the chair, and he runs up to me, and he kneels. <laughs> so he's like at my eye level, and he's like, <laughs> Brian, how would you like to come to Iowa? And it was the first time I ever met him. It was the first word <laughs> he ever said to me. And, and, I was and, like, when I, and when I met Carl, I knew he was a promoter, so I was prepared. But if he came up to me and I was 17, how would you like to come to Iowa? M- Mom? Mom, can I come <laughs> home? <laughs> you were right. <laughs> Big city's evil. And I, was, I think I was very nice in saying I have no interest in going to Iowa and <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm serious. I, I did say it nicely. I have no interest in going to Iowa. I love it. I do. I would, I would actually like to go there. I just didn't want to go there with Carl Lauer then. <laughs> what? You know, you miss, but you know what was very cool looking... about. What's that? You know what was cool about that? That Gordon told me and my crew of uh, John Mastandrea and Lion Ricky <laughs> is that, um, and we literally had two. Back to back, four hour uh, drinking sessions. It was amazing, and as I documented before, Gordon unfortunately like lost his voice previously to this, and he wasn't diagnosed with throat cancer or anything yet. But his wife just died, and he could barely talk, and it was like a dream come true. But now he can't talk. So, but he said that the main reason he went to that is because they had people like Fez and Blassie, and I think maybe another NWA old timer. And that's the main reason he was there. He's like, I wouldn't have come to this if it wasn't for Thez and uh, just a couple of the other people to honor them. Great way to kill the room, Howard. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, it's another, patented, it's, another Howard, it's another patented Howard Baum thread killer moment. And then Sola got booked for the Heroes of Wrestling, and things just went downhill. Lou Kippelman, we need that voice to boom in more often. Oh, Scott I'm assuming it's Lou. I am so freaking flawed yeah. right now that I, I, I'm, I'm mixing up people's uh, voices. So. Scott, no, no worries. Saying? I'm just... And just that John Mastandrea has had his name mentioned on this podcast more than John McAdam. <laughs> well, we should have him on. We should well, have him on. Because he's a great guy. Uh, I, I don't doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's one of my oldest buddies. He used to wrestle his handsome John down in Florida in the old uh, Rusty Brooks. Well, I'll tell you what, Malico guys. Days. We have just crossed the four-hour barrier for this episode of Star Wars, so we got to start kicking people off as we wind down. Jerry Gray, I'm going to let you go first so you can actually get some rest. Uh, before you go, we want to remind all the listeners, if you've enjoyed Jerry on the show today, if you enjoy Jerry and the multiple segments he has done with us on the 605 Super Podcast, then please consider contributing to tinyurl.com slash GoFund Golden Boy. All the money goes directly to Jerry. There's no middleman. And Jerry uses that money for his medical bills, his actual bills. I mean, a lot of people forget that. They think when you get sick, you just need help with your medical bills. It depletes all your funds. Every bill you have all of a sudden starts adding up and Jerry's going through a rough time. And he's been very open about it on the show while also sharing funny, humorous, and informative stories. So once again, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. I encourage you all to go there, even if it's a dollar. Just do something. Help Jerry out. But Jerry, anything you want to say to the listeners or any of the other uh, clowns here on the line before you jump off the show? <laughs> yeah, thank all you guys and happy holidays to everyone. And like I've said many times, I appreciate all the everyone that's been helping me 
I mean, you guys have kept me alive for all this year, and I can't thank you enough. I'll keep telling stories. I have a lot more. Thank God I still have the memory. And mm-hmm. once again, good time today. Had a blast, and can't wait to hear. Is it going to come out what day, Brian? It'll come out on Christmas. And by the way, for those of you out there who think marijuana hurts your memory, Jerry Gray, ladies and yeah. gentlemen. Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. God bless you. Okay, Love guys. you, Jerry Gray. It. Love you, Jerry Gray. Love you. Take Love care, you guys. Jerry. Love you Feel guys. good and have a Take Merry care, Christmas man. and Happy Holidays. Oh, okay. You guys too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care, Jerry. God bless. Bye-bye. Yeah. All right. And now we'll start winding down a little more. Uh, trying to think if there's any other hot button issues that we didn't touch on today that I wanted to. I don't think so. We touched on. Oh, mod- mm-hmm. what? I didn't bring up my la- latest Lano experience. No, you did we- not. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> do tell, do tell, do tell. OK, so That's one of these crazy. happened semi publicly, but I don't know if anyone other than Bill Brown would have gotten a notification about it. Um, so. Months ago, I think it was July, um, Stately Wayne Manor, Erdie Santilli, tweeted a photo of him in between Dennis Corluzzo and Todd Gordon at the right. January 93 uh, Legends of Wrestling Dennis ECW co-promotion thing. It's a pretty famous photo. I remember it being in the magazine, too. Right. Yeah. So I was like, okay, you know, I'm sure Mark and Brian and everyone are gonna would enjoy this. So I saved it and I posted it on the Dennis tribute facebook group like hey uh ernie po- po- tweeted this i figured you'd all appreciate it blah 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 so then okay so when was this because I'm, look, I'm looking at the screenshot i sent to brian this was what about a week yeah a little over a week ago about 10 days ago um all of a sudden i get a notification that i have a comment on a facebook post from michael anna <laughs> My, oh, on on Mike Lano's Facebook account that has no profile picture of any kind. <laughs> Not even of Pamela Anderson? A sil- just a silhouette with a mustache. That's the amazing <laughs> Jenna Jameson. Okay. Yeah, it's a picture of an egg with his watermark on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's an egg with Jenna Jameson. <laughs> All right, so here's what he, here's what he wrote. <laughs> That's my photo. <laughs> not sure why it's not credited, oh, but on. all three were always great guys. Stately in the center, the missed Dennis C., and of course, young Todd Gordon! Exclamation point. Please just credit the shot photo by WREA, you know, his email address at AOL.com. We all miss Dennis, one of a kind. Truly loved having fun and loved the biz even more. Dr. Mike here. Oh my God! There's so yo, much yo, to say. So then, about well, I guess it was about what three hours later, something like that. I get a Facebook message from Doctor Mike Lano. I guess. Well, are we supposed to call him Doctor anymore? Yeah, I mean, oh, it's, it's dis- a gift. Dis- no, it's no, a disbarred Mike Lano. Disbarred Mike Lano. He doesn't okay. even use Doctor on Facebook. Wow. Mm. Well, anyway, <laughs> this is what the message said, Sir D. Are letter U not with Brian slash Observer, or still with them, but also at Deadspin? Saw my shot of Ernie S slash Stately Wayne in between Carlu- Corluzo and Todd Gordon from 92. It just needed to be credited as my work, parenthesis, photo by that stupid email address at AOL.com. But if Ernie slash Stately had sent it, maybe he just forgot to give you the photographer of record. 
If you need any shots at Deadspin, etc., of wrestling, MMA, boxing, or even film, TV, red carpet events, you know to holler. Thanks. Yeah, if you need any photo in the history of mankind, I could somehow get it for you and put my watermark on. That's right. Yeah. When I was photo uh, photographing the Gotch versus Hackenschmidt match, <laughs> yes. uh, this is a know, photo I took of about- Teddy Roosevelt watching the Abraham Lincoln funeral procession through the. <laughs> <laughs> then when George Washington discovered Santa Ana, California, in '32, I was there. <laughs> so then, thirty seconds later. Keep in mind, I never replied to anything he said. Was bummed learning Dynamite allegedly used to hit, quote, Mathilda the dog, end quote, backstage, abbreviated as B apostrophe stage. Never had a clue letter B number four on that mess. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. God, every one of his missives is like a print song. Horribly wrong. He's the white prince. He's a also, prince I like how... Well, hold on, Big Show. I like how when... No, I was just going to say, I clearly stated in the Facebook post in the Dennis group that it, that Ernie tweeted it. And he's like, oh, did Ernie send this to you to use on Facebook? Howard no. Baum. Howard Baum is a photographer. Howard Baum has been involved in threads and seen things where Mike Lano's loose <laughs> way of applying credits to photos is addressed. <laughs> Howard, what do you think about the idea that Lano was so incensed about this that he posted and then he started messaging Bix about not getting credit for this photo, which quite frankly, I'm until I know for sure he took it, I'm not going to give him credit for it. And in a private Facebook group. How- well, that just, speaks, that just speaks to the good folks who consider themselves professional wrestling photographers and uh, <laughs> the need for proper credit within our industry. Absolutely. But you want to hear something funny, like when Jace, our own Jace Nakarado imitated um, Dr. Mike Lano for uh, Halloween. That was amazing. He we he, he needs about, an award for that. Yeah. He was he was talking about, um, and of course, uh, hello from Millie and Carp, and I go, <laughs> I go, who's Millie and Carp? He goes, well, Mildred Burke and Ed Carpentier, of course. <laughs> I'm like, that's hilarious. <laughs> Millie and Carp, that's like the funniest shit of all time. One of, one of the great finds was Scott Cornish finding it, and I used it on the anniversary show, that article from whatever, 76, from Georgie M. Acropolis's column about Diane Devine also informed us that the photo Mike Lano sent in last week was not his. It was taken by Theo Eric. <laughs> oh, my God. It's the first documented case of him stealing someone else's photo work. Scott, what were you going to say? Just that that magazine came from my uh, my friend over in Albany, Nick Passans. And uh, I, I knew that would, would uh, go over big. When I, when I... <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Well, we, we, Thank the you, story Nick. was told on – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying thank you to Nick Bassans for passing that magazine along to Scott. Go ahead, Kurt. <laughs> well, we, 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 the story's been told on 605 from several sources about George Napolitano uh, clocking Lena. Yeah, oh. John Arezzi told it. He was in the room when it happened. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and I, and I, I remember I went up and asked George Napolitano, did you do that? And he just kind of awkwardly nodded, yes, I did. And I gave him a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. I, and I don't know what he made of that, really, but I, I think he understood but um, I, I know I'm a little, you know, I'm a little older than most of you guys here. But I remember I used to watch the Soupy Sale show when I was a kid. Yeah. I didn't care what happened during the show. At the end of the show, he always got a pie in his face. 
Like he'd, he'd try to, you know, get oh, out yeah. of it every time, but the pie would hit his face. I, wouldn't it be great to have like the Mike Leno hour where he does all this wacky stuff, but at the end there's George Napolitano with a fist just curled up ready. <laughs> <laughs> George Napolitano's a little guy too, and Leno's a big guy. I mean, that's like the wrestling photographer equivalent of JBL getting knocked out by Joey Styles. That's exactly. Totally. exactly. Yes. That's the best way of putting it. I, I believe it, though, because when I – Met George. I mean, he didn't look like this guy who hanged and banged or anything, but he he looked solid. So I I, I believe he could pack one. <laughs> well, I just remembered though. I was looking at my emails. I did finally get a new email from Lano to the Lano email list uh, a few weeks ago as well. He, he, oh my he, gosh! Of all things, it was about Jesse Ventura being on TMZ Live. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. And that apparently he was in L.A. to testify in, like, a murder trial involving the motorcycle club he was part of after he got <laughs> home from the military or something. <laughs> so, uh, it's not like he was with the Mongols. or. <laughs> also, he, mis- he spelled snickering wrong and spelled it in just about the worst possible way. Well, he's an expert he's in not, snickers. Uh, he's an expert he with snickers. Yeah. <laughs> But how, how do you th- how do you think he spelled uh, snickering? Uh, I imagine there are a couple of G's in there. Yeah, it's an I. It's uh, an I. More than really need to be there. Snickering. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he's got the smocking gun now, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, yeah. guys. Uh, we are now well over four hours, so we really do. And we're just getting started. And we're just getting started. Hey, New Year's Star Wars next week if anyone's around. So uh, we'll uh, set up a day and time if anyone's interested, and we'll do something for the New Year's special. But as we start wrapping it up, I won't make anyone hang up. We'll just uh, all hang up together. But uh, one by one, say goodbye to the listeners. Uh, we'll start with Scott Bowden, who already left the call. So we will not start with Scott Bowden. <laughs> we, we will start with Rockin' Jerry Brown himself, Kurt Brown. Vandal Drummond, the HIV oh. kid, Lucky Pierre, <laughs> and many, many other names that were normally not Many, the many same more Vandal Venereal Drummond sending uh, out all his love. I hope it makes sense because I am pretty blasted the moment holiday cheer. I want to say a special uh, hello to Johnny Trejo of the House of Pena. I want to say how proud we are of you that you let out the war cry during your match last Sunday. Yeah, very You're cool. An, Yes, you're a very cool, uh, awesome guy. Uh, everybody, Dan Farron, Fredo Esparza, my, uh, my, my compadres, and the 605 audience. And seriously, I love, uh, uh, I love the Facebook post, and I love the community that the 605 is, and I hope it keeps going for a long, long time. Well, thank you, Karen. We hope you're a part of it for a long, long time. And actually, after we're done recording, I'll talk to you a little bit about that. Uh, okay. We'll see what we have to say there. Lou Kippelman, Lou, you have recently joined the cast of characters here and you've become very popular. And you, I got to say, you have been a breath of fresh air. You've helped out in so many ways. Anything you want to say to the listeners? Lou. <laughs> They're not doing the saying Lou. Yes, they are. <laughs> I just, I, <laughs> and this is not an abnormal occurrence for me. Uh, I, I got to say the folks on the mothership have just been fantastic from when I was just a lurking sort of schlub. And uh, yeah, it's like 
yeah, I really stepped into a very, very lucky, fortunate situation. I'm still a fanboy. I'll always be a fanboy of Arcadian Vanguard. And that said, cheap plugs, uh, go check out Stick to Wrestling and uh, Breaking Kayfabe. So that's, you know. And, take if, and for those of you who don't know, because I haven't made an official announcement yet, but it's coming, Lou is now producing those shows for Arcadian Vanguard, which uh, he's been doing a fantastic uh, job. It's been almost seamless because unless, you know, you're paying close attention, you, well, actually Barry and and, and uh, Jeff are talking to him during the show. It's a little different, but if you listen to McAdam's show, He's just done a fantastic job, and uh, yeah, so going forward, Lou is going to be producing those shows, so listen in. You'll probably be hearing yeah. some Lou on Breaking Kayfabe. I could say that for sure. Scott, what were you going to say there? Just that Lou was once a lurking schlub, and now he's a notorious schlub. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, Scott, since you jumped in there with uh, that joke, anything you want to say here at the end of the show? You just had your birthday, and what a reaction that got on the Super Podcast Facebook page. <laughs> That was very flattering. Thanks to everybody that uh, that uh, sent their well wishes and chimed in. Yeah, my my brother commented on that. I said, "Yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm sort of uh, getting to be somewhat well known or popular in certain circles, and yet I still humbly remain completely obscure in real life." <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to say, I the the. the Super podcast and the and the the listeners and and my friends here uh, on the show have been a real bright spot in a, in I'll just say a, a a tough year for me and I certainly appreciate it and I wish everybody a merry merry holly jolly Christmas. <laughs> uh, Bix, what are you currently working on? Anything you want to say to the listeners and what are you currently working on in terms of your articles or anything else? I'm just trying to figure out if it's kayfabe or kayfabe. Because Lou said kayfabe, and I realized I've heard other people say it that way. So is it actually kayfabe or kayfabe? Mm. Anyway. Hey, I always thought kayfabe. <laughs> long A, long A, long A. Wish, wish. We always talked about the pronunciation of, was it Bull Nakano or Bull Nakano? And I it's remember Nakano. the reason why it's Nakano, not Nakano. Well, I always say mascaris, and um, and uh, vandal says mascaris. You say tomato, I say vandal. You say mascaris. I say Scott Levy. You say Scott Levy. <laughs> I say I suck your mother. <laughs> but <laughs> yes, you no, say but, uh, ah. Yeah. <laughs> I say, <laughs> but but uh, no, in Japanese, you're not supposed to accentuate syllables. So it should, should be straight Nakano. There should be no emphasis on syllables. Hmm. Where were we? Oh. Uh, mix. Uh, I should have drank heavily when I was in college. I would have gotten through it, man. So I this will be out on Tuesday, right? I think On Christmas so. Day. Either, either, it okay. might be either a Monday week, night or right? Tuesday, yeah. We'll finish it up Tuesday, I think. Okay, so by then I should already have up a few. I should have article on Deadspin about the whole WWE Trump Foundation Oh. thing and trying to gather all of the information that's actually out there and what we know or and don't know um also should have something at mel magazine about uh christmas 1983 and how the how the oh, wrestling cool. world changed that week very cool because it is 35th anniversary yeah. of that next week of all that stuff Backlund losing the title uh hogan no showing the awa christmas show the wrestling at the chase taping etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and I mean, that's the only things I have coming up immediately. And 
and we'll po- and we'll post those links on the mothership page so everyone can check those out. I'm definitely looking forward to reading those articles because you've done great work throughout the year. Your work just Thanks. gets better and better, I think, each year. So uh, keep it up, keep going, and uh, very proud of you. We're all very proud of you. Of course, you're the co-creator of this show, so we take a little bit of pride in what you do, just a little bit. You know, we don't want to get Thank too you. much, and then we get some of the blame too. But uh, Howard <laughs> Baum, as we uh, wrap things up, any final words for the listeners? Wait, what do I get blamed hey, for? Hey, now? hey. <laughs> well, <laughs> I just uh-huh. want to wish a, a happy, uh, healthy uh, holiday season to all my super podcast friends, family, and associates, starting from Brian and the great Travis Heckle, all the way down to all my popular co-hosts, Vandal, Scott, John, Jeff the Booker Baldrin, Barry Rose. And Howard just jumped off the calls. And I'm still here. I keep trying to hang up, but I miss. <laughs> well, with that, I guess we really will wrap things up. We've just crossed four hours and 20 <laughs> minutes of the uh, super podcast here. Listen, well, that's apropos, given who's online. Well, well that's there, right. We all, got the, we all have the Kurt Brown contact high right now. So <laughs> I, 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 keep, I, I think I broke my knuckle because I keep trying to hang up. I forget rotary phones are the past, you know? <laughs> Did I already go to Kurt? Did I already say Kurt say goodbye or no? Yes. I did. Okay. I think I, think so. I was the first one. Oh, I thought Lou just said you have to go to Kurt. I, I Forgive me. I wasn't hearing uh, things correctly. But oh. as we wrap things up, I want to say on behalf of myself and my family and everyone at Arcadian Vanguard, Merry Christmas, Happy Belated Hanukkah once again, and uh, Happy Kwanzaa and whatever else you celebrate this holiday season. I really do appreciate your ongoing support of the Super Podcast and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network and everything we're working on for 2019 and 2020. Stay tuned for all that. And that's it. If you want to go to the Facebook page, you probably know how to get there. You can follow all of us idiots on Twitter. And I'm not going to plug anything else. Have a Merry Christmas. Enjoy your time with your family. And uh, that's it. Tally-ho! Buzz Sawyer, we've heard about the big match later this month. What do you think about it? I think you better not pout. You better not cry. You better watch out. I'm telling you why. Because Santa Claus is coming to town. No, he's making a list. Checking it twice. See who's been naughty or nice. (laughs) Santa Claus is coming to town. He knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so you better be good for goodness sake. You better not pout. You better not cry. You better watch out. I'm telling you why. Because Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> Prophetic words indeed from three great wrestlers. And this Friday night, in fact, we'll see the greatest of them in this very, very special no holds barred Christmas Eve reindeer elimination special. That's right. This match is totally unsanctioned. And frankly, I've never seen anything like it before in the squared circle. And now, ho, ho, ho. 
Here he is, the man to beat in this Friday's competition. He recently stopped by the television sports arena and had this to say. You bet I'm coming to town. You bet your boots I'm coming to town. So you better watch it. Because I'll see you when you're sleeping. I'll see you when you're awake. I'll see you when you're bad and good. And I'm going to break your face. It's going to be messy. You watch it. You ever been in a tag team match with a reindeer? So you stay out of my way. Because Santa Claus is coming to town. And you're on my list, pal. You and Mongo and Freddie Miller and Dasher and Dancer and Blitzen and all of you. So just watch out when you see the sleigh coming. Because I'm Get all of you. Ladies and gentlemen, direct from the top of the world to your living room, it's St. Nick, the big man in red. December 24th, Friday evening, the Bearded Wonder takes on the entire world in a match guaranteed to last all night. Santa Claus is coming to town. Don't miss it. Be there. Because I'm coming to town. Be there. One, two, three.